You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. What an excellent day for an exorcism. In 1974, a motion picture shocked the world. It has become one of the most acclaimed and successful films in history. The Exorcist is a classic in its own time. And now, Warner Brothers takes you a step beyond. Exorcist 2, The Heretic. Starring Linda Blair. Richard Burton. Louise Fletcher. Max von Sydow. James Earl Jones. Their minds locked together with the most terrifying vision of all. Exorcist 2 The Heretic. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. I was possessed by a demon, but it's okay. He's gone. Also with us is Mr. David Kittredge. Call me by my dream name. David, spirits of the air. On this special episode of the Projection Booth, we fly upon the wings of a demon as we discuss John Borman's 1977 film Exorcist II, The Heretic. It's been quite a few years since we've seen Reagan McNeil, the little girl who, on the cusp of womanhood, was possessed by a demon in William Friedkin's film. She's back, and so is the demon. This time, the titular exorcist is Father Philip Lamont, played by Richard Burton. Lamont is investigating what happened to the ill-fated Father Marin of The Exorcist. Now, we're going to be getting into massive spoilers about this film, The Exorcist, and maybe even two or three other sequels of the movie. So if you haven't seen this film or any of the sequels or any of that kind of stuff, go track down the new Scream Factory Blu-ray and come back when you're ready. We will still be here. Now, Sam, when was the first time you saw The Exorcist 2, and what did you think? At some point, I think when I was in high school, I, you know, was a big fan of The Exorcist and managed to find some sort of kind of crappy VHS bootleg that had two and three on there. And my mind was blown by both of them for very different reasons. But I I love them both. How about you, David? The first time I saw it, I was in high school and I was kind of a burgeoning movie nerd. Well, I was a full-fledged movie nerd, but I was kind of just like, you know, raiding the video store that was near me and, and, you know, seeing everything I possibly could. I was really, really taken with The Exorcist. And when I saw that Exorcist 2 was there, even though I knew of its reputation, I really wanted to see it. And this was the, and I guess we'll get into this, this was the edited version. This was the version that had happened that, w- that was around Europe that was 16 minutes shorter than the original uh, U.S. release. And I thought it was interesting. I thought there was really interesting stuff in it. And it wasn't until much later when Warner Brothers released on VHS in the 90s the original version, the original director's cut, that I was just blown away. And, you know, there's just so much about the movie that resonated with me. It's just a unique, interesting, very, very kind of smart, but it's genius, but it's also silly. 
it's kind of interesting. It's just nothing like it. There's nothing like it. And I really wanted to know as much as I possibly could about it. So that kind of led to this 20-year obsession that I've had with this film. I first saw this one, I think, on cable. And I didn't remember very much about this one at all, other than locusts. That's the only thing I could really remember was locusts. And yeah, there are a lot of locusts. A lot of locusts. And I kind of remembered that weird color scheme that was going on because in my mind all i could think of was when i thought of exorcist 2 was locusts and like a muddy color palette so i think i'm thinking of like the african scenes possibly but that was about it i really couldn't remember more and then yeah the even when i i probably saw this when i was like 10 years old and it came out when i was just north of five years old but even at 10 years old i was aware of that reputation that it had that this was not a good movie now i don't know if we're going to redeem this movie or not but we can definitely talk about what works what maybe doesn't work as well but we can we can get there now i'm going to caution everybody listening that i have been watching both the longer version and the shorter version like crazy. So I might screw some stuff up, but I'm hoping that you guys can kind of keep me honest. I'm not going to say that the movie begins with a flashback to the exorcism from the first one (laughs) and, and Richard Burton giving a very ponderous voiceover. That's not how this one begins. The, the longer cut, which we'll talk about first does not start that way. It starts with an opening exorcism. We get a nice big bang going on here where we have Richard Burton being introduced as father Lamont going down to South America. And we know it's South America because people are speaking Spanish, I guess. But yeah, we have that. And then we get this whole idea of this other exorcism. So I I think one of the issues with exorcist two was there wasn't as many wasn't as much exercising but at least it kind of like throws a bone here by giving us an exorcism to kick things off it was an exorcism autopsy it was basically you know the, i mean the whole pre the, the whole concept of the movie is what happened in the first movie so you which is interesting because stylistically and again i guess we're going to go into this th- there were the decisions were made very, very clearly that this was not going to be anything like the first movie. Nothing like everybody involved in it worked really hard to visually and stylistically and even in the way people were acting like the script, everything to distance it as far away from the first movies, like the world of the first movie as possible. So for it to be so referential, it's kind of an interesting kind of dissonance. Yeah. And that always struck me as one of the things that I was fascinated by but confused by the first couple times I watched the film because I am someone who really hates remakes but really loves sequels, even sort of flawed sequels, because I think that's just such an interesting narrative problem is, you know, how do you deal with the, especially horror sequels, like how do you deal with the after effects of some big, huge tragedy that happened in the first film? or some big violent or supernatural event. And it seemed like you could go so many different ways exploring that question, and they just went in a direction that I think if you sit down and watch this the first time expecting a sort of coherent sequel the way that the sort of Nightmare on Elm Street sequels are, it's, I have no words. Like you said, it's so unique in a way to make it almost confusing. 
the takeaway from this movie and and I think one of the reasons that I love it so much is that it really took its audience's expectations and flung it in their face. It was it is one of the gutsiest choices I think I've ever seen in a big budget movie because they took this thing that was I mean The Exorcist was the third highest grossing movie ever at the time. It was the highest grossing movie Warner Brothers had ever made. It was a phenomenon. It was nominated for what like I think 8 Academy Awards at one two or three it was a huge thing and for Borman John Borman the director to go so far afield and make this movie that is so completely different and and not giving the audience any of the spinning heads or the green vomit or the the kind of body horror of the first movie is I, I think even if you hate this movie you have to honor the guts I mean because there's just one could call it arrogance but I prefer to think of it as just like an incredibly risky thing to do. And, and it didn't pay off, but it, it, you know, if it had, it could have been something absolutely landmark. Oh, totally agree. And that's one of the things that I love so much about all of Borman's films that I've seen is that whether you can say they're successful or not, they're always interesting and they're always really brave. One of the hallmarks of Borman is his incredible risk-taking and bravery when it comes to the way he makes his movies. And, I mean, you know, you even look at how he made his movies, like going on location in the Amazon for the Emerald Forest or or even that the, the Deliverance shoot or Hell in the Pacific. You know, it's he is he is a journeyman filmmaker. He is a, a you know he's the real deal. He's as far as I'm concerned up there with uh, Kurosawa, Hitchcock, Fellini, all the all the really big 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 people. He might not have the body of work that compares to a Hitchcock, but if you just look at what he was doing and how he was doing it and the, and where he was working and and the themes that he was trying to do, it's there's been no other filmmaker like him in history. The deck was stacked against this movie. Let's just put that out there, because this one is coming out four years after the original Exorcist, right? Or was it more than... No, it was four years. No, it was four years. The Exorcist came out in December of 73 in a few cities, and then it really expanded in 1974. And Exorcist 2 had a release in June of 1977. It was, the, I believe, the biggest release as far as screens go in movie history at the time it was like 700 screens or something like that uh so it was not you know compared to now it's a little bit laughable but at the time that's a it was a big 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 deal so it was a very different kind of strategy a different kind of release pattern yeah people don't remember the whole idea of movies traveling around or even they don't even remember that when star wars opened just a few months prior to this it was a few weeks. A few it was three weeks. weeks. Yeah, it, this Star Wars was open limited. You know, Star Wars didn't open wide until after this movie came out. Like at the time of this release, Star Wars was still just playing in a few theaters. And you know, we talked about on well, we talked about that on the Star Wars episode. We talked about that on the Sorcerer episode. That it was like Sorcerer was in one theater and. Star Wars is in another, and they've got lines around the block for Star Wars, and nobody's seeing Sorcerer. Now, I love Sorcerer, but nobody's going to go see it. And then after this huge opening of Exorcist 2, when the word of mouth gets out, it just tanks, and just nobody goes, you know, people stayed away in droves. Well, I mean, be, but be fair, it, they only stayed away in droves starting the second weekend. The, the first weekend, it came in second, 
It was not first. It, the, actually, the first place movie for that weekend was The Deep with Nick Nolte and Jacqueline Bissett. And that was basically sold because of the Peter Benchley and Jacqueline Bissett in a white t- t-shirt. I mean, basically, that was what... I don't have the numbers in front of me. I think some... I, I, I actually did the research and I found it at one point. But I think it was like 7 million The Deep did and 6 million The Exorcist 2 did. So it wasn't very far. But it was the second week that really told because it dropped something like 60-something percent. This was in a time... And, and you were talking about this, where movies played for a really long time. Movie, a, a typical movie drop off to week two would be like a, a hit would be like twenty or thirty percent. Uh, you'd be in trouble at about forty or fifty percent. Sixty percent is a disaster. That's like, oh my god, you have a bomb. No one's seeing your movie. So by the time it was week three or week four, it wasn't even. I think by week three, it wasn't even in the top ten anymore. Which is, you know, Warner Brothers. I'm sure was quite upset at the time. And the other thing I want to bring up is that in that interim between The Exorcist and The Exorcist 2, exorcism films had become a cottage industry. We, all three of us, could sit here and probably name 30 exorcism films with no problem because there were so many. There was Turkish exorcism films. There were black exploitation exorcism films. There were all of these things. I mean, even I was looking through my notes last night. I forgot that there was one from Italy that was called The Exorcist 3. And they, they like kind of skipped over it. It was from 1975. So I'm like, why are you calling this is the Exorcist 3. <laughs> so there were so many exorcism films, it was crazy. So Borman already has the idea of people might be fatigued of exorcism films by this time because they have been around now for four solid years. So he's he's almost fighting against himself. And they're all following that same pattern that we saw in The Exorcist, you know, with some variations and some very clever variations as well. They weren't all just ripoffs. There were some, some great movies out there that followed an exorcism idea. You know, there were even like possessed cars. You know, I love the car. I, and there's so many different possessed things that were happening at this time. So it's he's also got that going. And then the other, like the biggest thing that's going on is that this movie, they, the, the earliest draft of the script that I could find was from October 1975. And at that point, it's one movie. And then it, things start to change, of course, you know, as, as things do when they go through drafts. But there was a major shift when one of the lead actors, Lee J. Cobb, dies. And then suddenly they have to switch everything that they're doing because Kinderman was one of their were there were two investigators you were talking about how this is kind of a a uh, autopsy of the first film there were two investigators there was Kinderman and there was Father Lamont the who, the person who ends up being played by Richard Burton they're both doing their own thing and they're working together and then all of a sudden boom Kinderman's dead they don't do a let's get George C. Scott in here at the time. They just let that character go and then start to put weight onto other characters who might not be able to take that weight. In particular, I'm thinking of Sharon. She has to take the weight of Kinderman and she has to take the weight of Alan Burstyn's character of Chris McNeil. And that character cannot take that. That's like putting a load bearing weight onto a post that just cannot handle that. No, and it's a disaster. So well, I words. No, I so I love this film very much and I get like kind of upset when people insult it. Like I take it really personally, but I can, you know, love it as much as I do and as we've been discussing, acknowledge that there are things wrong with it, but for me that's the single biggest flaw is that the like 
full weight put on that character. It just, just is, is so unfortunate. I understand why they did it because they, they wanted more of a tie to the first movie. I think that, that the, the tightrope that they were walking was he, you know, Borman and, and he was very overt about this. And John Kelly, the head of, of, um, Warner Brothers signed on to this. He was the one who brought on John Borman and he had the treatment by uh, William Goodhart, the original screenwriter, um, who only did the first, uh, what, couple of drafts. And then he was kind of, you know, sent away. And then it was Borman and this other, uh, person, Rospo Pallenberg, who rewrote the script entire, basically entirely, you know, throughout the, the rest of the shoot. And I, I get the tightrope that they were walking b- between like wanting to refer to the original film and wanting to do something different. But what, what Callie and Borman and, and William Goodhart wanted to do was take the original concept of what it means to be good, what it means to be evil and, and wrap it up in this, Tehard uh, Desjardins, who's a monk, who you talk about in a bit, his whole idea of a world mind where we would all come together psychically and emotionally as one world. And if we do it before we're ready, it, everything will go to hell. But if we're ready, then it'll become kind of like a heaven on earth and a utopia. And we'd all like kind of be telepathic. In a weird way, it was prescient of the internet. Um, a lot of the things that they talk about, a lot of things he talks about is, uh, you know, kind of like the sharing of information, the sharing of, you know, kind of communal human experience. It's a fascinating take, and I can see why Borman wanted to do it, and I can see why Callie wanted to hire Borman to do it. Callie, you know, had hired Borman to do Deliverance, and Deliverance is, for whatever you think of it, which I don't know who would think badly of it, it's a horror movie. Deliverance is a horror movie. You know, from the opening credits, you are on your the edge of your seat, creeped out, and you don't know what's going to happen. That is a horrifying movie, what happens in that movie. Like, and it, it was the first... Uh, ending that I'm aware of. Tell me I'm wrong. You might know, you might know better than me where it's a Carrie esque gotcha moment at the end. Like, or, or a, uh, yeah, Carrie, I guess is the, <laughs> the first major one. And it's not quite like someone jumping out, but it's a very creepy ending. So to hire John Borman to do this, but John Borman didn't like the first film. And he said so at the press conference. He said that he was basically, he, he felt that the first film was kind of, celebrating the torture of a child and he he wanted to do this as a repost or a response to the first movie like a healing thing it's a movie about good whereas the first movie was about evil you so i can you know we can talk about the intentions all day long but and i think that the interesting thing about this film was the intentions are right there and there it's fully intentional borman had the final cut that's all his film. That is entirely his intention up there. Nobody messed with it. There was no producer that came in and made them rewrite or made them do this or anything like that. This was entirely what they meant to do. And I think that's why it's so interesting. Considering how much sequels get messed with and films in general get messed with by producers, it's incredible to me that he made it to that final cut stage without someone changing the film because mm-hmm. to me it's not a horror f- and I totally agree that Deliverance is a horror film and of course you would want to hire that some that person to do a sequel that you hope to turn into another sort of major production but to me Exorcist 2 isn't a horror film at all it's sort of a mystical spiritual drama about healing like you said and sort of redemption and so to sort of pull that bait and switch on audiences is it's bold yeah they didn't get deliverance borman they got zardoz borman they did 
They absolutely did. And and Borman himself says it's not a horror movie. He says it's a – I think he what, – what did he say? I think he said it was a spiritual thriller. That is literally literally the words he said. And I'm just like – but if you if you change genres in a sequel, that's bold. You got you to gotta be steeled for some audience. The only person I know who might have gotten away with it is James Cameron. And, and even that was just a pivot. It wasn't really like a complete change. You went from a horror movie to a science fiction horror movie to a science fiction action horror movie with aliens. And you're also going from one alien to countless aliens. You, know, you are really upping it. So like with this one, you would think, well, it's not going to be one girl who gets possessed. Maybe it'll be 12 girls who get possessed. You know, how can we make this bigger? Well, we do start off with a possession. So it's like, okay, great. Here we have a possession uh, in South America. And then pretty soon we've got a possession that we see in kind of this amazing flashback in Africa. It's like, okay, great. We're going to see possessions like crazy. This is going to be terrific. How many heads are going to spin around? How much soup is going to get upchucked at people? This is going to be fantastic. But yeah, it doesn't happen that way. So it's, it is this weird kind of, like you said, a bait and switch of like, okay, the, like rather than taking the one thing and multiplying it by however many things, upping the ante, we just completely go away from that. And I, I would say some things are successful. There are some interesting things that they do in here. And then some things are just kind of like, why are you necessarily doing this? My, my, one of my biggest problems with this film, and you guys are probably going to think that I'm absolutely nuts, is the Yuri Geller scene. The Yuri Geller scene just really? drives me fucking crazy. Of all the things, of all the things you were going to say, that is like, I can't, okay. I want to hear it. No, this is good. I mean, I, that wouldn't have even been in my top 10, but go ahead. Well, we're introduced to these characters, right? We're introduced to Father Lamont. We see him in South America. We see him go back to the Vatican. We get this Paul Henry as this cardinal. Uh, he's given his assignment. We get introduced to Jean Tuscan, played by Louise Fletcher. And she's kind of a – she's not necessarily a last-minute addition, but she's a last-minute gender change. Like, it, Jean was a man all the way up until – right when uh, Lee J. Cobb died, and then they rewrote her as a man, which was an interesting, or as a woman, which is... Oh, it was after, it was after that. It was after that. He was, he was still a man up until very late drafts. It was really when, and, and from what I read, either Pallenberg and Borman saw Louise Fletcher at a party, or Pallenberg saw Louise Fletcher in a party and called Borman, and then brought her in, and then Borman was sold. Well, it was like, Lee J. Cobb died on February 11th, she was still uh, uh Jean was still a man as of March sixteenth, that draft that we that we both have. But as This is seventy six. Yeah, seventy six. March twenty ninth, she wins the Academy Award for Cuckoo's Nest. And then by April twenty eighth, she's on the cast list. So there was just like a month in there, month and a half where Jean was still a man, and then yes, yeah, somewhere in there, somewhere between March 16th and February uh, and April 28th, the character switched genders, which really isn't that big of a deal. And at this point, without Kinderman in the script, now you suddenly have this mother father relationship between uh, Jean and uh, Lamont. You know, you can say that there's this 
attempt at getting a family together. You know, I'm always looking for those dynamics in these films. So now we have the father who's actually a father and we have the mother who is the psychiatrist. And a lot of this movies, the tensions are between psychiatry and science um, or religion and science. So it's interesting to see how these two characters are kind of representative of those things. And then we have Reagan as this kind of uneasy mix between them. All right, but wait, wait a second. Is it, is it just my imagination or are there two or three scenes where Jean and Lamont have like weird sexual tension? There is. Uh, well, she does. She does ask like she does ask him, like, do you ever want a woman? Right. But I didn't get the sex. There was sexual tension between them. I thought it was mostly I, I can't say I ever vibed on that, but I'll, I'll go with it. No, and I mean, that's totally could just be my imagination, but I I definitely have gotten this vibe from the film that, and I don't know if it's because I've seen so many Richard Burton films and he often has these types of characters, but this weird thing where there's like awkward sexual tension between him and all of the female characters in some way where you're like, did they really write that line of dialogue? We we get these introductions to all of these characters, and we get the introduction to Reagan. Reagan's introduction is it's interesting. Let's say soon we finally get the meeting of the three main characters happening, and we're we are very quickly introduced to the synchronizer, which is this device that can take two individuals and put them into the same locked hypnotic state. So they both undergo the same hypnosis at the same time. They both are, they're sharing each other's memories uh, at exactly the same time. But in between that, where we have the synchronizer is introduced and it's like, well, hey, let's do this synchronizer thing. Wouldn't that be great? Okay, yeah, that sounds great. And then, bam, we cut to the scene where it's Reagan and Sharon watching this clip. And this is our introduction to Sharon. We have no idea. Like, people who watch the first Exorcist film might remember who she is, though she's got a different haircut. But, bam, we're introduced to Sharon. And it's her and Reagan watching television. And Yuri Geller is on TV. And Reagan's like, oh, it's so easy. You can do it. And he is pretending to bend a spoon. And then, bam, we go back, and now we're putting on the synchronizer. And I'm just like, what the fuck are you doing? Why did you just insert this scene into here? This doesn't. It just breaks the narrative flow so much that it drives me crazy. Well, in the recut version, it's been it's been a few a bit. I think a couple of years since I've seen the recut version. But isn't the order? I mean, the order of the first act of the entire film is really, really, really restructured. It's it's very much out of order. I don't remember if they included the Yuri oh, Geller did. scene in that. They did, did they? Okay, yeah. they in did. The exact. But it was it was in a order. different. Really? Yes. Okay, it's in the same place. Yeah, and huh. I was like, I went even back to that. Uh, I think it was the March script that we both have, and I was like, okay, that that's where the Yuri Geller scene, like it was, kind of re-added because it says like March '76 to October '76, like handwritten in to October, and that Yuri Geller scene wasn't even written until like October of '76, I think. Maybe they needed just a transitional moment between when they meet and then when they when they because it would have seemed weird for her to be like, oh, hi, father, let's try this crazy machine. And then all this crazy stuff happens. The Yuri Geller scene is actually in a different spot in that script, which oh, okay. has it her she's dreaming 
then she gets up, then she and Sharon watch the TV show, then she go, it goes into that stuff. Though it's interesting that they say that the introduction of the synchronizer and then her actually putting on the synchronizer is the next day. There's nothing in between there, but it just there's like a scene transition, which is absolutely bizarre because it seems like it's all, it should be the same day. But the other thing that's interesting, though, too, and I'm sorry to get in the weeds really far here, is... So much of this movie is about Reagan and her memories, and then also about Reagan and telling the truth. And one weird thing that they do is that in almost every single draft of the screenplays that are out there, and I think you know there are at least like 11, uh, if memory serves, that we have her either dreaming about Father Marin or we have her dreaming about Kokomo, and we'll talk about Kokomo. And um, I'm going to love saying Kokomo so much. <laughs> we have her dreaming, and then that happens before she goes and sees Jean, and Jean asks her point blank, have you been dreaming? And she lies to her face or his face in some instances and says, no, I haven't. So it's like, but the final version that we see now she is not lying, but she should be lying. She should be a liar in that case. We should already know by that time that she has been having dreams and that she does remember this stuff. And it's 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 really weird because at, uh, so much of this movie to me feels like this whole idea of, and I, I really like the interpretations of The Exorcist where they talk about the demonic possession, quote unquote, could easily be a stand in for molestation. It could be that you know, this whole idea of like she's been having, she's been being molested, like especially by the director character. And uh, it's like, okay, yeah, that's easy to see that some of these things that are being acted out are kind of the same as that. And then when it comes to this film and this whole idea of memories and recovered memories, it's like, well, that could be the whole idea of like, is it good for her to remember these things or is it bad for her to remember these things? Is it like this Freudian thing where she needs to look at this stuff in the past or should we just leave the past in the past? Well, even Dr. Tuscan talks about this. I mean, she, she, in the first scene where she's talking to Richard Burton's character, uh, Father Lamont, she's talking about how three people died and she doesn't want Reagan to remember all at once because she's afraid that Reagan will feel guilty because she feels that Reagan had a, a part in it because she's being the logical, you know, the logician here. You know, obviously there was nothing supernatural and, you know, but, you know, something awful happened and Reagan probably has, if she wasn't directly involved, then she was at least tangentially involved and she has some guilt and she's trying to protect, you know, her from, from dealing with it all at once. I mean, yeah, I mean, we, we can talk about molestation. Molestation is a trauma and, and it's a sexual trauma. And this is kind of, I mean, I think one of the reasons this movie in the way that it does work. My biggest criticism of this movie is that it does not seem to take the trauma of Reagan as seriously as I feel it should. I think it would have been a lot more powerful. And this is the one big, you were talking about like the one big pet peeve. I think if they had just, if they had not made Reagan all sweetness and light and kind of like the, the force of good, the good locust or whatever, and, and made her so incredibly like sweet if they had made her kind of like Angelina Jolie and Girl Interrupted, like like traumatized, haunted, you know, maybe prone to self-harm, introverted, and she's under care to try and figure out what this is, but she doesn't want to talk about it. I mean, that to me 
is a much more powerful movie, right? Just right there. Just like thinking about like, okay, this is a, you know, as a 12 year old, she was, she went through this horrific experience. Even if we're going to just buy that it was entirely supernatural, we're just going to buy the whole conceit. That's a trauma. That's a post traumatic thing. And, you know, say they have a therapy that's a synchronizer. Say they want to go in and like look at that. I mean, that could bring up horrific things. And if it's supernatural, then it's even more horrific. I think that's the one thing I think this movie kind of went inexorably wrong in making Linda Blair not traumatized and deep and, and getting through because then she would have had an arc because at the end, after she, you know, wards away the locusts, it would have, she would have gone from A to B. In this, she's just good and she's protecting everyone by lying because she doesn't want her mother to worry and she wants to just be a normal kid and she's lying and lying because she actually remembers everything. But what's her arc? She doesn't have one. It's all about the priest again, just like it was in The Exorcist. It's really about Lamont and his arc. And uh, for for what it's worth, Tuscan has an arc too. It's not very far. It's just basically like, I believe in science. And at the end, she's like, you know, the world isn't ready for this. You know, I buy it all. I don't, I don't want to get too far away, but it's, that's the one thing that I can talk about with this movie that's like, where they just went wrong. They did not address her trauma with enough weight and enough seriousness. And I think that's partially, you know, that's partially Borman and his point of view and, and Pallenberg. And it's just partially kind of the point of view of the, the film and the series. It's very, it's, they're both of these movies and I, probably the rest of them too. I've seen them. Uh, but you know, certainly the first two are made very much from a male perspective. Very, very, very male. And all of Borman's movies really are made from a male perspective. I mean, he's deliverance, certainly point blank, which is one of his greatest, greatest triumphs. Incredibly male, incredibly like, you know, and, and he, I think he mellows later in his work with Beyond Rangoon and Where the Heart Is, which is a really kind of, I don't know. Mike, did you watch Where the Heart Is? If I have, it's been a long damn time. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's Dabney Coleman and his kids and Uma Thurman's in it. And Oh, wow. Yeah. I remember watching the preview remember that? when I worked at a movie theater. Yeah. It's a very – it got panned and it was a bomb, but it's a really interesting little movie. And it's not quite as, you know – you know, testosterone-y as like <laughs> his earlier movies. But then he also has The General, which is a wonderful movie and it's very hard to find. And everybody out there who has not seen or heard of The General, I think it was 2002, Brendan Gleeson, John Voight. It's black and white. It's Cinemascope. It is absolutely wonderful. It is an amazing film. I want this movie to be rediscovered. For me, The Exorcist, and this is like something that I kind of engaged with the first time I saw it, but I always assumed that The Exorcist was a film about child abuse. To kind of have it be a film about, and and I definitely agree, I think it's about every other character except for Reagan, which makes sense on a certain level because I think it would be really difficult to write a horror film about child abuse from a child's perspective. I mean, something like In a Glass Cage does that and, you know, is notoriously difficult for people to watch and so on and so forth. But this film, it's always baffled me how, like you were saying, every other character, even people who get like little snippets of scenes, seem to have an arc and Reagan doesn't. She's just this like flat, unchanging kind of ray of sunshine in a way that totally not believable, but 
for some reason works for me because of her charisma and because I think they do such an interesting job of exploring Lamont's issue and his personal tension. But yeah, I've seen all the films in the series multiple times and they are all extremely masculine films. And this is definitely no exception. That they dress her in white diaphanous gowns throughout so much of this movie is crazy no (laughs) No bra my god that was so distracting like when she was uh sleepwalking and it's just like my goodness her boobs are just so on display right here it's like why even bother wearing a gown right now the film deals with sexuality in such a weird way and like a lot of borman's other films aren't shy about exploring sex and nudity and so on and so forth. But in this one, it's like it wants to go there, but it also seems to wish the character was a younger child than she actually is. They do these weird things where, at least in my perspective, in the first movie, Pazuzu is very gender neutral, but in this movie, Pazuzu is almost explicitly female. At least that's how it seemed, like they were using an actor in makeup who, who was a woman. And there's the sequence at the end where there's sort of the good Reagan and the Pazuzu Reagan. And it just seemed like such a predictable thing for a movie to do. I mean, you have something like William Girdler's film, Abby from around the same time, which I love, which is basically a black exploitation ripoff of the exorcist. But the way it deals with her possession, at least in part is that it makes her really aggressively sexual. And so it just seems strange to me that, Borman sort of hints that he's going to go down that path and at least explore what that means to Reagan, who is now a teenager on the more mature side of puberty. But it never goes there. It just doesn't make her wear a bra. Yeah, the whole idea of Reagan turning from a girl into a woman in the first film. And of course, we can talk about like menstrual blood and all of this kind of stuff. But if so much of it feels like we need to get these guys in here to turn her back into the sweet little girl, it's like daddy's little girl ain't a girl no more when it comes to the exorcist. Let's get her back into that state and desexualize her and get her you know, back to that, that cute little girl we saw at the beginning. And by this time, the monster's out of the box, you know, so she's already blossoming into the to full womanhood, but she's still kind of like at that weird crossroads where it's like, is she a child still or is she a woman? And she stands out from the rest of the kids at Tuscan's office so much because she seems like a woman, but so many of the other patients there seem like kids. I mean, we have like little Dana Plato, who's like, what? 12, 13 years old at this point, and it's just like, all right, this is a little girl, and Reagan seems like, it almost seems like she could work there. The way that they have her sort of moving around the patients and interacting with them in certain scenes, it seems like she's a nurse checking on people and sort of giving people this, like, encouragement or approval, and then she moves on to someone else. It just, she's very kind of out of the world of the film. Ethereal. Yeah. I led us up to the synchronization scene. And I think this is another issue that the movie has is because this scene, the sequence of the synchronizer, the first time it is for lack of a better term, it's the money shot. This is like the thing of this movie. Like when people remember this movie, they probably other than Lucas, they probably remember this because it is so 
fucking beautiful the way that they shoot this and it was this technical wonder that they did this and they put it like at the end of act one and i'm like no 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 no. this should be like way later in the movie or this same technique should be used until we're sick of seeing this technique because it is done so well so we have tuscan and reagan going into synchronization and something bad happens, and we're not made privy to what that is. And then Lamont jumps in, so now it's Lamont and Tuscan, and he's kind of in Reagan's memory, which is an interesting thing. And then they bring up this effect, this thing called they called a ghost glass, where it was basically like another room that was built right next to the room that we're seeing. And I'm not going to go into all the technical stuff. There's an amazing article, I think, an American cinematographer talking about it, but they had to like do everything backwards in one room because it was actually a reflection and you could change the opacity of what you were seeing. It was basically like a double exposure, but it was happening live at the time. So you had a woman that was dressed up like Reagan, the possessed Reagan, and you had Max von Sydow in another room and they are interacting while you have Belinda Beatty, you've got um, Linda Blair, you've got Louise Fletcher and Richard Burton all in another room, and all of this stuff is being shot at the same time. And it's great, this whole idea of them fighting over Louise Fletcher, Dr. Tuscan's heart, and they're going back and forth, and it's kind of a memory from one part, and it's a live thing at the other part. It's this tremendous sequence. But like I said, I think it comes a little too early in the proceedings. But it's so gorgeous. like. It's one of those things where when I first saw the film, I was so surprised that that was where they were taking the plot was this sort of very science heavy idea, science fiction-y really idea of, okay, now we're going to get into each other's brains. But to follow that, to actually follow that through with some of that, some of those incredible shots and like say what you want about this film, but I don't think anyone could, could could deny that some of the shots and some of the set pieces are just absolutely incredible, especially the stuff he does with glass and reflections, like so gorgeous. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, basically what this comes down to, if you've seen the film, there are, there are, you know, these superimpositions that are exact. I mean, literally like, you know, there's a hand over a hand. I mean, stuff that you could not possibly have done in an optical you just can't do it. You couldn't have lined it up. You can do it in digital, but we were a few, de- you know, they were a few decades away from digital. So when they did this ghost class, this is stuff that the the um, uh, the archers, who am I thinking of, Palin Pressburger, uh, used to do. I mean, this was basically Borman basically went way old school, and he was very proud of this. It was, it's basically one way glass. So if you turn the lights up. Off to the side, like at a 90 degree angle, you have one set and you have one set in front of the camera, one set off at a 90 degree angle. You turn the lights up on the 90 degree angle, then it's like a double exposure. He uses this in Excalibur. He uses this in a lot of, you know, uh, subsequent things. And, and it's, it's an, an amazing practical old school effect. But when I showed people this film for the first time, I had to remind them. I was just like, almost every effect in this movie is practical. Almost every single effect in this movie is practical. There are very few opticals in this movie. Um, even the locusts was a practical effect. The locusts were made from iron filings on a glass table with a magnet underneath. That's how they swirled the, the locusts. I mean, this, this was all so – all the tricks of this movie were so wonderfully old school. 
And Borman was a huge fan of Powell and Pressburger. Borman was a huge fan of that whole kind of British, you know, filmmaking style where they did all this stuff. And Hollywood, you know, at the time, especially in the 70s and the 60s, it was all about optical printers. You know, you did your effects that way. You did, you know, there were all sorts of like neat ways you could do it. But the ghost glass, it's, it's very powerful because it's just so simple and yet it works so beautifully. Yeah, there's something about it that reminds me a little bit of German Expressionism and kind of the ways that those horror films would deal with flashbacks and memories and dream sequences. Like, it looks so much more like that to me than like any of those other 70s horror movies. The way that they do the doubling of Reagan's face with the demon's face, and they do that a couple more times, but it's really done effectively here. And then Father Marin's face with Louise Fletcher's face. It's just fantastic that they're doing these things and just seeing her gasping for breath as we see Max von Sydow gasping for breath. To see Reagan's face with the demon's face, which is, you know, it's a pretty good double for Reagan sometimes so it's a really neat because you kind of see those marks all over her face like you saw in the first film so it's a really nice effect that we're doing there and then the rest of the time that they're using the synchronizer it's mostly like a kind of a way to introduce flashbacks now some of those flashbacks like you were saying are really beautifully done and there's some great things going on but they don't necessarily use the synchronizer to take you into the memories as much as you might have done in this first one there's not necessarily that same interaction like we don't have the idea of you know richard burton finally like saying in the name of god and then the the hand stops trying to grab at louise fletcher's heart and i found it interesting that in so many of the early drafts of the screenplay that this was actually you know i talked about kinderman and his investigation and the original part of this the original drafts of this was that they wanted to know what happened to burke dennings and when they go into this synchronizer Gene, who is a man at this point, his neck starts to twist around like Denning's neck, you know, how Denning's had his head completely twisted around. And it's this whole idea of like they're trying to find out what happened uh, to Burke Dennings because we never see that death in the movie, uh, in the, the, the original Exorcist. So it was kind of a neat way of doing that. So it wasn't necessarily the, an investigation of what happened to Father Marin. Uh, it was more an investigation, at least on Kinderman's part, of what happened to, to Burke Dennings. Which is such a strange sort of path that they could have gone down but didn't because if you think about it in contrast to Exorcist 3, that's it is a horror movie, but it's also a police procedural, essentially. And yeah. those kind of questions that I would have assumed would, would have been addressed here are addressed there. And so it's just so interesting that the synchronizer plays such a big role in the film, but doesn't really address any of the kind of rational questions or rational plot threads that you think it would. And Something that one of you might know the answer to is what do you think their influences were for the synchronizer? Because it seems to kind of come out of nowhere. Pallenberg told me when I interviewed him, he, he basically said that there had been actual research doing something like this, putting two people into a hypnotic state and seeing if they can somehow empathize with each other or some kind of like transference of, of something. The synchronizer to me, I mean, I, and, and I, I'm theorizing here, 
it's the melding of the two things. The two forces in this movie are science versus faith. And that's the whole thing. It's like, you know, basically, are you going to believe science or are you going to believe faith? Or is there a melding between the two? And Borman passionately wants to argue that there is, that they kind of are both in seeking the truth. They are both on the same side. They're not actually at war with each other. And one can reveal the other. And the synchronizer is, is kind of the MacGuffin of this movie to kind of bring us into, you know, this is science, but this is also faith. There's like supernatural stuff, but there's also science stuff. The science brings forth the supernatural stuff. It's all part of the same whole. Which I think is interesting to me to think about in terms of Borman's other films, because it seems like with Sargas and with Excalibur, it, it seems like he spends a lot of time exploring that kind of theme where it's these two forces that seem to be at odds with each other and you learn throughout a narrative process that they're not really at odds and that they have to sort of be united in order for this sort of world to get back on course. I mean, well, it's drama. It's like, you know, basically, you know, Excalibur, what is that about? I mean, it's good versus evil, really. Zardoz, what is that about? That's about, you know, the, the kind of brut- brutal man, the brutals, and the kind of higher super ego, sexless, you know, the aspirational, clean-shaven humans. I don't know what, what you call them. What, I don't remember what they're called. You need both. You need the male and the female. You need the good and the evil. You need both to actually have something to go for. I mean, you know, the biggest takeaway from The Heretic is, does great good attract great evil. And that goes back to the book of Job. And there's something to be said for that kind of like matter antimatter view that the duality of so many things, science versus religion, good versus evil, you know, and how they interact and how they swirl about. I guess I hadn't thought about it quite in that clear of a way in terms of this film, but I think that's something that William Peter Blatty also tries to do in Exorcist 3 and in something like the Ninth Configuration, where he looks at these two opposing forces in a way that I don't think comes across in the film version of The Exorcist. I mean, the film version of The Exorcist, the first film, to me, it's about Karis coming from a place of a lack of faith coming to a place of absolute faith. I mean, at the end of the film, he sacrifices himself because he believes and he believes in good and he believes that this is what he can do. This is his purpose. You know, he comes from this place where the world is falling apart and his mother is dying and he can't help her and all of this work that he'd done in his life and all of the, all of the, the words that he said and all the counsel that he's given to other priests. What good is it done? He doesn't see any good in it. To me, Linda Blair is, is kind of a prop in the first movie. She's, you know, she doesn't really have a character. Uh, she's just put through a horrible thing. Ellen Burstyn doesn't really have much of a, 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 an arc. She's fantastic, an amazing performance, but I mean, you know, it's, it's, she's basically there to care and be horrified. And, you know, at the end you could say maybe she started out kind of a non-religious atheist and ends up maybe not being so much, but I mean, the, the movie is about Karis like front to back and the heretic exorcist two, you know, whereas it could have, and maybe I would argue should have been more about Reagan. 
it's ostensibly about Lamont and it's basically the same arc. It's basically coming from someone, you know, all he sees is evil. He tells Henri in the first scenes of the movie. And by the end, you know, he has to jump on a bed with wind machines and locusts running around and rip out a, a, a heart and try to make it out of the building. And depending on which cut you saw, he does or he doesn't. And then, you know, he walks off into the sunset to fight evil See, that should have been the TV series. You call those people at Fox. They, they messed up. They should have just, they should have taken it from the last frame of Exorcist to the Heretic started there. And it should have been called Wings of the Locust. <laughs> yeah, Lamont is the titular heretic, you know, and, and it's, we don't necessarily know that because there are times depending on what cut you watch that we could be thinking that Marin is the heretic. Well, they, they come out and say that at the beginning. They, you know, he even says, like, you know, and I know in, in, in scripts, in, uh, in some of the scripts, they, they go into who's the heretic, who's the heretic. The whole point with Lamont is, is he too fascinated by the power of evil? Like, is he, is he so, is he romanced by the power of evil? And that's his whole thing. And, you know, he is for a while toward the end and then he kind of goes crazy and slams Linda Blair up against a cabinet or whatever he does. And, you know, and then he realizes that that's not the way to do it, and he comes to his senses. Thank goodness for all of us, really. He kind of gives in to evil a little too easily in this, because he just has one question, which is, where's Kokomo? And then she ends up being able to tell him, and now he's suddenly brushed by the wings of the locust. But we're jumping way ahead. We're... <laughs> <laughs> no, don't be don't be judgy. Don't be judgy. We all have our we all have our own journeys in life. We all have our own Kokomo, yeah. We all have to walk across a spiked thing with a dude in a locust outfit spitting tomatoes out of his mouth. I mean, come on. Who hasn't been there? And when they show that shot of James Earl Jones from the side and his jaw starts moving like that, I'm not expecting a plum or a tomato or anything to come out of his mouth. I'm expecting him to turn into a snake and this to be a new Conan film. Oh, yeah, man. The tomato I... was the last thing I expected. Like, if you had played me that scene the first time and paused right before he spit it out and said, okay, what do you think he does now? Spitting out a tomato would not have been on my list of options. Or or an apple or whatever it was. I, I always called it a tomato, but it might it might be an apple. Who knows? But I have to say, this is one of the reasons I think this film is brilliant because there are so many moments. I mean, you can mock it. You can think it's silly. And truly, this movie goes from genius to silly within like frames. Literally, you can be in the same scene. Something amazing can happen and then something incredibly silly can happen. One of the things about this film, besides the fact that it's whole unique in almost every way there are scenes that are so dreamlike and so hypnotic and the scene where he's in there with with james earl jones and it suddenly goes slow motion he spits out the you know apple plum tomato whatever it is and it gets spiked and then and then he like you know gets his foot impaled and then he wakes up on the floor of a locust center where he gets an inexplicable tour by scientist kokomo i mean it makes I, and I will argue this. It makes emotional sense. It makes no literal sense whatsoever. Not even in the world of this film does that make sense. But emotionally, when I see that, I'm like, I get it. I get what they're like. It's somehow it's, it's in a weird kind of David Lynchy way. Like one, also one of, one of the films I love a lot. I, I'll just pull this out. Like Lost Highway makes no literal sense 
No literal sense at all. But emotionally, it tells an emotional narrative. And the emotional narrative of that film is incredibly consistent. And it's absolutely sensical. It makes sense every step of the way. You cannot say in that film... Is Balthazar Getty Bill Pullman? Like, did they, is, is, are they different people? Who is Patricia Arquette in any given moment? But emotionally, and the emotional arc of that character, it completely makes sense. And I will argue that Exorcist 2, for any of its flaws, and especially not the recut version, the original US version, the first version they did before the panic set in when they recut it, and we can get to that, because it was, I'm sure, horrific to do that. It makes absolute emotional sense. It's goofy. It's, it's kind of out there, but it's extremely consistent in what it wants to say. And it's extremely passionate. It's in a very passionate movie. I would totally agree with that. And I think that really sums up why I love the film because I tend to like things that don't always make logical sense, like Lynch's films, like some of the earlier surrealist films, certainly Jean Cocteau, where you have these images that surprise you, and sometimes they make you laugh, sometimes they're horrifying, but they're always kind of unexpected, but do make that emotional sense. And I totally feel that way about this film. Even when <laughs> even when things are hilarious, I, I think especially Reagan and Lamont, Everything they do makes sense to me on some level. Yeah, absolutely. Or The Shining. I mean, there are a lot of movies that you can you can point to, or you know, The End of Body Double. If you want to go there, I mean, like there there are a lot of movies you can point to that kind of break the their own rules of reality. Except they do it in a way that you you have to go with. You can't think about. You can't be like. You can't. You don't want to be knocked out of the movie. And if you took a step back and looked at it, it'd be like, okay, that makes no sense. But if you're in the movie and you're buying the movie and you're buying the emotions of the movie, it makes complete sense. Like, you know, we don't talk about Lloyd the bartender. Like, why is Lloyd there? Why is Lloyd saying what he's doing? You know, it's like, why are they in a bathroom talking about, you know, who's the caretaker? Is it Delbert Grady? Is it Charles Grady? Who's, who, who is it? You know, you could go on and on with great movies, but you, you need a genius. A, a genuine genius to be able to pull that off. And that's what, you know, I think this movie is. And that's why I think Borman is like one of those filmmakers that's in that, you know, top 50 echelon of, of greatest filmmakers ever. And I think this is why everyone who loves Exorcist 2 is secretly already friends because, <laughs> <laughs> because we don't all need that kind of narrative linear consistency as long as there's the, you know, emotional thread that winds its way through. Well, you have to, I think you have to have a coherent vision. And I think that, you know, for and the thing that I passionately argue about this film, even when I can't defend parts of this film, and certainly there are parts of this film I cannot defend. I mean, there is a coherent intentional vision here. And I think that the reason that, you know, I'm making a documentary about this film, and we can talk about that in a bit, is that it, it was so sincere and so passionate and so exactly, it was not... It was not interfered with. It was so exactly what they wanted that to come out of this and spend like, you know, two plus years of your life working passionately on this movie to have it be so repudiated, so rejected. There were riots at the movie theaters in Los Angeles. They threw stuff at the screens. It was such a disaster when this movie came out that they literally had to recut the ending. They were recutting the ending to have Burton dying instead of Burton living and changing out the final reels of the prints. Six theaters at a time. They were manually going out and recutting the reels. 
because that was how badly this movie was taken. Can you imagine the biggest studio film of the year having such a bad reaction that they like went back and changed the ending in week two? You can't, I can't imagine. It's also hard to imagine that it didn't completely tank his career. Well, I think that's a whole, I mean, I could talk wax, I could talk for a while about that, but I mean, I think the real, like one of the, again, one of the main reasons I'm making a documentary about this is that it's about failure. It's about like you passionately believed in this and it still failed. And yet what did Borman do? Borman like, you know, kind of like proverbially went to the desert. He, he considered giving up filmmaking. He was shattered. That's a, that's a direct quote. He said he was shattered by the experience. And, you know, he tried to put together, uh, the next thing he tried to put together was Lord of the Rings. No lie. He tried to put it together at UA and it didn't happen. And he, he is retrospectively very happy it didn't happen because he was going to have 10 year olds with fake facial hair looped. I'm, I'm not kidding. Looped with adult male voices to be hobbits. They were trying to do, they were trying to figure out ways to make hobbits really. And, uh, they did, they, thankfully, it did not happen. And what happened was he was working on Merlin, which became Excalibur, with Rospo Pallenberg. I want to say they started working on it even before The Heretic, but I could be wrong about that. So basically, I mean, but the Arthurian legends was something that obsessed Borman from an early age. And if you read his uh, his uh, autobiography, Adventures of a Suburban Boy, which is a fantastic book, by the way. Uh, and if you're interested in filmmaking or John Borman, or, or whatever, anything like that. Uh, it's a fantastic book. He talks about growing up in the Blitz in London, but he was always obsessed with the Arthurian legend. And how do you make this? How do you collapse an entire movie into this? And that's what became Excalibur. And that is literally what saved his career. He was, you know, the A-list of the A-list in Hollywood. And after The Heretic, he basically went back to Ireland and he had to get largely, I think, European money for uh, Excalibur. It was an $11 million budget, so it wasn't a small budget, but he said it was at least as arduous and, and difficult a shoot as The Heretic. So I can't imagine how exhausted this man must have been by 1981, but it was a critical and commercial success and it saved him. And from there, he made The, uh, the Emerald Forest and he made then Hope and Glory, for which he was nominated for the second time for Best Picture and Best Director and won lots and lots of accolades. So, you know, it, it, I think it says something about taking risks. I think that, you know, yeah, the heretic could have destroyed his career, like, you know, like Chimino for Heaven's Gate for all intents and purposes, you know, but, uh, and, but the other story of the heretic is what you touched on before. Never again, between this and New York, New York, and 1941, and Sorcerer, and a few other movies that we could talk about, Bogdanovich, Altman, the studios would not, and, and ending with Heaven's Gate, the studios would not let directors just do whatever they wanted with lots of money ever again. And then became the 80s. Like the, the, the 70s and the, the age of auteur cinema where you could do movies like that, where you could do, you know, uh, I mean, you can say what you will about Sorcerer. It's certainly audacious, but it, it was a huge catastrophe financially. Apocalypse Now would be the granddaddy of this list, except it did not tank. It was a hit and it, and it, I believe, broke even on its initial theatrical thing, which is a, an enormous success because it went so far over budget. Nobody thought it was going to not lose money. But yeah, those kinds of risks, it, it ended. They start, you know, you could say it started in about 67 with Bonnie and Clyde and that wonderful book by Mark Harris, Pictures at a Revolution. He talks about it. 
but it ended, you know, Exorcist Two: The Heretic was one of the movies that helped end it. Like New York, New York, 1941, Heaven's Gate, Sorcerer, for to some extent, Apocalypse Now as well. Even though it was a hit, it was, you know, a cautionary tale. Which is such a shame. And I think you see that kind of backlash, especially in terms of horror sequels, in something like Alien 3, where David Fincher tried to do something totally different with the series and just met obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. And they took the movie away from him. I mean, if you watch, if you watch the quadrilogy with his original rough cut, I argue his original rough cut is actually a really, really good movie. It's like, what is it? Two and a half hours long. It's really, it's like 40 minutes more in it or something crazy. It's like, it's, and it's so much better, but it's also so different. It's not that kind. It's, it's like with this where he tries to tell a different story and he tries to have it almost be a different genre and all these sort of complicated kind of spiritual themes and themes of redemption and, yeah, I mean, the the thing that I'd read about Alien 3 was that it was an AIDS allegory, which I think that probably there was at least some thought to that. But, I mean, but but Fincher also, I mean, he was 27 at the time, which, I mean, I can't imagine facing that. Yeah, recovering from that. as I can't, I can't imagine. <laughs> but, but at the same time, I mean, you were part of a series already that had not one movie that was hugely successful, but two, and two in two kind of you know, sibling genres. They weren't the same genre and they weren't really the same kind of universe. Like the the universe of Alien is this kind of like, you know, dilapidated space trucker kind of thing. And Aliens, you have Marines and it's not quite as grimy. You know, it's like, it's, you know, but Alien 3, they, you know, kind of like, first of all, it's not even in space. Second of all, well, actually, most of Aliens is in space if you want to get technical, too, I guess. Um, but, you know, they doubled down on the grime. I mean, Alien 3 is just kind of like – it's an extremely, like, depressing movie. Like, everything about it is, like, decay, despair, sacrifice, death. I mean, you know, I can see why it didn't connect. But I still say they should have they should have just released the original version because the recut is just – I mean, it went from like an A minus B plus to like a C minus. I mean, that was, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I guess you can argue that the, the theatrical version is okay. I don't know what you guys think of it, but Fincher's version is so superior. It's just almost absurd. The theatrical version is not okay. <laughs> <laughs> I seem to remember there was a podcast that somebody did on that movie. Um, Oh, did you guys do Alien 3? I missed that one. <laughs> I feel bad now. Oh, no. Okay, I've outed myself as not as not having heard every single episode. I've heard a lot of them, though. <laughs> That's I think we actually have listened to that one. You do have so damn many episodes. <laughs> You're extremely prolific. I'll tell you, it is not well-liked amongst the Alien 3 fans, because I made a mistake and said that there was CGI when there wasn't CGI. There was puppetry that just looked really bad. So, my bad. Oh, is that the the last chestburster? The it's actually one of them that goes around the hallway. It was a puppet that was just kind of put in there. Yeah, it was bad. The scene I'm thinking of is they so in every movie they they try to have the alien turn into something different or do something different, and yeah. there's that awful scene where it's like the dog becomes yeah. alien, and it's it's like you. I don't even know how that made it into any cut because it, it's so awful. Well, but I think they wanted the alien to be like a running alien. I, I will say this. This is the first POV alien shot I've ever seen, though, with that weird anamorphic kind of distorted 
running down the hall, wide angle, weird shot. That's, I mean, that's the one takeaway I remember from them. Well, there are a number of takeaways I remember from that movie, but, uh, I thought it was really kind of weird that Fincher, uh, and I'm a huge Fincher fan, so don't get me wrong, decided to kind of give us, you know, POV alien, kind of like Michael Myers or something, a sprinting xenomorph Michael Myers. It was misguided, but I think like Borman, it was maybe an attempt to do something different. I mean, Pallenberg says that they wanted, they did not want to compete with Friedkin. And I think that you can see that, you know, you, and plus, I mean, Borman is not Friedkin. They're very, very, very different filmmakers. Even when Borman is like kind of, you know, verite style, like the general is verite style, deliverance is verite style for the most part. And, and Friedkin, can I even think of something where he's fantastical? I can't think of anything. I'm just, I'm, I'm just not remember. Well, Sorcerer, okay, the, the end of the trippy ending of Sorcerer, maybe. I mean, that's, that's the one thing I can think of where Roy Scheider's, you know, blue and superimposed on a truck or whatever. Or, or, oh, wait, Al Pacino taking poppers. I got it. There you go. Yeah. On the dance floor doing the, 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 you know, like no gay man has ever reacted that way to poppers in, and, and this is a gay man talking. So it's like, there's no, like, nobody reacts that way to poppers. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Al. No, no one does. And that, but I think that's what makes him so, it, it's almost like he betrays his inability to be fantastical in any setting, whether, whether it's cruising or the exorcist or even, and I, I love them, but his like early kind of more musical movies, they're just they're not whimsical at all in the way that I think Borman is frequently whimsical. Well, Borman, I always felt he was looking for a dream narrative. All of his films, and he talks about this, they're like dreams. You know, they're like dreams you, you're, you're in. And, and he says that cinema is like that. You know, cinema is like a dream. And Friedkin, you know, I, 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 I haven't heard him talk about this, but I can't imagine he would entirely agree. Just the way that he approaches films, like you see Boys in the Band or French Connection or even like most of Cruising. It's like, you know, there are, certainly there are parts that are kind of dreamlike. I'm remembering in Cruising the, the whole killing in the, uh, the, the, well, it's not a video booth because it's before video, but the film booth, that whole thing. You know, I know we're far afield from the heretic, which is one of my favorite topics, but it's like the thing about Borman is he is a fantastical filmmaker. He is a filmmaker who makes dreams on screen and Friedkin is not that kind of filmmaker. He's a different kind of filmmaker. And he's, you know, the power of the exorcist or the French connection or boys in the band or even most of Sorcerer is like you feel like you're there. You know, he's, he's giving you this information with a minimal amount of, of directorial flourish. Borman replicated African villages on sound stages. It was a dream watching this movie. So the difference stylistically in these movies, and we should talk about the color palette because that's just amazing what they did with this film, but they can't be underestimated or, or underappreciated or, or undervalued. Uh, I mean, just, they're so stylistically different, these two movies. Sam, you mentioned the mirrors in this, and the mirrors are everywhere. And of course, you know, we've talked about the dichotomy of the science and the spirit and, you know, the faith and, and reason and all these things. And just the doubling happens so much in this movie. And it, after watching these films so many times, I started to realize that, 
you always have to go to a location twice. There also has to be two times for almost everything. So he doesn't go back and, and to the Vatican once. There's two times. You know, you don't go to Africa once. There's at least two times. You know, there's almost every single thing has two things, two times that it happens. And then you get those great, I mean, God, the, the apartment that Reagan lives in with those crazy, like the end of trouble man kind of refractoring mirrors where people are split into many, many things like Louise Fletcher is just like all of these people all of a sudden. And that weird sculpture that she has on the roof where she keeps all the doves. I mean, that's, all mirrors all over the place so it's just mirrors like mad and then the other thing the other great uh theme of this film that we have and it kind of reminds me of you know i talked about on the zardoz episode where borman's like yeah i kind of had too many things going on and there's kind of almost too many things with this one because flying and air travel i mean that's another major theme i mean how many times do we see the fuselage of an airplane in this movie? Not even. I have to, but I have to say that shot, that that second unit shot of that plane taking off with that music cue is just. You have okay. This is really stupid, and but every filmmaker out there will appreciate this. You have never seen a more beautiful second unit shot than than this plane taking off and i can't it's like and did you and the scene where like you know uh tuscan is like helping the the victim of the auto accident on the way to the airport and you tilt up and there's an airplane flying overhead you like watch that it's like you kind of take it for granted i'm like do you know how many minutes they probably waited or how many takes that took to get a plane to fly overhead on cue a jet plane it's like the more i watch this movie the more i appreciate it i know i probably sound like a lunatic but it's it's really no, no, because I think there's at least like three or four shots of underneath the plane, and you get to see that over and over again. It's kind of an interesting thing that they have that so many times. That, of course, it's a dove figurine that she picks up in Tuscan's office, and that she keeps doves up on the on the roof. And she looks at it very intently. She's like, "I'm looking at this dove." It's like, there's nothing wrong with me looking at the dove. It's very, very important. No, but I mean, you know, you have the planes versus the flying on the wings of the demon. It's the same as like the practical world and the spiritual world. And the whole point of this movie is that they're one. They're the same. They're over on top of each other. And to deny either one is to deny half of existence. It's also so amazing to me to think about how... A lot, not all of them, certainly, but a lot of horror movies are typically set in these kind of enclosed locations for a number of reasons, because usually a lot of them are lower budget, but also just to sort of be able to ramp up the tension. And this movie is like the travelogue of horror films. It's like everybody constantly going somewhere like how many different countries is it set in and there's the train ride sequence at the end where the conductor thinks she's picking his pocket they wanted to shoot and and mike i think you did research on this too they wanted to shoot all over the world and they were set up to do it and it was only because i think there was unrest in morocco or something they were going to shoot there or uh where was it yeah they were going to shoot everywhere and then the decision was made no no we're going to do this in Burbank in our sound stages. And they took over those sound stages for most of 1976. They, they took over, they built a, you know, an African rock church, you know, cliff church. They built a rock chimney. They built the, the room that gets ripped apart, like at the end. 
They built that, that whole stairs. The stairs, the famous stairs, they had to replicate on a soundstage because they didn't have the right to, to shoot there. It's just so incredible that they couldn't get permission. So thought, well, we could cut this out, but no, we're just going to build the entire thing ourselves. <laughs> he had, he didn't quite have a blank check. I mean, but he had the biggest budget in Warner brothers history check. I mean, basically the, the one thing about this movie that was against it, you were talking about the, the cards stacked against it. I don't actually think it was audience expectations. Certainly there was a lot of that, but I think it was the fact that what happened was John Calley who was the head of Warner Brothers, got it underway. Like they, they, he started to go out, you know, for a sequel. They started talking about it in 1975. They started getting ideas. They got a two-page treatment from the, the, this acclaimed Broadway playwright who had never written a screenplay but named William Goodhart. And that was what Lord Borman in. And Borman signed on, what, like October of 75 or September or something? Work with Goodhart. But basically, they had no big movie for 1977 and John Calley was fired at some point uh, in, in pre-production in early 1976. And there was an agent, uh, I believe from CAA, but I could be wrong about that named Guy McElwain who became the head of Warner brothers in Calley's place. So basically Guy McElwain walks in, this movie's already in pre-production. It's a sequel to the exorcist, which is their biggest budget movie, ever, biggest grossing movie ever by a lot. And they have no big movie for 1977. So he's just like, guess what? This is our movie for the summer of 77. And Borman was like, well, that means we need to start shooting like now. And he's just like, yeah. So basically they were rushed in production without a finished script that everybody was happy with. They were rushed and, and it didn't help matters when Borman and others became ill later in the shoot because in the African sets, they brought they brought in a lot of earth that from um, from this uh, the valley up here in in Los Angeles and Borman got very very sick with a very high fever he was actually in the intensive care the entire production had to shut down for a month and f I think three or four other ca uh, crew members also got it it was from the dust that they brought in and they got what's called valley fever it's a fungus that basically goes into your lungs. And there's no treatment for it. It just makes you miserable and gives you a high fever. And they had to do like lumbar puncture. They had to do all the, I mean, it was awful. In fact, one of the more amusing anecdotes that Borman told me was they initially, because he had a rash, they initially said, oh, that's syphilis. So Borman literally had to go back to his wife and say, uh, they say I have syphilis. And, you know, so that didn't go over very well. But then he was actually diagnosed after he was misdiagnosed with that. And he had to spend, uh, I think at least a week or two in ICU at Cedar Sinai and they shut down production. That was an insurance call. So this movie that was already rushed trying to get done was now super rushed because they had no other movie for the summer of 77. It wasn't pushed. There were no reshoots. Nobody from Warner brothers said, Oh my God, we have a problem when they started seeing like the rough cuts come in. According to Borman, he wasn't even aware that they even saw many cuts before the film was released because they were so rushed to try to make their June release date that they were mixing up until the very last minute. They were literally sending out final reels uh, because there were a lot of miniature effects work that they were doing in Ardmore Studios in Ireland. See, after, after principal photography wrapped up in 1976, Borman flew to Ireland where he worked with his editor in Ireland and shot – miniatures like of the city of Jepti and other like little miniature things 
in Ireland to kind of put the movie together. Uh, so he, wisely or unwisely, wisely for him, got the hell out of L.A. to finish this movie. So even if they wanted to, like, do stuff and reshoot or whatever the hell they would want to do, if they saw this and said, oh, my God, we can't release this in this way, um, they didn't have time. And they didn't have Borman around. So, you know, he got his way. He got his movie. I want to say before I forget that the one thing that amuses me, we are talking about doubling before, the one thing that always cracks me up is that Richard Burton doubles almost every single thing that he says. He can't say anything just once. The flames. The flames. <laughs> he definitely tried. So I, I once unwisely tried to do this and have a drinking game where you take a drink every time he says Pazuzu or every time someone says Pazuzu. Oh my god, you would you would get you would get alcohol poisoning just from after the tap dance scene. It doesn't work, but but I feel like the same thing could be said of his dialogue doubling. <laughs> and once you notice it, you can't stop noticing it. And it's almost right there from the beginning. And the thing that always cracks me up is shortly after they have their initial synchronization, he's still kind of in touch with Reagan and she draws this picture out for him and Oh, God. Uh, With the flames? <laughs> the flames, the flames. Belinda Beatty, she's no Ned Beatty. She is no Ned Beatty. It's just oh, Belinda. The, the delivery that she gives about Reagan's drawing. Oh, man, it, it, it's rough. It is real rough. Don't be judgy. You're judgy, Mike. Here's a picture of you on fire, Father. Here you go. Enjoy. Yes, she draws very well. Reagan did a picture of you. What does it mean? It's you. She draws well. The flames. The flames. He's very concerned now, and he's convinced that, for whatever reason, that there's a fire in the hospital, and he goes down, and this is the weirdest thing. He walks into this thing, and I swear there's smoke in the background, and I keep waiting for him to turn and look that way, but no, the fire is, like, in front of them, and he runs past the fire extinguisher to pick up a crutch and start beating the flames with the crutch. And I, you see, I'm not above saying when this movie doesn't work. The shot of him with the crutch is really, really unfortunate. It's really unfor- It's one of those moments that it's like, all right, I can't, I can't defend this. I don't know what they were th- like. I don't know why after shooting that Borman would say, cut print. We got it. It's like, no, no, you don't have it. That was just awful. No, you need to do that again. I'm sorry. That's, you know, I, I yeah, it's bad. It's a, that's a bad, bad, bad moment. I don't really feel bad laughing in certain moments because it, it, it just, it is that kind of, it's just, I don't know. It's, it's, it doesn't feel like heresy if you want to go there. Um, to, to laugh at moments in this movie because, just because it's so sincere. It's so exactly what it, there's no pretense about what it is. It is what it is. It's right there. It's like, you know, all of these things that they're talking about. It's very heady. It's very brainy, you know, duality and all this like spiritual stuff. And, you know, and yet you have a scene with Richard Burton hopelessly trying to swing a crutch. Like he's never held a crutch in his life or a bat or a stick, or I don't know what anything he's never, it's like, he's never actually moved with his body in his life in this shot. 
And Borman does talk about how challenging it was to, to, to work with Burton. I mean, it, Bor- Burton was not Borman's idea. There were two things, only two things that the studio imposed on Bur- Borman on this movie. Only two. One was it had to be called Exorcist to the Heretic. Now, that, that was after. They shot the entire movie calling it The Heretic. They did not want Exorcist 2 in the title because in, in their minds, in Borman's minds, and he had gone over this and over this, this was a separate movie. They, they, it was, it was a follow up, but it wasn't like a direct sequel, except it is. I don't know how you, but it's, it's just, he wanted it to be a follow up, but not related, I guess. But the studio said, no, we're calling it Exorcist 2, and Borman had no say. And the other thing was, he wanted to cast John Voight. John Voight passed. They were talking about casting a very young Christopher Walken. They they screen tested him and everything, and apparently he had a very lousy screen test because he was physically ill. He had, like, a stomach bug or something that morning. So it was kind of a disastrous screen test. And then the studio said, we're going to cast Richard Burton. He's a movie star. He's having a comeback on Broadway in Equus right now. And he was. And, you know, they said he's off the sauce. He's showing up for work. He he's he was a big, big star. He's due for a comeback. You're casting him. And that's when the young priest that was in all those scripts became the older, world-weary priest Richard Burton. But the problem with Richard Burton, according to Borman, was Richard Burton was all face, all from the neck up, all face and voice. Physically, he, Borman said, you know, Burton was not a good physical actor. He couldn't move. He couldn't physically, you know, express. And there's no better example of this in, I think, cinema history than the crutch shot. If you didn't know him and you didn't see him act in a sort of similarly stiff way in other films, particularly from this period, it almost seems like it's a moment of intentional physical comedy, aside from the fact that the film, like you said, is so sincere. But I just cannot imagine John Voight in that role. He was his first choice. He wanted he wanted a priest that he wanted that uh, sexual tension between the priest and Reagan. Which is not really there with the Burton thing, even though they threw in that thing at the end with him jumping on her and all that stuff. He wanted a younger priest who was doubting his faith, you know, kind of like, and, and he wanted that dynamic of like, you know, when they met up, it's like there were more peers, you know, there were more equals. But yeah, that all went away with the, the casting of Burton. At one point, both Lamont and Gene Tuscan were almost the same age and almost the same character. And I know that they tested Walken for the Lamont character, but as I was reading those early drafts, I kept hearing Walken's voice with the Gene Tuscan character. There was one draft where he gets into this altercation. Gene gets into this altercation with one of his patients and he starts calling this patient dummy. He's just like, well, way to go dummy. And just like starts berating this kid. And I was like, what the fuck's going on? And then finally, like, after the kid is out of the room and they say, like, the kid is beaming with happiness and he's like, oh, yeah, well, the kid is the smartest at his school and, you know, nobody ever doubts his word. So I, like, tear him down just to make him feel good or something, which is this really weird thing. That's not a good therapist. I just want to go on record right now. The therapist should not be doing this right there. What 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 just happened? As I'm reading it, I'm just reading it with... Walken's voice in my head, and he he kind of made. It Are you going to do an impression no, now? Because I'm no. dying, I'm dying to hear this right no, now. I I couldn't I could not do that. But 
I mean, I'm picturing like Christopher Walken, like Dead Zone era Christopher Walken in his prime, right? And yeah, it's just well, Deer Hunter, Deer Hunter Deer era Hunter, yes. Christopher Walken. This would have been fantastic. Well, and, the, the Tuscan was originally Chris Sarandon, wasn't he? I think there were so many people. I think Chris Sarandon was the one they were they were ninety nine percent sure they were going to go with, and I think they they decided on Louise Fletcher because it just it wasn't quite working, and then. I guess with Louise Fletcher, with all the, the the heat that she had, I mean, she just won Best Actress Oscar. I mean, she came out of nowhere. And plus, you know, it's nice to have a, a, a female protagonist in this movie. I mean, you know, you have you do have Reagan, but Reagan, as we, we've said, is, you know, unfortunately, she doesn't have much of a character in this movie. And you got to give – okay, and we, we do have to talk about Linda Blair's performance now because I really do give her credit. I really do because she – uh, you know, she, what did she have to play? She had to play like sweetness and light with darkness underneath. But it's like, how do you how do you do that? You need you need help from from the the camera angle and from you know you need you need assistance to be able to show that kind of depth in movies. David, David, I got to cut you off right now. Her knees are so chubby. Okay, Vincent Canby. Or, or are we going to start, start talking? We talked about her bra and we talked about her knees. Poor girl. Like, okay, she's 17. All right, let's just talk about Linda Blair. She's 17. She has already dated Rick Springfield at this point in her life. Rick Springfield, when she was 16. Now, let's just think about that. Would that fly in, in the Me Too era? No. But, you know, it happened. This happened. This is real. And this was before Rick James. She was dating uh, a rock uh, a rock musician, I believe, and I don't remember his name. I think it was Teddy something. She had her thing in TV movies. She was Sarah T. Portrait of an Alcoholic. She was born innocent. She is a good actress. She remains genuinely a good actress. And the performance she gives in this movie could be called not good, but it's not her fault. I will just – I don't know what you do with that character. It's almost unplayable. I don't know how you, you give depth to, to a character that is intentionally left, left depthless. I don't think her performance in this film is terrible. I think she takes what is given to her by the script and the direction and makes it work. And sometimes, like with Burton, sometimes it's hilarious and ridiculous. But I think I would have had a bigger problem with the character being all sweet and innocent if she didn't have that kind of charisma that she has, which I think also works so well for her in the darker roles. Even when she's playing some kind of sort of anti-hero or even a villain, like in that, I forget what it's called, Don't Talk to Strangers, maybe, that Wes Craven made-for-TV movie she's in. Stranger in our house. She's just so likable that I think even those ridiculous moments, you can kind of let them roll past. Also, is it true that that scene where she's on the roof and you think she's about to step off, is it true that there were almost no – she just did that stunt herself? Not the POV shot, but yes, the rest of it, yes. She talks about this when I interviewed her. She said that basically there <laughs> – first of all, the, the, the penthouse apartment, we have to say, was the penthouse of the Warner Communications building in New York. That was literally – they didn't actually have to set deck a lot of that because those weird mirror things were already there. 
in the penthouse of the Warner Brothers building. But that was the penthouse of the Warner Brothers building, which, uh, you know, was nice because it's a Warner Brothers movie and they didn't really have to pay anybody. Um, but there was a stoop underneath the precipice where she stood with a small net and she was told there were a couple people down there if she fell that would catch her. But she had no rigging. She had no rigging. She had no cable. She was just there doing her thing. And, you know, and she even talks about this today, like, and says, this would never fly today. I'm like, I can't, I can't imagine. Like, can you imagine being the insurer on this movie and somebody doing this? Can you imagine doing the scene and being told, you know, it's cool, Stan and Jerry are down there. If you fall, they'll catch you. They won't let you (laughs) tumble down multiple stories. Well, Borman also has a very funny story. When he was prepping that that set, uh, he was up there and he had a safety harness on. And, it, you know, a cable that was like, you know, whatever. And he was like looking off the side and he was like kind of, you know, I mean, he was careful not to fall. But he knew that he was rigged, right? So he was just like, oh, okay, even if I like, you know, so I can lean over and not feel like whatever. At the end of the day, he looked at the rigging and he looked back to the cable and the cable was not attached to anything. So literally, had he <laughs> fallen at any point during this entire day of pre-production, he would have died instantly. It would it would have just been over. And he he literally told me, he said, it's a metaphor for filmmaking. You think you're attached to something? You're not. The other theme I want to talk about, kind of along those lines as far as Linda Blair goes, is the communication. Communication is interesting in this film. I mean, we can talk about dance as a form of communication, which it kind of is in this movie. But the whole idea of the Dana Plata character that we were talking about before, where she's this autistic girl. And it's interesting that she she thinks that she's speaking, and she when she actually is speaking... It's like Linda Blair has to say, no, I can actually hear you. You know, I, I hear what you're saying. And the girl's like, no, you don't hear me. Because communication comes up again and again and again, especially with Father Lamont and his whole search. And God, here I go again. His whole search for Kokomo. God, he has so many problems communicating with people, either linguistically, not understanding the language. You know, he tries to speak in French to one person. Uh, there's a couple of people that he's trying to communicate with. And then his just absolutely bizarre thing where he goes, oh, yeah, I saw this in a dream. I was flying with Pazuzu, the demon. And it's just like, and he does that twice. He screws up with the natives in Africa and ends up getting stoned for his troubles. And then also just... Well, that's not a, that's not a communication error. That's because he, he, he decided to, you know, like jump on the back of a demon, you know, it's like, you know, that happens. It's like, but you got to be, you're, you're going to be judged by like, you know, you know, African tribes might not like it if you hang with demons. It's like probably a bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. I think he, he overshot. I'm just guessing. I haven't been to Africa or talked to any tribes, but I'm just going with the, the plot of the movie. And then he also overshares with Ned Beatty a little bit. Oh yeah. I've flown this route before on the wings of a demon. <laughs> and at least Ned Beatty just like cuts him a little slack. I kind of love his delivery of that line, though. It's just kind of like, I'm in a single-engine plane with Ned Beatty, and they're spraying DDT everywhere. Fuck it. I'm on the wings of a demon. You know, it's like, that's how I flew this route before. I don't even give a shit what you think of me. It's like, I am so far gone, it doesn't matter anymore. And that's one of the scenes where I love it. It makes me laugh. But it's also a moment of such, like, genuine sincerity where it's 
so it's become such a part of who he is that he just like blurts it out without thinking is this gonna make me sound like a nut job i i think at this point in the movie he's so far beyond worrying about whether he's a nut job that that you know that's the kind of release i aspire to in my life you know it's just kind of like i really want to get to the point where i'm just like flew in on the wings of a demon and boy are my arms tired so when you hit your 40s, you just don't care that much anymore. You're just like, yeah, you want to hate me? I flew in on the wings of a demon. Just, you know, sue me. I don't care. You don't like my movie? Yeah, okay, fine. Yeah, go away. I'm going to make another one. I don't care. That is pretty much the entire spirit of this film. <laughs> Probably the reason I love it so much. I guess talking about Christopher Walken, going back to him, the other thing that I found interesting is that he and Louise Fletcher would be in another movie, another sci-fi movie with crazy headwear in, uh, what was it, Brain Scan, just a few years hence. Brainstorm. Brainstorm, thank you. Douglas Trumbull directed it. And that's a very interesting movie, actually. We could go on a whole tangent on how they shot that. Did you did you do an episode on Brainstorm yet? Not yet. Oh, that's a good movie. Like, because there's a lot of behind the scenes, like the whole thing where he was going to shoot the um, the head trips in uh, 60 frame a second or something like that, or 48 frame a second, like uh, uh, IMAX. Oh, yeah. It was like 48 frame a second, 70 millimeter. And then the rest of the movie was just 24 frame a second, 35 millimeter. So it was going to be crazy. And then MGM, unfortunately, balked at the last second. But that would have been amazing. I would have loved that. That would have been so cool. And we talked about the artifice of the film, and what's neat to me is there's like that kind of self-referential stuff going on in the movie, talking about because, you know, I don't know if we necessarily, you know, you said it, and I don't know if we necessarily like really hammer this home. All of this African stuff is shot on a soundstage. So like there, there's I mentioned that American cinematographer article, and I think the one of the lead things is like, well, first we created the sun, you know, and. <laughs> And so that that great shot of Burton standing in front of the sun when he's looking for Kokomo is like, that's a fake sun. That's an artificial sun. And it's just amazing because it looks gorgeous. But if you look at that shot out of context, like in the American cinematographer, it looks fake. It looks like a spotlight on a scrim, which is exactly what it is. But if you see it in the movie, you're so in that dream state because the movie has like gone into this weird place where all of these weird like when he goes to africa and all the miniatures of the golden city and the steadicam shots and we should probably talk about the steadicam because this was one of the very first movies that used the steadicam in fact i think it, it if it wasn't the first movie that shot with the steadicam it wasn't the first movie that was released with the steadicam that was bound for glory it was one of the first movies that used the steadicam and the shining was another one which was shot i think just a few months after exorcist 2 shot but it's very dreamy and trippy and you and you see shots that are motion stabilized now and you almost take them for granted. But in the 70s, when you saw that shot of like running through the African village, like the POV locust shot that ends on James Earl Jones, that never could have been done before that technology, that shot. That never could have been done. And it really just looks so, so gorgeous. Even like – so I watched Excalibur again today – for the first time in a long time. And the way that he uses those, that almost like mythic imagery and the gold and I guess what are miniatures, it just, they remind me so much of each other in a way that they never had before. And mm-hmm. it's so underrated in, in Exorcist 2. Well, yeah, I mean, he took a lot of the tricks 
that and the old school tricks that he used, like you know the force perspective stuff. There's a lot of force perspective stuff in Excalibur, and uh, you know the the ghost glass stuff, and and uh, I mean there are very few opticals in Excalibur as well. I think the flower blooming is one of them, but there really aren't that many at all. It seems so strange to me, no matter how many times I've seen the film and no matter how many people I've talked to about it, that it does just have this huge budget and all these incredible effects and people think it's the worst film ever made or one of the worst films ever made. Like, it's, just, it's very frustrating. It goes to what you look for in a movie. And this is a larger conversation that I think you could probably talk about a lot of cult movies about. It's like, there's going to be a lot of people. And this was, I mean, again, a big budget, big summer studio release. So it's, I mean, you know, it's basically, you know, the, the equivalent of a Jurassic Park or a Star Wars sequel at this point. I mean, this movie was meant for masses. And yet, it's not built that way. That's not the movie that it actually is. It was sold that way. But the movie that it actually is, is something that, like, you need to kind of, like, you need to go with it through even when it gets silly. And you have to kind of, like, open yourself up to what it's trying to say in the world. And what it's trying to say is, again, very sincere, very heartfelt. It's a movie about good and healing and spiritual rebirth and renewal and redemption. And if you're going in expecting like a movie about devils and evil and spinning heads and vomit, you're going to be furious and because it's, it's not scary at all. Exorcist is a very scary movie. The Heretic is not scary at all. There, I don't think there's virtually any moments in it that are scary. There, there are moments that are kind of low-level creepy. I mean, I do love – I mean, again, we talked about the, the, the first hypnosis scene which is really effective, but that's more kind of interesting. It's not and, – and a little bit creepy, but it's not scary. That's the whole point. I mean, if you look for movies as like, this is this, it's like you're, you're looking for movies as an escape. You're looking for movies as, I don't want to think, I just want to go to a movie and lose myself in it. You know, even the, the Exorcist, which is a smart movie, is that kind of movie. You lose yourself in it. It really doesn't tax you. It doesn't force you to think about it while it's happening. You just lose yourself in it. The Heretic, I really believe, you have to engage with and, and you have to have an active participation with in order to appreciate it or enjoy it. And if you don't, it just looks silly and crazy. It's, it's kind of a litmus test in a way for really kind of what you want out of cinema. That goes back to sort of what we were talking about earlier about how all Exorcist 2 fans are kind of on the same level in a certain way. <laughs> We've all been in the synchronizer before. We're all lo we're all good locusts. We've all been brushed by the wings of the locusts. <laughs> I mean, the Kokomo plot goes all over the place, and it goes back and forth in time and space. Which, yeah, if you are not engaged with this movie, it's not going to make any sense because we're bouncing in and out of that. You know, that's like the the second and third synchronizer scenes if memory serves but we're like after that first synchronized scene where we have father Marin in reagan's bedroom it is all about kokomo after that we've got kokomo as the young boy we've got kokomo possessed and then we have kokomo later on and the whole idea of lamont going and finding kokomo so there's this whole thing i mean you could almost make a movie just about the Kokomo character. And God, I just love saying Kokomo so many the times. More not, times 
say it, the funnier it gets. <laughs> Almost as much as Pazuzu. I mean, it would be tough to say which they say more in this movie, especially when he's looking for Kokomo. Someone needs to count, obviously, and I can't. I'm very upset that I have not tried this, but it's like someone does need to count the Kukumos and the Pazuzus in this movie and see who wins. Because it's it's it would be instructive, I think. I want the supercut, and what I'm planning on doing a supercut of, just audio wise, is the repeated Burton lines. Because I think that would be a hell of a lot of fun. It would. Oh boy! If you're not paying attention, it's just like, well, who is this kid? Do we even realize that this kid is the same person as James Earl Jones? We see James Earl Jones so briefly in the one part where he bits a leopard, um, and. <laughs> So, uh, and yeah, we don't necessarily know. And then when he shows up again, he's got the locust headdress on, and then he shows up almost immediately again, and he is the respectable scientist character. And it's interesting that it's almost like in Burton's mind, he pictures Kokomo as this witch doctor with the locust headdress and stuff. And then when he actually sees him and meets him, you know, traveling through time and space through whatever mechanism to actually meet Kokomo, or maybe he's not actually meeting him, but he's this scientist. And it's like, you know, is that like the white man thinks that all the Africans run around in loincloths with crazy headdresses on, and then you meet him, and he's actually like, oh yeah, come into my laboratory. It must be the heat. Let me get you something, you know? And he's just like, normal guy, and the laboratory is very modern, 20th century, but... Yeah, it's kind of a weird thing. It's like, you know, they use the Middle East as the other in the first movie, and they use Africa as the other, and I guess South America as the other in this film. But, you know, it's, yeah, it's kind of like this whole Kokomo journey that we have. And then he's kind of the one, in a way, that saves the day, because we have Reagan, the bad Reagan, speaking with Pazuzu's voice at the end, and then we have the good Reagan speaking with Kokomo's voice at, at the same time. So going back and forth between this, you know, the, our two favorite words between Pazuzu and Kokomo. That's one of the things I thought was an interesting departure from the first film is that sort of different use of, I guess, exoticism for lack of a better word, that he actually has an active role and isn't just this sort of backdrop. Like, like you said, he is basically the one who kind of saves the day. I was talking about there's kind of like a self-referential thing going on because we've got the artifice, the artificial sets for Africa and for all, you know, for other things throughout this film. We've got a lot of work with background plates in DC and when they're flying through Africa. And I think they actually, they shot the stuff in South America, in South America. Am I remembering that right, David? No, the opening exorcism uh, was shot in Burbank, but there were exteriors that were shot by Rospo Pallenberg and Garrett Brown, the inventor of the Steadicam, that are in the recut version of him walking up the stairs in, in Rio to that, whatever that, the house thing, uh, with a, with a Burton lookalike from the back, ostensibly following him. But yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely South America in the recut version. In the, in the studio, in the first version, we just come in and it's the set and you're in there and everyone's speaking Spanish. So you're like, oh, you must be in South America or somewhere. But then we get like the commentary on those things, which is neat because you have like the fake New York when Reagan is dancing in front of it with her chubby knees, or you get the fake Africa at the museum. So it's like, and she remembers like, 
oh, it must be Africa because I saw something like this. And the way that they look over and there's this chimney rock type church, you know, this Coptic church. And it's like, okay, so we're almost saying, like, look at how fake this is in the museum. And then we're about to go to the real fake set, which is an interesting thing. But this, those sets don't look fake, even though they are fake, which is really phenomenal. Right. I mean, you know, even the Vatican sets, almost all of this movie, you can just go through it. Almost all of it was shot in Burbank on sound stages. Almost all of it. And if anybody out there, by the way, is is following everything we're saying and just needs to know everything about this movie, there is a book which you must, must read. It is written by Rospo Pallenberg's wife, Barbara Pallenberg, and it's called, very appropriately, The Making of Exorcist to the Heretic. You cannot find this book except on eBay, generally for quite a lot of money. Like I think I, I the cheapest one I got was like 20 bucks. But it can go up to like crazy. Um, but this, very hard to find. But it is one of the best books I have ever read. And certain other filmmakers agree with me on this about the making of a movie. It's, it's up there with the Jaws log. It's not all roses. It's, there's, a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of shade in this book. There's a lot of like, you know, people were falling apart. People were angry. People were late. People were upset. People were this. People were that. And, you know, and according to Linda Blair, it's, it doesn't even, doesn't even cover some of it. There was a, it was a lot more tumultuous set than even this book lets on. And this book does not paint the rosiest picture of the production of this film. It was apparently a very, very difficult production. Linda Blair according to that book and according to everything else that I've read and according to real life, she's notorious for being late. And I love that if you watch the movie and you pay special attention before she first shows up at Tuscan's office, there's like an ADR line about like, she's always late. Always late. She's Plus, never on time. Hi. Hi, Reagan. You're right on time. Go on in. For once. Yeah. And then she shows up and she says, I'm right on time or something like that. It's like, I know that they threw shade in there. Always late. She's well, she's never on time. Hi. Hi, Reagan. You're right on time. Go on in. For once. Yeah. But you might have to turn up the sound a little bit, wear the headphones or whatever. But I've watched this movie so many times now that when that first happened, I was like... She she, she is known for being late. But I will say this. even Even when I interviewed her, she was late. But she was appropriately apologetic. And when we started, she was dynamite. She was absolutely fantastic. So she is a wonderful, wonderful person. And, you know, just as an aside, if anybody's interested in knowing what Linda Blair is up to now, she runs a dog rescue with her own money. And you should give some money to this because I did and other people I know did. And it's a really great thing. It's Linda Blair World Heart Foundation. And you can find it online. I don't have the URL in front of me, but she she really does the Lord's work. She is really, really passionately committed to saving animals, especially dogs. And she's especially a big supporter of pit bulls as a misunderstood breed, which I completely agree with. If you've ever had a pit bull or know a pit bulls, they're, they can be wonderful, lovely animals if they're not, you know, trained by horrible people um, to do horrible things. They're wonderful animals. So... Yeah, she's she's a good egg. But yeah, she's late. She does be late. She 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 does be late, listen to me. Yeah. I think the thing that everyone wants to know is are, are her knees still chubby? I did not take a look at her knees. I I should go back. I think she might have been wearing pants. I don't remember. Um but uh 
She looks great, by the way. I I don't know how old she is right now, but she looks fantastic. She looks, you know, my age and I'm in my 40s and I know she's not in her 40s because she couldn't have been because she was like 12 when The Exorcist was shot. I mean, she looks just fantastic. Like, you know, her her lifestyle is uh, definitely uh, a good one. Just so people don't think that we're crazy when we're talking about Linda Blair's chubby knees, we are making a reference <laughs> to Vincent Canby's amazingly bad review of Exorcist to the Heretic. Don't give him any credit. Don't. don't it was mean. It's just mean. No, it's Vincent Canby's re- bad. I see. It, yeah, but it was it, it was a mean, borderline misogynistic review. It the really was. The, I want to quote from this. I want to quote from this. Linda Blair. This is how the the article opens this way. This is not I'm not second paragraphing or anything. This is the lead of this review. Linda Blair may be the least fleet-footed actress Hollywood has produced since the incomparable Joan Crawford attempted to keep up with Fred Astaire in Dancing Lady. Seen tap dancing as she is on two occasions in Exorcist to the Heretic, the chubby kneed Miss Blair appears to be stomping on live cigar stubs. The rest of the movie is even heavier and more lugubrious. That's where he had to go with that one. Yeah, but what kind of asshole starts their review off making fun of the appearance of a 16-year-old girl. Thank you. I completely agree. I think, look, there are a lot of reasons to to criticize this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like 17-year-old Linda Blair. Like, no, no. And and there were other reviews that did similar, uh, you know, talking about her figure and, you know, how she was so full-chested and all this stuff. And, you know, it's just kind of like, okay, guys, maybe you need to get out more or something. I don't know. Hashtag me too. Hashtag check your privilege, critics of the 70s. Yeah, look at your own knees, critics of the 70s. I'm sure they weren't anything to uh, write home about. Even under her picture, under the, the picture of her in the Times, it says, Linda Blair, no tap dancer. It's just like, come on, guys. Well, to be fair, she fought against tap dancing. She, she, that was the one big like war that she fought with Borman. Borman was insisting Untapped, and she had to learn. She did not know how to tap dance, so she literally had to learn for this movie. My heart goes out to her because, like, what what are you supposed to do? It's like you're the lead in a movie. You're being paid all this money. Director insists on tap dancing. It's like, all right, got got to learn tap dancing. Bring on the lullaby of Broadway. Were you ever able to find out why it had to be tap dancing? In the Barbara Pallenberg book, Making of Exorcist 2, he talks about going to a a recital of one of his daughters or something, and there was a tap dancing thing at the recital. I, I don't remember if it was his daughter or someone else. And Borman was like, that's it. I need tap dancing in this movie. And he was absolutely inflexible. He was like, no, we are going to be tap dancing in this movie. And Linda Blair was like, I really don't want to do this, you know, and he was just like, nope, you're learning tap dancing. So there you have it. It was recital that John Borman went to with his daughters or his daughters were in it or something. Yet another thing that adds to that dreamlike quality where it's just like, sure, it's not out of the realm of possibility that they're having some kind of talent recital to make the kids feel better. But it just is so surreal. Again, it's consistent with the vision. I mean, for whatever reason, Borman was insistent. It's like, okay, was he wrong? You know, because it 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 really kind of weirdly fits. 
when it's nice too that they have that psychic connection at that point he's being stoned and she's doing the dancing and I'm not going to talk about time zones or anything because that just doesn't add up in this movie but that that's happening at the same time and then when she falls off the stage you've got the person in front of the lights kind of moving back and forth and it's the same lights as the synchronizer and we get that those whole the lights of the synchronizer flashing so many times like even you could even say like him standing in front of the sun in that shot I was talking about earlier is kind of reminiscent of the synchronizer lights and then of course the end with Louise Fletcher and the way that the cop lights are kind of turning into the synchronizer lights. Totally. And I love that so much. It, it's one of the things that excites me every time I watch the movie is to notice. And I feel like every time I watch it, I notice something different that he does with those lights. And the sound, those neat, that nice little sound effect that he has going on. And I, we have to take a break here real quick and talk about the music. I love Marconi's score in this. It's one of his best. It's one of his very best scores, and it's it's one that's brought up a lot with with uh, cinephiles and people who love music scores. Like for for such a kind of a disastrous movie to have such a well known score, it's kind of and and Quentin Tarantino used a cut of it just recently in the Hateful Eight. Yeah, he uses the Reagan's theme. I think is the name of the track. And I can't believe I've gone out and I've found, I don't know how many different covers of Magic and, Magic and Ecstasy, which is used both in the trailer and in the shorter version. The end credits of the shorter version have Magic and Ecstasy at the end. And it is such a good song. One of my favorite things about Magic and Ecstasy is if you go on YouTube and you just find the single track and you read the comments, they're some of the greatest YouTube comments I have ever read in my entire life. (laughs) It's a combination of people apologizing for their love for Exorcist 2, people saying that they're planning to have sex with their significant other later while listening to this song. Oh my God. People who are baffled that a score that good (laughs) belongs to that movie. Like that. Just read the comments. (laughs) The trailer that is cut to this is amazing. It is so good. And it's basically just taking the entire movie and condensing it down into like two minutes and 34 seconds. But you, you, if you have this movie and you, you don't want to give away anything about the tenor or the tone or anything about the movie. The one thing you do have in this movie is spectacular visuals. Visually, it's a stunning, stunning movie. So what do you do? You take that disco score and you just put a bunch of shots to it. And man, oh man, that trailer works. Look that up on YouTube. It's, it changed uh, the way trailers were cut for a while, <laughs> probably for a very long time. So we should talk about the end of this film, because we've talked about all the things leading up to this, but the end of this movie, and I guess even going to Father Lamont returning to the United States, and Reagan kind of runs out of the Institute, she takes one of the, or I guess it's the synchronizer, I guess there's probably not more than one, 
I find it fascinating, of course, that she's holding it in a bag that is a woman's face on it. So it's like she's pulling it out of this woman's head when she sets it up in this cheap hotel room, which is like another, like there's all these weird sexual things at the end of this, this whole idea of you mentioned Sam, the uh, conductor thinking that she's like trying to pick his pocket or there was one cut of the script where he thought that she was picking him up like she was a prostitute. And so there's like them at this cheap hotel room putting on the synchronizers and doing their thing there. And this goes very wrong because now uh, Lamont has welcomed Pazuzu into him. And now he takes off and is headed towards Georgetown. We're going back to the scene of the crime and it's a race against time between Lamont and Reagan going to Georgetown and then Sharon and Tuscan going down to Georgetown. And it's, it's an interesting sequence. It, there were some good things happening here and there are some really strange things happening here. The whole idea of the, the, the crash on the side of the road that Jean decides that she's going to help out with the whole idea of the guy eating the sandwich, the bus driver eating the sandwich. <laughs> I love the bus driver eating the sandwich. She has to go home. Stop eating your sandwich. <laughs> the the dialogue in the last like 20 or so minutes, like basically from the moment Sharon, who does Sharon call a stupid bitch? Does she mean Reagan? I think she means Reagan. Okay. But that's that, one of the many lines that's cut out in the recut version. There, like, and the, and the bus driver, I think, is cut out too. Which is a real shame. Sharon's descent into evil is very rapid at this point, and very confusing. <laughs> like, I feel bad saying that because, and I complained about this in the beginning of this episode, but Sharon's character is just a really hard sell for me because she does. She just feels like. Like, she has to be a stand-in for Reagan's mother, and, you know, as we mentioned, the only, the only like, real major connection to the previous film, and it just, it's too much. So when she totally unravels at the end, it's just like, why does she call her a stupid bitch? Like, <laughs> just, I don't understand any of it, but I kind of love it. You know, I think it's probably about Sharon kind of like falling into the the trap of evil and getting upset with Reagan because Reagan's like running around and she's so far ahead of them. It's like, you know, she's far ahead of us. Like, I know she is. That whole thing. Like, you know, I don't know. I don't know what to say. It's like, you know, it's a race against time. They have to go to the thing and then get, you know, attacked by locusts. It happens. Yeah. The locusts. I mean, locusts, I understand. They're plague from the Bible. I get it. I'm not familiar with locusts, so I don't know really what kind of damage they do. I guess they eat a lot of crops and stuff. But, like, physically dangerous, I'm not really sure. But the, it, I would be very disturbed if there were a whole bunch of locusts. Like, in this room that I'm sitting in right now, if there were suddenly hundreds of locusts, I would probably not be very happy. You might hear me scream a couple times. So it's upsetting. The locusts are upsetting, but I don't necessarily like i guess they're like harbingers of evil and stuff and the one locust that we keep seeing that i can't necessarily figure out if this thing is like 30 feet wide or three <laughs> feet wide or three inches wide <laughs> i mean if i saw that flying towards me in an african village i would run as well but in or hanging out in the bedroom in georgetown i would also be kind of freaked out it's weird that they 
have to go back to Georgetown. You know, that's our other connection to the first movie. You talked about the, the steps and everything. And that's at the beginning. So, of course, we have to have it at the end. We always have to have things twice. We have immolation at the beginning. We have to have immolation at the end. So I can understand why some of these things are there. But it's a weird thing, you know, I guess it goes back to what I was talking about earlier with the whole idea of, you know, Reagan remembering the trauma and so much of this trauma taking place in a bedroom. So if we're to think of a house as a person, and this is me just being an a-hole about stuff, if we're to think of a house as a person, all of this stuff takes place in the top level, in the, the head of the house, which is interesting because to me... This, I mean, there's a lot of themes of the memory that we talked about and all this, but there's also the idea of the heart that we got before with the fighting over Gene's heart. So we have the battle between the head and the heart going on here. But I guess they have to go back to Georgetown because it is where things happen and this is a thing of familiarity. I don't think that there's a Hellmouth in, in Georgetown. There might be. I'll, I'll ask Buffy, but I don't think so. But they go back to some place that we're familiar with to kind of restage some of the same things that we got before. And I can't remember. It's been a long time since I've, I haven't compared the final scene of the short version with the final scene of the longer version. But I think, Oh, you're in for a treat. Okay, good, good. I'm sorry. What do you think? Like what I, I, I know the differences very well. Don't they? Because I I know how they cut stuff, but don't they actually insert a couple shots from the original Exorcist into? They do. Okay, they how do does that indeed. Work? How does it work? I mean, basically, it, it's just the cutaways of of there's the there's the split frame cutaway of Reagan and the and the Pazuzu face from the first film. Remember when she's looking directly at the camera, and the left side of the face is one face, and the right side of the face is the other face. That's in there, and then she she leaps up. Oh, what does she say? Does she say like, is it the fucker? Like fucker, fucker. Like when when she's talking about them. Oh God, I don't remember. It's at the. It's in the exorcism. I don't remember what the line is. I want to say it's like. I want to say it's that, but I don't remember exactly. But yeah, I mean, basically they they throw it in there, and it is. It, it kind of weirdly works. I mean, it is a cheat. It's an ultimate cheat. I mean, basically, you're you're taking the the climax of your the first film and using it in the climax of the second film. So it, that that's kind of a cheat, but it 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 doesn't not work. It works. I mean, I still prefer again. I prefer the original version because it's just much more coherent, pure vision. But if you're going to make it into a horror movie, and that's really what the recut did, it's trying desperately to take out the fantastical elements and make it more you know of a horror movie. That works for that reason. I'm trying to remember another horror movie where, like, the house itself gets sucked into the ground or just disappears. And I'm trying. Poltergeist. To... Thank you. That's what I was thinking, but I couldn't remember that because this reminded me. And of course, I know Poltergeist came later. But... Well, and Carrie. I mean, if Thank you really you. want to go there, that's yeah, that's much more of what I was trying to think of. Yeah, because the house just falls apart, and by the end. There is no more house. Yeah, they, they ran out of time when they were shot, shooting the ending. And you can kind of tell. I mean, they wanted it to be big and catastrophic, but they had a lot of stuff that they wanted to do. They wanted, you know, locusts to pour out of, like, Lamont's mouth. They wanted, like, there to be this kabuki. Dick Smith worked on it, this kabuki demon, which would, like, which was, like, this kind of 
mix between the Reagan possessed demon and, and the Pazuzu face from that little trinket thing that they found in the first movie. So it was like this African kind of weird thing. And, and, and locusts were going to fly in and rip apart her face. And there was going to be blood gushing out of it. And there were all these things that they were going to do. And at least they, I mean, partially because they had to shut down production for a month, partially because they, they already went over budget, uh, because it was originally budgeted 11 million and it ended up at 14, but they just ran out of time, really. And they had to finish it. They had, and they were going to lose Burton. Burton had, um, uh, either another movie or that he had to go back to the, to a show on Broadway. He had an out. So they, they had to finish. Which is kind of a shame if, I mean, it has to come to an end at some point, but I wish that they would have been able to do some of those like effects sequences. I really just want to see locusts come out of Peter Bur- or Richard Burton's mouth. Yeah, no, I, I was that in a script that you read, Mike? I know I read that somewhere. Yeah, no, that was in a couple of the scripts. Yeah, it would have been amazing. It would have been fantastic. At least they got to use the locust noise, which I think they used a little bit more effectively in the thing. It's a creepy fucking noise, and it really sets you on edge. Yeah, it works so well here, and it kind of, I guess, in a way. So I've I've had people argue with me about how like they liked certain parts of the movie, but the locusts were just too ridiculous. I really like the, the locusts, and I think they make it even when they're a little ridiculous. Like they make it creepy, and definitely the sound makes it creepy, but. Even that scene that we were talking about earlier when he goes into the lab and sees all the cages of locusts, it's, it's just kind of unnerving. And there's great sound design in this movie, too. I mean, the sound design throughout is kind of fascinating. And that becomes our big metaphor with the good locust, right? The one that calms them down and makes them all stop. So we've got Kokomo doing his little dance at the beginning, you know, and you guys know that I'm doing it right now here in my basement. I'm swinging my arm around with that bull roar. And then we've got her doing it, which can kind of look silly at the end when she starts to do the dance. Kind of. Kind of very. <laughs> but she's the good locust now. And so we have that whole idea that you were talking about, David, between the science and the the faith. And Kokomo, a man of faith who was the, you know, the healer and the kind of the, uh, uh, the, the touched person in his village now is the scientist and comes up with this idea of this one locust that can calm down everybody. And it's interesting too, that he describes the locusts as what, like red, green or red, gold, and black or something like that. Which Wait, is, when, when does he, he does this in the movie or he does this in the, in maybe it was in the, this? maybe it was in the script. Like it's, yeah, I'm, I don't think he does that in the movie. I vaguely remember reading that in a script somewhere. He, they ADR him and he goes, here we see them in their various forms. And then it's like a bunch of, but okay. So, okay. That locust cinematography. Okay. We have to talk about Oxford scientific films. They did those crazy close-ups of the locusts, like, flapping their wings. That That is difficult to do. Like, the, the locust photography in this movie, and you look through all of the notes that, that I know, Mike, you looked through all that stuff in, in Indiana at the library with Borman's papers and everything. But they, there's a lot of talk and a lot of conversation about how to shoot the locusts. From what angle, what attitude they should be, you know, should they be angry? Should they be flapping? Should they not be flapping? Should they be, you know, but the the shots are like jaw dropping. I mean, they're just jaw dropping. 
I've talked about exorcism films being in vogue around this time after The Exorcist, but I we didn't talk about animals gone amok, and this fits into that as well because this is you know a couple years north of uh, Phase Four here. We've seen so many different types of when animals attack, and even you know amongst the the insect kingdom, you know the we've seen William Shatner fighting tarantulas around this part. We've seen Empire of the Ants and all of these kind of things. So locusts being in this movie was not that you know it that fit when it came to 1977 and it fit when it came to this kind of like you know weird mix of environmentalism and you know spirituality the way that all of these things kind of come together in this one particular film and even when it comes to like you know we've talked about the way that we're talking about this hive mind of you know when people come together and eventually we'll all be in this you know utopia and stuff and that plays really well with the set design you know we haven't really even talked about that like when it comes to the Tuscan's office where she has these hexagons. And I think Pallenberg said that he thought of that when it came to like uh, molecules, but really they fit in well with bees. You know, this whole thing looks like they, they are living in a beehive. Yeah. That was kind of in the, the days of the seventies where we thought like all psychology, you know, all psychology would be, you know, solved through, you know, making everything so transparent like, like the whole open office thing, you know, like, like, you know, w- w- before we realized that was a terrible idea and people actually do need like walls for their therapy sessions. But that whole set is amazing. I mean, it's like no other set you've ever seen. They thought about this stuff. And even the kid rolling that giant hexagon, which, yes, which I love in it. the back. Okay. So I have a, I have a, sm- I have a short story right now. Several years, many years ago, I was living in New York. Uh, I was, I don't know, maybe late twenties, early thirties. I think late twenties, early thirties. Live journal was a thing, right? I found this guy who wrote an entire treatise on Exorcist 2 and all of the changes between the recut version and the original version. And I got in touch with him and he turned out to be an NYU film student and he became my intern for like a couple of years. And it ended up, I got him a job. He has a career. He's an editor. He's very happy. We're still in touch. He's amazing. His name is Jake. Jake, if you're listening, you're awesome. But I have met so many friends <laughs> through this movie in weird ways. But what he did was he, when he talked about this movie, the, the most hilarious thing that he did, he wrote this essay on the movie about how he loves it. He called that the nut o fun, that rolling hexagon. And I have never been able to watch this movie again without thinking, nut o fun when he's like rolling that giant thing it's like oh yeah i guess it's the nut o fun i guess that makes sense doesn't it but exorcist 2 truly i mean i have met i have met so many friends of mine in weird ways through this movie or my love of this movie and uh or our love of this movie i should say it's not not just mine if movies have karma or or some kind of something like that this movie for whatever reason, yeah, it's so vilified, but it, it's, it has such good karma for some reason. I don't, I can't, I can't really, you know, not to get all spiritual and foofy and woo woo or whatever, but it, there's a good vibe behind it. Even as misbegotten as it ends up being in, in places, um, there's, there's a lot of good intention here. I think it's one of those movies where you can just feel the love and the enthusiasm even when it's ridiculous and when it doesn't always work. <laughs> and it was it was a little bit upsetting when I learned that the set was, you know, it was a difficult shoot and the set got a little 
contentious as it went on. It was, it turned out to be, it turned into a difficult shoot by the end because I didn't get that sense and I was kind of bummed out to hear it. It's frustrating because, I mean, of all the troubles that it had after the shoot wrapped, you would have at least hoped that it would have been a fun shoot. Yeah, it was nothing like a fun shoot. And a lot of that was because of the schedule. A lot of that was because they started doing this and they didn't have a finished script. They were they were rushed into this. And, you know, and Borman, for, for my money, still made kind of like a unique classic. This movie, you know, again, you can dismiss it all you want. There is no other movie like The Heretic. There is no other movie like it in, in any like real way. The vibe of it and the execution and the visuals and, and the whole coherent vision, it's it is really one of a kind. Yeah, check this out. 10-25-1976, the Yuri Geller scene, my favorite scene, is added. This is like 30 seconds of a like 118-minute movie, and like you will not let this go. It's like, can, can we talk about the hat on the, the – the, she puts the hat on the sculpture before she heals Dana Plato? Like that mo- – can't we talk about that moment or like, you know – well, I just wanted to say that as far as like how late they were working on stuff. So it was like 10, 15, 1976, Borman is to go to Arizona on October 23rd and shoot there. 10, 25, 76, the Yuri Geller scene is added. 11, 4, 1976, rap party, which cost a whopping get it get a load of this talk about talk about hollywood excess right this rap party that they had at the wa weep lodge and marina two thousand nine hundred seventy four dollars and seventy cents that's the expense voucher they turned in for that they must have been limping into conclusion though because like you read i mean i mean you've read the book you've read the palenberg book you know you know they put on a little show they rewrote the lyrics to lullaby of broadway and and it's all like about how difficult everything is and and you know, they limped to conclusion on that movie they were like they came out of a war or something nobody was happy Wow, in Marina, really. The biggest budget in Warner Brothers history. Call Eddie Mannix of MGM. We need to wrap this up. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. We're going to play a pair of interviews. The first is with Brian Hoyle, the author of The Cinema of John Borman. And the second is with our old pal Paul Talbot, who wrote an article for Video Watchdog called The Unmaking of Exorcist II, The Heretic. And we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. like great music? Do you like in-depth podcasts? Do you like the idea of putting great music under the microscope? If you answered yes, no, or fish to any of these questions, Love That Album is the show for you. Every month, Morris and a fellow music fanatic discuss a particular album in detail. They'll cover the performer, the history behind the recording, the musicianship, common thematic elements between the songs, and how many drugs were consumed during its creation. Well, maybe not so much of the last bit. 
So, if you want to hear a podcast bringing perspective to great rock, jazz, folk, punk, and sea shanty music, then subscribe to Love That Album Podcast at Apple Podcasts or download directly from lovethatalbum.blogspot.com. I'm Steven Seagal. That's right, Steven Seagal. And for the past 40 years, in between barbecue and oxen and roasting boar for my insatiable appetite, I never miss an episode of Dr. Action and the Kick-Ass Kid Commentaries. Ain't that right, Johnny? Hi, I'm Dr. Action. Hi, and I'm the Kick-Ass Kid. When I'm not watching action films, I'm usually polishing my gun while looking at a back. And when I'm not watching action films, I'm normally outside with a harpoon killing puppies. But usually, you can find us both watching 80s, 90s action films. You could follow us on Twitter, Dr. Action Kick-Ass. You can find us on our main page, which is dractionkickass.blogspot.com. You can also find these on iTunes and TalkShoe. Yes, every week we do a commentary on an 80s and 90s action classic, and where we can, we also provide the film so that you can watch along with it. This podcast explodes. Hey, where's that baby mama at? I gotta tell you somebody. How to continue a television series after a major actor has left the cast. Part 2, The Blake 7 Method. Remove the character from the script introduce a new replacement character. Eventually, few of the original characters will be present, and the series will barely resemble its original form. For more about British science fiction television, listen to the British Invaders podcast. www.britishinvaders.com It's not easy having a good time, and it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again... That's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast, Proudly Resents. And you listen to my favorite movie podcast, The Projection Booth. I know. It's messed up, right?
Welcome to the interview portion of the show. First up, you're going to hear from Brian Hoyle, the author of The Cinema of John Borman. What got you interested in writing about John Borman? I grew up on his films. Um, maybe even before I even thought that films were directed by somebody and that, you know, or I followed directors, I just realized that I had watched a lot of John Borman films. I saw Point Blank when I was probably too young. I saw Deliverance when I was probably too young and, and Hell in the Pacific and, um, Hope and Glory came out while, uh, pretty much just, you know, just, just after I moved from America to the UK, Hope and Glory came out. A friend of the family was Irish and his brother had been an extra in Excalibur and he showed that to me. And, uh, I think I caught the Emerald Forest at some point. So I, I, I started to see a lot of his movies and thought, and then once you start realizing that these things are made by somebody or there's a there's a kind of voice or a vision there i started realizing that this was a really exceptional filmmaker so i started seeking out the rest of his films and you know they're there i'd probably already seen the best ones but they're all fascinating um and then it just occurred to me when i was uh working in dundee um I was at the point where I'd finished my PhD and I had to kind of find something to write a book about or someone to write a book about. And there just wasn't anything on Borman. There's one book, a tremendously good book by Michel Simon, um, who's kind of Borman's best critic in a way. Uh, but that was published in about 1986. So it only went up to the Emerald Forest. It didn't even cover Hope and Glory or, or The General, which I think is another extraordinary film. And it was obviously written in French, uh, translated into English by Gilbert Adair. Um, it's a very good translation. But that was the only major book in English on John Borman. So no one had actually written one on him in English to begin with. And I thought this was crazy. I mean, at his best, he is one of the major filmmaking talents of his generation. I think he's he's up there with, you know, with, with Ken Russell and Coppola and, you know, there's some of these other phenomenal filmmakers. Um, so I thought I needed to rectify this. So I wrote the first book on Borman in English. Uh, it was about 2012. He's made one film since then, which is Queen and Country. Uh, so my book is close to being complete career. He's also written a novel, which I don't know if you've, if you've read Crime of Passion. Um, but it's, it's very, very good. Um, yeah, so he's written one novel and he did a, a very interesting trilogy of radio plays for RTE in Ireland. Um, which are phenomenal, actually, uh, especially the, the the third part, which is sort of set in heaven, and and it has a very Borman cast: um, Brendan Gleeson, Stephen Rea, um, Shorter Ronan, etc. Um, and they're they're very good as well. So I mean, he's still he's still doing stuff, but it's been hard for him, I think, in in the last decade or so to get a film funded. Um, I think the, the kind of films that he likes to make are either they're either <clears throat> too ambitious in a way to get the kind of funding that he might might be able to attract or just not the kind of films that people make anymore. Um, so, you know, he's, he's, I think he's been overlooked. I think that's uh, a tragedy. Um, hopefully he's got one more film in him, but he's in his mid eighties now. And, uh, last I heard he's, you know, he had a bit of a fall recently. He's not been, you know, he's not been in the best of health, but you know, he's still mentally as spry as ever. So here's hoping there's one left. Now, Point Blank really put him on the map for a lot of people, but he was making films and television shows before that. What were his early things like? Point Blank is his second film only, and his first American film, and his first film in color. And yes, I mean, it, it puts him absolutely on the map. Um, and this, this, this shouldn't sound arrogant. I remember reading an interview with him where, he, you know, upon making the second film, he was looking back on it and he said, oh God, I've only gone and made a fucking classic. Um, he said, which is a terrible thing to do when it's, your, when it's your second movie. So before that, he made one feature film, which in America, I think it's called Having a Wild Weekend. And in England, it's called Catch Us If You Can. And it, it, it's a sort of would-be 
Hard Day's Night for a much lesser band called the Dave Clark Five. And Pauline Kael really liked it. It's actually a very, it's a very interesting film. And Borman made some interesting choices. He didn't really like, I think, much of the Dave Clark Five's music. So he insisted that they not play a band and they actually play stuntmen in the movie. So they never um, perform any music themselves, even though they, they sort of write the score for the film. So the first thing, it's it's a film about a rock group in which they don't play a rock group and it's not a musical. Um, and it's very downbeat. It's a, it's a extraordinarily strange kind of pessimistic little film um and i said it just caught the attention of pauline kale who you know praised it he thought um to high heaven but you know beyond what the film probably deserved but that brought him to the attention of the hollywood studios and i think catch us if you can is is really the most poignant film to come out of that 1960s kind of rock and roll musical staple but before that yeah he worked he worked for the bbc for quite a long time firstly in radio um doing kind of youth programming when he you know he was very young um he edited various sort of youth radio programs and he starts working for bbc west in bristol um where he makes he makes a few very very kind of i think influential programs but ones he probably would struggle to see i had to go down to the sort of um, archive dungeon of the British Film Institute in London to see most of them. And even then, they didn't have kind of complete tapes. So one of the, I think the first major thing he did on TV was um, a show called, I'm trying to think, it's Citizen 63. And it was, uh, I think he directed two or three parts of it. It was six parts in total. He produced all of them. And they just took ordinary people. Um, in, in a way, I think, without knowing it, John Borman possibly did a lot to invent reality TV. Um, and I think he probably kicks himself for it now when he sees the, how the quality's dropped. But Citizen 63 looked at a group of um, interesting individuals. Uh, one of them was about um, a girl going to a secondary modern school in, in London. One of them was about a kind of eccentric inventor. And it just, in half an hour, talked about their world and their thoughts and the way they saw Britain progressing and how they fit into you know that country and its notions in a, you know in a time of great kind of social and political change um and it was extraordinarily interesting and from that he kind of expanded the canvas and made a six part series in Bristol called the newcomers which was about um a writer called Anthony Smith and his wife um and Smith's best friend happened to be a then struggling playwright called Tom Stoppard uh, whatever became of him and um so Stoppard and quite a few quite a few episodes and a few other important um Bristol kind of playwrights who would work, you know, people like um, Charles Wood, um, who, you know, Borman had a great deal of respect for. And that, again, was a kind of six-part fly-on-the-wall documentary about a young kind of intellectual couple having their first kid kind of struggling to, you know, find a, a, a place in, in the world artistically and kind of socially um, and their sort of circle of friends. And I think it's the first show on on the BBC where people seem to be smoking marijuana at a party. Um, they don't make much of it, but they're definitely, definitely passing something around that isn't a cigarette. Um, and, you know, in the middle of all of this, of course, this is, it's a reality TV show in a way. It's, it's, it's fly on the wall stuff. But, um, What's also fascinating about it is that it's a fly-on-the-wall documentary made by John Borman. And even then, he can't resist but put in, like, fantasy sequences. Um, so there's, there's a scene where uh, Tony Smith goes to play playing cricket. And um, he, earlier on in the series, they went to go see Shane. And he intercuts the, the cricketing sequence with the shootout um, with uh, Jack Palance at the end of Shane. And when the main character gets bowled out, you actually hear... Um, Alan Ladd say, you know, his name was Wilson. He was fast, fast on the draw. And then the, the, the guy in, in the actual final World documentary says, oh, his name was, I can't remember what it is, his name was Smith. He was fast, fast on the wicket. So, and there's a, there's a kind of proto musical video in there where, um, they talk about their love of Frank Sinatra and they do, um, 
uh, I think they do a kind of like quasi music video to I Love New York in June. It's quite mad. But John always, even at the beginning when he's working in documentaries, had a bit of a problem with realism. I think he belongs to that very interesting, slightly alternative strand of British cinema that I guess starts with Michael Powell. Um, and includes Borman, Ken Russell, Nicholas Rogue, Peter Greenaway, Derek Jarman, and, you know, a few others, um, who just don't get on with that kind of social realist cinema that we really associate British, you know, British filmmaking with. Um, so dreams become extremely important to him early on. And, you know, you see, you see it in Catch If You Can. You definitely see point blank. The whole film is probably one strange fever dream in the mind of a dying man. Um, but that, those were some major works of the BBC. Between making Point Blank and uh, Catch Us If You Can, I think he goes back for one last film at the BBC, and he makes them, again, hard to see, but it's an interesting curio. He makes a one-hour film about D.W. Griffith called The Great Director. Um, which he said was his kind of graduation film. He said that if you, if you're going to become a filmmaker, you need to know where you come from. You need to know your roots. And for Borman, the roots of cinema, the roots of narrative film are with D.W. Griffith. So he makes this extraordinary movie about, um, sort of documentary about Griffith, which is very different from Kevin Brownlow's, uh, which is much more detailed and made about, um, 10, 15 years later. Um, Brownlow being the whole story, Borman's interested in like, the myth, the idea of Griffith, the man who invented epic film, epic filmmaking. He's not interested in the smaller films like Broken Blossoms. He, you know, he's interested in Birth of the Nation, Intolerance, stuff on a grander scale, which I think says a lot about John. I mean, he's a very, very ambitious filmmaker. You know, to the point of hubris, I would think, which is where we get to Exorcist 2. I mean, rarely has a blockbuster Hollywood studio film had so much kind of visionary ambition to it, crazily so, that the film can't even, I think, begin to to live up to what Borman was trying to do in his mind. But that's what makes him fascinating. You know, I think in a world of lowest common denominator filmmaking, you know, John just sticks out like a sore thumb because he's trying to do so much. Um, he says that he's always looking for the film that transcends film, um, whatever that is. But it, it's, it's a clearly a kind of visionary ideal and i think john believes that a man's reach should exceed his grasp um and you know it's hard to know are, are his best films the ones where he turns down the ambition slightly or are the best are his best films the ones where he just goes for it goes for broke and doesn't quite make it and i'm not sure i don't think there's a there's an answer to that because i think point blank deliverance on the one hand are films where maybe he doesn't go quite as crazy and he reigns it in but sometimes you have to you know look at a film like Excalibur where I think he really does go for the grail uh, pun intended and um, while it's probably less perfect than Point Blank or, or um, Deliverance there's just something else about it it has this, this energy that you know you just get swept away in well last time we talked we talked about Zardoz and that's a film that was definitely very, very ambitious. Let's put it that way. There were a lot of things going on to the point where Borman now says, you know, there there were too many ideas almost. What was his position like in Hollywood, in the filmmaking community after Zardoz? Because I know there's like three years between that and when Exorcist 2 comes out. The thing about, about John is that, you know, it, it all swings and roundabouts, really. Deliverance really puts him on top. You know, and to be fair, he was riding reasonably high anyway. I mean, Helen the Pacific was was quite well regarded. Uh, Leo the Last, which is a strange little film, but um, in many ways, nevertheless, won him Best Director at Cannes, which I guess didn't hurt his cultural cachet. Deliverance was a huge hit and made on a shoestring. The whole film cost about two million and made a great deal of money for Warner Brothers. So he was kind of in a position with Zardos to do what he wants. He does what he wants, and the film is 
on many money levels, a colossal failure, but a colossal failure on a very small scale only costs a million dollars. The whole film's made for a million dollars. So even though it, you know, it is not a hit, it doesn't really lose the studio money. So while his last film was seen as being this kind of over, over ambitious failure, um, it didn't really blacklist him in any way because <laughs> it didn't really cost anybody anything. Um, so that, that was probably, that worked in his favor. I think that the long gap between projects, um, is less that, Borman was, you know, had a had a kind of flop on his hands for his previous film. More that getting films off the ground just takes a lot of time and energy. And I think during that period, really, um, it's when he's starting to really think about making Excalibur in earnest. Um, so around, we're we'll trying to think. I think 1974, 1975 is um, the first drafts I've seen of a, a, a proper kind of Arthurian drama um so he in the early 70s that sort of in the in the aftermath of deliverance he, he's asked to work on a script for lord of the rings he's not reluctant to do that but i think he he clearly wants to make a film about the arthurian legends which to him is absolutely paramount it's like the the, the what he, you know, the matter of britain this is if griffith is where film comes from the arthurian legends for him is where british culture and storytelling comes from so he sees Lord of the Rings as kind of being a substitute for that. If he's not going to make the Arthurian legends, at least he can get close to it. And um, obviously that falls through. He makes Zardoz. So Lord of the Rings having fallen through, he thinks, Let, let's go for it again. I'm going to try and make my film about the Arthurian legends. So he spends a lot of time, I think, in the interim trying to get that film made to no avail. And it's probably a good thing because the early scripts of um, of what will become Excalibur, I think the, the one probably called Merlin Lives, which I think is about 1974 or five is huge. I mean, it would have been, it would have had, it's a four hour film with a very complicated flashback structure and it's, um, crazily ambitious. And I, I'm glad he kind of scaled that back a little, not a lot, a little bit for what becomes Excalibur. So that was happening. I think the production of Exodus 2 was also extremely long and quite fraught. I mean, Zardos is made quickly. It's made cheaply. Exodus 2 is enormously expensive. I think at the time, actually, the most expensive film to be made by a Hollywood studio. Um, it's, you know, very, very costly, long production. So that, that takes a while as well. So that kind of explains why there's a gap. But, um, with John, there's always, you know, it's very rare for him to knock out kind of a film a year. It just doesn't really happen with him because I think he, he tries very hard to get smaller, more personal projects off the ground. He often gets the knock back on those. And then when that doesn't work, he finds work where he can and then maybe does something a little bit more for hire. But also, I mean, one of the things that makes John kind of unusual is that from, I'm going to say Leo the Last, certainly from Deliverance onwards, he's actually his own producer. John is always uh, one of the main, not executive producer, actual producers of his films because he likes to take control of the, um, those elements, but also he he kind of feels the responsibility falls to him, you know, to make sure that the film comes on time, on budget, etc. And he says if he is the producer, that pressure is on him personally. So I think that's the other reason why his films can take a while to get made, is that he's he's kind of with them all the way through. If you you know if you look at his career, it's just there's so many films that just kind of fall through the wayside. Um at one point, I can't must have been the mid-80s, he's supposed to direct Final Analysis which ends up being a kind of pop boy, the thriller with Richard Gere, um, which wasn't very good at all. He was attached to that. He was attached to um, A Simple Plan, which becomes the Sam Raimi film, um, Interview with a Vampire. Um, he spends quite a while thinking about that one. And, of course, that ends up being directed by Neil Jordan, who's 
Borman's kind of protege. Um, he did the making of documentary of Excalibur and uh, co-wrote several things with John. So, um, and John pr- produced his first film, Angel. So there's a lot of time spent working on films that just don't get made, uh, which I think explains the gap as well. But Exodus 2 is just a fraught, fraught production. There's a book about it by Barbara Pallenberg, who is the wife of, or the ex-wife of Rospo Pallenberg, who co-writes uh, Excalibur and the Emerald Forest, etc. Um, and it seems to be that there seems to be this curse that if you ever have um, a journalist or someone, a writer following you around, charting the making of your movie, it is doomed. Because <laughs> um, I think the first one ever was, um, oh God, Penelope. The name will come to me. There's a there's a very interesting book that was written about John Huston and the making of the Red Badge of Courage. And of course, the studio mutilate the film. It's nothing like what Houston wants it to be. It kind of flops. It's still a fascinating movie. But there was a, a film written about a book written about that. I think it's just just called Movie. Then of course, Exodus Two. It happens. I think the woman in the water was you know someone followed um, M Night Shyamalan around that, and that was a disaster. And then Heaven's Gate. And it's, so never ever have a journalist follow you while you're trying to make a movie. I think it's one of the, the key lessons that Exodus 2 teaches us. Part one, or problem one, which is just terrifying, um, Lee J. Cobb dies about two, three weeks before they're due to go into production. And of course, Lee J. Cobb was a major figure in the first one. He plays he plays the policeman. And I'm pretty sure his character actually is the main character in Exodus 3, except he's played by George C. Scott. I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be the same guy. Um, yeah, Ellen Burstyn didn't want to come back and do it. She was tied into other stuff. So she, the mother wasn't going to be in the film. So really to have a kind of father figure or an adult figure in the film, they were going to rely on the priest, oh, sorry, the priest, the policeman played by Lee J. Cobb, and then he dies. So all of a sudden they have to completely start rethinking the script, um, which is why the character of um, basically the, the PA, that the assistant to um, the mother, kind of gets a battlefield promotion and becomes, you know, this sort of slightly major figure in the film, which she was never really intended to be. And um, to be honest, Sharon, played by Kitty Wynn, she's not very good. <laughs> um, so I mean, that that was kind of a weakness. So that was a problem. So that was problem one. Problem two was just getting, you know, getting the budget sorted. I mean, because it was an enormously expensive film. Borman also then decides, because he's Borman, and you know he has these crazy ideas sometimes, he decides to shoot the entire thing basically in a studio in LA. But to try and recreate these sort of African villages, etc., they import this very interesting, quite rare red sort of red sand. These um, The sand contains some sort of strange mite, and these mites were you know, biting members of the crew and gave various members of the crew a very rare tropical disease. Um, which Borman himself contracted. So he was knocked out for about a month and, and doctors didn't know what the hell he had. You know, I think, um, he says in his autobiography, quite frankly, he said, they thought I had some very, very strange form of venereal disease. Um, and, it, and he said, and he, you know, he had to get to go through the whole rigmarole of all this. And then it, then some, some, you know, expert di- you know, diagnosticians have said, no, actually, you have a very, very rare form of African um, you know, flu or something. Have you been to Africa recently? He said, well, no, but I am working in African dust. He goes, well, that would explain it then. So that happened. So various members of the crew got ill. It's just one problem after the next, after the next, really. Um, and you know, when you're making a film on that scale, people look over your shoulder. You know, Zardoz, they left him alone. It's a million, it was a million quid or a million dollars. And he was, um, he was basically just, he went to 
Ireland near where his house is. He shot the damn thing in his garden, basically. Um, you know, his wife was the costume designer. Sean Connery drove himself to work every day. Um, it was it was small scale, and they leave you alone when that happens. When you're making the most expensive production in Warner Brothers history, there's someone behind there's bean counters looking at everything you do, and that, of course ironically costs more money and slows things down. So I think that's the the other reason. Um they were, you know, they're very keen to have a to spend a lot of money on it and to have a hit on their hands because I think the the original idea was to just make a um a low budget kind of rehash of the first film using discarded footage um from the first movie. Obviously there's there's a good kind of 20ish minutes of footage reinserted you know reinserted into the film there. They, the the studio was like well actually there's quite a lot of footage that Friedkin shot that we didn't use. Let's kind of stick a bunch of that into a movie and then cheaply shoot some other footage and we'll call that Exorcist 2 and um they decided against that, and once they did, all of a sudden it became a very, very big project indeed. Um, I think the other thing is, you know, it would have slowed the filming down, but I've never understood why John was hired to direct The Exorcist 2. I think it's probably the craziest decision that Warner Brothers could have made because um, John turned down Exorcist 1. He absolutely hated the first film. Um, and he hated it before it was made. He, he he was asked he was asked by the head of Warner Brothers to direct it, and what, um, asked what he thought of it. And he said, um, "Not only do I not want to make this film, I think you shouldn't make this film because it's basically two hours of someone torturing a child." Um, so he found the film extremely kind of distasteful, and uh, wanted nothing to do with it. So then to hire the man who turned down the first film to direct the second is a is a you know remarkably perverse thing to do. Um, so I think, you know, to call, because John never really calls Exodus 2 Exodus 2. He calls it The Heretic. Um, he doesn't really see it as being a sequel to Friedkin's movie. I think it's it's almost the first anti-sequel. He's almost trying to negate the first movie, actually. Um, and if you think about it, there's, you know, there's no gore in Exodus 2. There's no pea soup. There's no spinning heads. There's no... You know, <laughs> your mother sucks cocks in hell, Karis. It has nothing that you have in the first, that makes the first film kind of so notorious. He gets rid of all of it, um, which is fascinating. It's also probably why the film flopped. And, um, Stanley Kubrick, um, who used to call Borman at Strange Hours of the Night, like he used to do everybody really, um, Borman, uh, sorry, uh, Kubrick warned him against making it. He said the only way you can make a successful sequel to The Exorcist is to outdo the original. He said you need more gore, more pea soup, you know, more swearing, just more nastiness. And and Borman just said, I've got to go my own way on this one. And uh, and of course, the result was not popular, <laughs> um, to say the very least. It's a it's a, I mean, if there's ever a film that kind of defies an audience's expectations, you know, and completely flies against them, it's Exodus 2. They were wanting to kickstart a franchise, and Borman's just trying to kill it dead. <laughs> um, but I mean, I think it, looking at it now, in hindsight, it, it seems slightly less perverse um, than I think it would have done back in the 70s. And I think the thing that's kind of, for me anyway, that's put it into slightly sharper relief is the films that followed. Um, in, in, in the kind of series. So Exorcist 3, again, strange little film, um, quite an interesting one, but the studio, again, against William Peter Blatty's wishes, because he wrote and directed the film as well as the original novel, um, and it's based on uh, his second novel, Legion. They inserted a lot of gore against his wishes, because he made a film that wasn't gory <laughs> and was trying to be kind of metaphysical. And then, so in a way, he was, he was trying to, to find a kind of middle ground between Borman and Friedkin. And then, after Blatty makes Exorcist 3, the fourth Exorcist film, Dominion, um, they hire Paul Schrader, of all people, 
to make a horror movie. And of course, Paul Schrader has absolutely no interest in it because he said, well, I've already done cat people kind of thing. So he tries to turn it into a metaphysical Western about, um, you know, a priest having doubts. I mean, he turns it into a Paul Schrader movie. Um, and there's, there's no gore in it. And then the studio kind of refused to release it and then, um, hired Rennie Holland to do a hatchet job on, on a kind of Schrader's film. And, and they told him, whatever you do, we want lots of jump scares and gore. So there's been at least two more Exorcist sequels that kind of downplayed the sort of violence of the original. I mean, Schrader to a, a, a great degree. So I kind of think in a way, Exorcist 1, 3, and Dominion, sorry, not Dominion, um, the Rennie Harlan one kind of belong together as a trilogy, and that Borman and Schrader's films should be appreciated together as deeply perverse um, anti-horror films that are actually more interested in kind of um, theology, uh, certainly in the case of Schrader, um, and, and and the kind of the guilt of a priest, actually, and, and, you know, and the doubts of a priest in both cases. And in Borman's case, he's very interested in this kind of... Um, this this notion of hypnosis that might lead to a kind of collective unconscious and kind of you know he he wants his films almost be like a healing vision rather than a a vision of terror which is also an extraordinary thing to do in a horror movie or alleged horror movie the script's an interesting one I mean Rospo's basically he's in there as a kind of I guess rewriter um Palenberg's a he's a strange figure he's kind of a jack of all trades really um Borman seems to like these people who kind of, they're sort of just people who have sort of rather strange, slightly unconventional minds and, and slightly crazy ideas. And he likes keeping them around to, you know, fire his own imagination. So Zardoz, for example, there was a guy who co-wrote the novelization with him who had a hand in the script called Bill Stair, who was a, a visual artist, but also, um, he's often, he's often credited on Borman films as creative consultant. And Rospo, starts, Borman meets him when he's quite young, I think. Rosper starts as a kind of creative consultant for Borman as well, um, on deliverance. And um Pallenberg is, is kind of vaguely responsible for how uh, how they actually filmed the banjo scene. So he was he was <laughs> this is completely mad. Um the the kid who actually plays the the banjo player, uh I think his name is Billy Redden, but um he he had the look that Borman wanted, you know, facially. This is, he had the sort of physique that Borman was after, but he couldn't play the banjo to save his life. He was completely tone deaf. Um, and they had this other kid who looked perfectly normal, so it wasn't right for the part, who was, you know, Borman described as a kind of Paganini of the banjo. The guy was a banjo savant, but didn't look right. So they couldn't figure out a way to make it, make it seem as if the kid was actually playing the banjo. So Pallenberg was put in charge of that. And, um, about a week after, you know, he was given this task, just work out how to shoot this damn sequence because we've got a kid who can play the banjo but doesn't look right and a kid who can't, who looks perfect. Pallenberg said, I've got this idea where the kid who looks right, you know, Billy, is just going to sit on the on the porch swing and he's going to have his hand, you know, um, he's going to do the picking or pretend to pick. And then I've cut a hole in his jacket and the kid who's really good at playing the banjo, he's going to stick his arm through the, the hole um, and he's going to run his hand up and down the fretboard. So he's going to be kneeling behind the kid pretending to play the banjo, running his hand up and down the fretboard. And Borman just said, that is the dumbest idea I have ever heard in my life. And then a couple of days later, they couldn't think of anything else. So they tried it. And that's exactly what happens in the movie. So the hand running down the fretboard during dueling banjos belongs to that banjo savant. And the other hand that's pretending to pick, you know, the picking hand belongs to Billy Redden, who has his other hand behind his back because the other kid's got his arm through the sleeve, <laughs> which is why it's also filmed from that interesting upward angle. So you can't see that there's another kid crouching behind there. Um, 
so that's kind of where Rospo starts. And then he becomes, you know, Borman's kind of go-to ideas man slash co-screenwriter on three, three films. Um, Exodus to Excalibur, The Emerald Forest, and then I, I think after that they have a you know they have a bit of a falling out really, um, and he doesn't he doesn't really work with Borman much again. But um, yeah, so Pallenberg is really brought in to kind of Bormanize the script um, to sort of you know pick up uh, the script that I, it was originally written by um, it's William Goodhart I think it was basically the script that um, he was given. A lot of people kind of argue that you know Borman was responsible. Yeah, so William Goodhart's script um, was given to Borman, and a lot of the ideas that are in the film were already there. And I think um, it really was up to Pallenberg to just, like I said, kind of just Bormanize them a little bit, you know, maybe take them a little bit further. So Goodhart's script already had the um, the synchronizer in it, that kind of uh, the hypnosis device that allows people to kind of enter each other's subconscious and Borman loved that um you know, he was very very interested in um uh Teilhard de Chardin the um the sort of <laughs> slightly heretical Jesuit priest who was also a he wrote extraordinary books this you know somewhere between theology and psychoanalysis um uh they're quite Jungian and Borman's you know fully paid up uh Jungian himself but he was very interested in this kind of notion of it's almost a collective unconscious but th- this idea that we through um, things like hypnosis can actually all, you know, enter into kind of telepathic communication with each other. And this is kind of the next step of evolution. And this is kind of what God wants. And it's through this that we will come together and, and peace will be achieved. And, you know, we will be essentially healed and redeemed as a, as a kind of species. And, you know, it's, it's a bit woolly and very interesting and metaphysical, but Borman was very taken with that. And that's actually in the script to begin with. But from what I know about Pallenberg, he's kind of interested in that sort of stuff as well. So they, Really, are just trying to um, bring, you know, flesh those ideas out. But the other thing that Pallenberg is brought in for is, is things like, you know, the fact that Lee J. Cobb dies, um, the fact that the film needs to be kind of rewritten on the hoof, uh, and of course, films always need to be rewritten when they're cast. Um, so, the Doctor, that's um, played by Louise Fletcher. I'm pretty sure in Goodhart's script, I, I've never actually found a copy of the original, the, the pre-Pallenberg script, but I'm pretty sure in Goodhart's script that was written for a man, and it was supposed to be a kind of, you know, a much younger man. It was kind of, um, I'm trying to think of what a good analogy of this would be. Um, it's, if you know, if you know something like Contacts by Carl Sagan, um, the, 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 the doctor figure, you know, that the... the um, the psychiatrist is supposed to be the voice of kind of science and reason and the skeptic, and then you have his or her debates with the priest and decided to go with Louise Fletcher. I mean, Louise Fletcher, you know, was not far off her Oscar for one for the cuckoo's nest. Um, she was a bit of a draw. I guess it's the idea that it got, you know, got a bit more kind of um, female interest in there, but it was originally written for a man. So that obviously had to be rewritten in certain ways. Um, and, you know, I think also they had to probably do some reruts once Richard Burton was signed. Borman got on with Burton. In fact, in his autobiography, I'm not sure which marriage this is because I can't keep up with these kind of things. Borman and a couple of Borman's kids are like the only the only guests and witnesses at one of Burton's marriages that happens around the time of Exorcist too. <laughs> um, so they, they got on on a personal level, and he found um, Burton to be very professional, not problematic at all. You know, none of the the stories of hell raising he said really applied as far as he was concerned. But um, he still felt that Burton was kind of wrong for the film. You know, that the, the character in Borman's head, and I think in in what Pallenberg kind of conceived in the script was supposed to be a much younger priest. 
Um, you know, he he was interested in Christopher Walken for the part, but it, his his real choice would have been John Voight, um, an actor who Borman's worked with several times, has always been very close to, and um, you know would have brought a very different edge to it. Because what you have in in The Exorcist Two, in a way, is kind of Borman's was kind of worn out cliche of the the old slightly embittered, burnt-out priest. Um, and he said what he wanted actually was someone much more young, much more kind of vital and optimistic. And of course, someone who might, you know, because <laughs> they're in the kind of <laughs> prime of their life, someone who might actually experience the physical doubts of being a priest much more kind of um, profoundly. Because obviously there there is the element in the film that there is this kind of weird attraction between Reagan and Father Lamont, except Father Lamont is much older now, or maybe much, much older. Um, and also what I've always found bizarre is that Richard Burton is supposed to be Max von Sydow's protege. And it's, I know Max von Sydow's supposed to have been dead for a few years, but it's still like, hang on, you're definitely older than him. <laughs> it's kind of weird to have, a, you know, an older protege. So, so the, I think, I think the casting, as always, facilitated some on the hoof rewrites. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, Borman got a lot of flack for that, but I mean, in, in a way, he, he filmed the script that they gave him, he just had to make some practical alterations to it, you know, um, as they kind of went along. And, um, anyway, I think he added some interesting ideas. Um, I'm pretty sure, um, from what I've gleaned from Barbara Palenberg's book, the, um, the Ned Beatty character, Ecumenical Edwards is, is kind of a Borman Palenberg invention. I think it's actually one of the, the, the nicest little grace notes in the movie. Um, you know, this, this lapsed priest who kind of ferries people around in Africa and can spot another sort of semi-lapsed priest a mile away. Richard Burton's incognito doesn't, you know, is pretending not to be a priest. And Led Beatty just looks at him and goes, hello, father. Um, that's a, that's a lovely little moment, but Beatty's always, always great value. Um, but you know, as always with, with Borman, uh, the dialogue sometimes, um, John is very visual, very visual filmmaker. Um, color is something we'll definitely have to talk about, you know, it's extraordinary. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm trying to remember who it was, but it was um uh come to me in a minute, a major, major American film critic, uh Jonathan Rosenbaum, um when he was talking about Beyond Rangoon, he just said, you know, no one frames widescreen like John Borman and it's it's true. I mean he's just got one of those compositional eyes. He knows exactly how to frame a shot and he's up there, I think, with, you know, David Lean, Kurosawa. I mean he just he knows where that camera is supposed to go. Um and he, he's often at his best when you think about long stretches of point blank deliverance, Hell in the Pacific, which is virtually a silent movie. Um, he's often his best when there isn't much talking. You know, he, he can tell a story with pictures rather than words with the best of them. And sometimes the dialogue gets away from him. I mean, you know, you long for passages in Excalibur where people don't speak. And there's just some of, some of the dialogue in Exodus 2 is just, some of it's clunky. Some of it's, it, it, it shows in a way what he's trying to do. It kind of goes beyond words. I mean, there's a wonderful line where Richard Burton says something like, he says, I think he says it to um, Ned Beatty. He goes, last time I was here, I was flying on the wings of a demon. And he pauses and goes, it's difficult to explain. <laughs> it's just like, yes, it is. And, um, and, and that's the thing. He can show you that. He visualizes those sequences where you kind of have these, these hallucinations. You know, you, Richard Burton experiences, you know, flying on the wings of a demon, these incredible kind of steady cat shots and shots and locusts and they're, they're, they're extraordinary that's the best stuff in the movie um and then you have to try and talk about it it's like i can't do this um and and then you think well, okay john you know john was very interested he's very interested in the medieval um he's very interested in kind of mystical writing and you know medieval mystics <laughs> often kind of fall into that you know they, they have to say well i had this vision god sent me this vision i can't really explain it because the words don't exist 
you know, I have to try and conjure this up in images because we don't really have the words to describe what I saw. And I think that's what happens in, in quite a few of John's movies is that um, visually they are just, they are visionary. And I mean that in the proper sense of the word, not the kind of lazy sense where people say, you know, from the visionary director of Alice in Wonderland. I mean, it, they're visionary in the sense that they are dreamlike. Um, they're dreamlike, they're mystical. They kind of, they try to convey something otherworldly. You know, he's a visionary in the same sense that Tarkovsky is. Um, and um, I think that's, you know, where Exodus 2 is at its best. When it tries to talk about it, it just, it falls flat. But to be honest, you know, <laughs> it's an interesting comparison, but watch a Tarkovsky film and tell me what the weakest part of it is. It's the dialogue. Tarkovsky's films are extraordinary, but then people start to talk and you're just like, this is not your strong suit, mate. Um, and I think it's the same thing with John, really. You know, he, um, uh, the, 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 often the films that work best are the ones that are maybe sticking closest to a generic model, you know, point blank. Um, the script, and I think about how stripped, stripped down the script is to point blank. I mean, Lee Marvin probably says about 30 lines, you know, and the film is all the better for it. Deliverance has huge sections with no, you know, no dialogue. Same with Excalibur. And it's not to say that John can't do good dialogue. I'm actually, uh, Hope and Glory and The General have fantastic scripts. And he wrote both of them himself, um, without co-writers. And the dialogue on those is absolutely wonderful. But, Interestingly, those are probably of John's, I think, great films, the most, re- the most realist, you know, the least kind of, they're, they're slightly dreamlike, but they're not excessively dreamlike. So the dialogue's probably the most grounded in, in reality. Um, whereas when he goes off on a kind of metaphysical bender, the, you know, it's like in, 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 in Zardoz. I mean, my partner, she, she thinks one of the funniest lines in the history of English language cinema is, um, you came in the stone head. It's like, yeah, and you know, and and then of course what happens in Zardoz and in Exodus Two is you have these these slightly clunky lines delivered by Shakespearean actors, <laughs> and and Pauline Kael kind of nails this in her review of Exodus Two, and she's actually very kind to Exodus Two because she she is one of the rare critics. I'm one of them. Martin Scorsese is another who prefer it to the first film. Um, but she said the thing about Richard Burton is that voice with those lines turns everything into high camp. You can't help but maybe find it a little bit funny because, you know, Richard Burton is saying, I was here flying on the wings of a demon. It's hard to explain. You know, if it, if it was John Voight, it, it would be delivered in a very different way. And it might not sound quite as campy. It's kind of, you know, Richard Burton kind of, he, he, he comes across like Peter Cushing in Hammer Horror in a way, you know, um, there's sort of later Hammer films where the scripts weren't very good. He's remarkably professional delivering, you know, lines kind of perfectly, but it just somehow doesn't gel. You know, his training kind of works against the, um, I don't want to say the silliness of the script, but the potential silliness of the script. Cause I don't think John thinks the film was silly. I don't, I, you know, I think it, it, one of the things that's so interesting about Exodus 2 is how achingly sincere it is. He believes in, the, you know, the possibilities of hypnosis and, you know, the ideas that, you know, that we might be able to connect with each other's minds. You know, he really is trying, I said, to create this kind of healing vision of, you know, shared dreams. And it's, um, it's just, you know, if, if he'd made it in a $2 million art movie like Zardoz, it might have had a cult following, but it's, you know, this was not two million. This was twenty something million in the late seventies. So it was a, you know, it was a very public act of hubris, I think, to try and try and pull that off. Well, let's talk about the colors. You mentioned those before, and I know he had experimented a lot with color in Leo the Last. Oh my God, yeah. Um, right. Well, see, I, I have this kind of slightly crackpot theory that that all filmmakers should be forced to make their first two films in black and white. 
that they should just be forced to do that because when they start to use color, then they'll, they'll they'll really think about it. I think there's a lot of filmmakers now whose use of color is just a bit lazy. They they, they grew up on color, they see everything in color, therefore they don't really know what they're doing when it comes to making color movies. John, obviously, you know, is a child of the war. He's born in the, the sort of early 30s, um, maybe to mid 30s. He grows up on black and white movies. Um, he starts working in black and white television, absolutely. Um, and he makes his first feature film in black and white. So when he starts using color, he thinks about it. Um, the same way that, you know, Kurosawa, who came very late to color, if you look at what he does with Odeska Den or Ran or Dreams, extraordinary use of color. Um, Fellini takes a long time before he gets to color. Then you hit Juliet the Spirits and it just, it blows your retinas out. John's in that league. I mean, he really is in the Fellini. Kurosawa League when it comes to use of color. Very few people are as thoughtful about it. So his first color film is Point Blank, and wow. Um, the, the production designer at MGM threatened to resign over Point Blank because John was filming every scene wherever possible using one color. So that he said it's as much as possible, every scene was kind of monochromatic. And as the film progresses, the color palette becomes increasingly warm as Lee Marvin's character is kind of somehow psychologically, psychically reintegrated. You know, he, it's, it's kind of a telling of the Fisher King tale and his wounds are kind of spiritually healed. Um, so there are scenes, there's a, probably the most famous example is a scene in the office of one of the kind of corporate gangsters where he's lined all of his men up and it's just chewing them out because Lee Marvin's running rings around them. And every single thing in the shot is green. The desk, the blinds, the sofa, every suit, every tie, every shirt is a different shade of green. And the guy at MGM just said, this is ridiculous. This young idiot from Britain doesn't know what he's doing. This is going to, you know, I'm not putting my name on this film. And Borman's like, I didn't understand how a, a set designer at a major Hollywood studio could be so ignorant about how color works. Because the point is different shades of green will not come across as being different shades of green. He said, your eye will grade them so that some of them will look brown, some of them will look, you know, different. some of them will look green, some of them will look slightly blue. And you watch the film and he's absolutely right. You would never think that you were looking at a room full of people wearing green. If it was a Wes Anderson film, everyone would indeed be wearing green and you'd notice it was all green. That's not what happens in Point Blank. You know, there are scenes in Point Blank where uh, two sides of the um, of the set will be in different primary colors, and then the third part at the bottom of the set will actually be the secondary color that bleeds out of those two colors. It's it's absolutely remarkable um, the way that he manages to do that. So Leo the Last, which is two films after Point Blank, so Hell in the Pacific's in the middle. Um, he shoots the film in Notting Hill in London, and it's a film about race, uh, amongst other things, race, voyeurism, etc. And he he basically um, wanted to have only skin tones in the movie. So everything in the film, as he painted an entire street in Notting Hill black, right? It's going to be knocked down. So the whole street's painted black. It's very Samuel Beckett. Um, everything's painted black. So everything in the houses is either black white, there's a little bit of brown, or it's sort of metallic silver colors. And the only non-black, white, brown colors in the film are flesh tones. So people's skin, whether they're black or white. There's one scene in a pub where someone is holding a Guinness bottle and they forgot to take the yellow label off of it. And John says he feels physically ill every time he sees it. And it's, it's not even, it's, it's, it's at the back of the bar, blink and you'll miss it. But he says he knows it's there. But otherwise they actually had all the bottles, um, dipped in water so that the labels came off so that every, everything was just brown or black. And it's, it's remarkable to watch. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. Um, so when John really thinks about this, I mean, it's essentially a black and white film in color. Um, Leo the Last. Deliverance, of course, he, uh, Vilmos Zygmunt, who shot it, um, they flash the film. They basically desaturate the color in, 
in those kind of the, the, the woodlands around uh, in Georgia because they don't want it to look soothing. They don't want the color, you know, they don't want any nice greens. And if you notice, if you watch Deliverance, notice the camera very rarely tilts up because he doesn't want to show you any blue sky. So he said he preferred to shoot on overcast days if they're going to see the sky. Otherwise, he keeps the camera low because he doesn't want you seeing nice, you know, soothing um, blues and, and you know, the sky because he said the sky relaxes you and he wants the film to, you know, to become tense. So on Exorcist 2, he basically combines his experience of all the films that kind of go before it. And of course, Zardoz is extremely kind of pre-Raphaelite. Um, very high, high key primary color, but the whole, um, who shot that? Jeffrey Unsworth, um, who shot that, smokes the set every day. So that every other color kind of diffuses and it looks a bit like an impressionist painting. So again, visually striking. But Exorcist 2, John comes up with this idea that there, there should be no soothing primary or secondary colors. So the colors that most make you feel relaxed are, of course, the, the colors that are kind of, we associate with nature. Blue, green, right? There is not a single instance of either color in Exodus 2. He just removes them. I think, I think there's a tiny bit of blue that he couldn't get away with, um, but not having, cause it's on, um, it's on the, the siren of a fire truck when there's the fire at the hospital. Otherwise, if you look at Exodus 2, it's all metallic reds and, um, sort of silvers and golds, blacks, reds, and sort of in more intense oranges. He keeps yellow kind of slightly at bay as well, because yellow potentially is, again, kind of a soothing color. And some critics said that Exodus 2 is an ugly film. It's, it's not ugly at all. It's, it's, it's visually stunning. But what's weird about it, why people sit there and think, oh, this is ugly, is the colors that, are, that our eyes most kind of appreciate, that make us feel good, are gone. So instead of gore, and this is again hubris of the of the finest kind, instead of gore, John removes colours that make us feel good so that we're quietly unsettled for two hours <laughs> rather than going for jump scares. And you can see why they took him to task for that. But but looking at it, it's kind of brilliant. Um but that's just how deeply he thinks about colour. And, you know, he does this, he does this all the time. I mean, Emerald Forest again. And I think about the Emerald Forest is and, and Excalibur are symphonies of green. Um, you know, Excalibur is like one of the greenest films you could ever imagine. And then, of course, he cuts all the color out completely when the land starts to die and then brings it back for the final kind of 20 minutes of the film. And, it's, you know, it's again, your eyes just pop and Emerald Forest again, you know, um, uses green beautifully for its kind of ecological points. And, and John, you know, is the first person that I know of anyway to um, shoot a film in color, but print it in black and white, which he did for the general. And he said, again, that's because he went around Dublin and, and he said, look, I'm filming this on the streets of Dublin. And the problem is um, I can't control the color. He said on, on Leo the Last, he, he basically, this, this whole row of houses was going to be demolished, so he managed to get there first, paint them all black, and then film the movie before they knocked it all down. When you're actually just shooting in the streets of Dublin, you can't control if someone's you know corner shop has a red sign or a blue sign. You have no control over what color a car is. So he said that was the first problem. Um, so he, he didn't want it to be too colorful. Um, so he shot it in color. Um, Seamus Deasy, cinematographer, shot it in color, but lit it as if they would be lighting black and white. And then they printed it on black and white stock. And um, that's where the Coen brothers got the idea to do The Man Who Wasn't There that way. John seems to be quite quite friendly with the Coens, and they've occasionally stayed with him in Ireland. And I think he, he gave them the idea of, you know, you don't need to shoot it in black and white. You can do it in color, but you just print it this way. So, so I mean, again, incredibly thoughtful about the way that color works. And I think The Exorcist 2, in a way, is kind of his most, or one of his most visionary achievements in, in that respect. It's just... um you don't realize, you know, in, until you actually, someone points it out to you that when you're watching the film, a, a huge amount of the kind of color spectrum has just been removed. 
And that's unusual. You know, you usually expect to see some green or blue bleed into a movie. But that explains why John filmed most of the African sequences or almost all of them in a studio. Um, it's, you know, this is a studio film. Um, you know, in the book, I compare it to Powell and Pressburger's Black Narcissus. I think, you know, it really is breathing that air. He shoots it in a studio um, because he wants to control everything. He wants to control the weather, the sky, the, you know, the colors, because he doesn't want anything to kind of interfere with his very specific visual look that he's chosen. And the only way to have that control is to shoot in a studio. Um, and it's just, you know, it's not a popular way of doing things, especially in the 70s. You, know, you think about the 70s, it's all... um a lot, a lot of stuff is location. You know, it's all about grit and realism. And you know, if you think of Friedkin's movies, you know, Friedkin is always kind of all right. There's some studio work in The Exorcist, but you know, French Connection, Sorcerer, these are very location-based movies. You know, um, becomes kind of a la mode in the in the 70s to do stuff that way. So John's very much going against the trend there by saying, "I'm going to make this a completely studio-based film, and I'm going to emphasize the artifice of it." I'm going to make this look otherworldly and artificial rather than realistic, which again I think makes sense for a horror film. But you know, it's not it's not an aesthetic that everyone necessarily warms to. He's so careful about every element when it comes to making this film, and then he has to basically I don't know if butcher is the right word, but then suddenly shift gears after it's been released and recut his own work. God, yeah. Well, I mean, as we said before, you know, the, the ideas in the film are just a bit kind of, <laughs> they're a bit woolly, they're a bit intangible, but, you know, they're not the easiest things to pull off. And of course, an audience who's not receptive to, you know, the theories of Taylor de Chardin and <laughs> this kind of idea of sharing dreams, etc., is going to find this a bit difficult. And they've all come to see a horror movie, and John hasn't really made one. So yeah, the studio are perplexed, um, and the audience laugh at certain aspects of the film. Um, the scene at the end where Reagan basically tries to seduce Father Lamont. So you've got, you know, however old um, she is at the time. She was like late, late teens, early 20s when she makes um, Exodus 2. And then you've got Burton, who's in his 50s. Um, so, I mean, there's a huge age gap. And, you know, that got a laugh. So that ends up getting cut. And um, they decide that the ending, they go for a much more downbeat ending the second time. So, um, uh, you know, Richard Burton's killed, which completely nullifies the whole idea of redemption at the end. Um, and, um, the, the doctor, doctor, um, Tushkin, the, uh, Louise Fletcher character doesn't quite, she kind of comes around to their understanding at the end of the, the, the Borman's original cut. That doesn't happen. Um, they try and speed it up. There's a prologue with shots from the first film added. Um, just to remind you that, oh yes, this is The Exorcist 2. Um, so you see kind of shots Max von Sydow and the original Exorcist and Richard Burton does this voiceover that tells you that he was Lamont's protege, etc. And it's, um, it's a shorter film. It, but I, weirdly, despite, you know, shaving of quite a few minutes, like a reel off of it, um, it doesn't feel like a tighter film to me. Um, so some of the more important bits of exposition just get cut. And yes, he does end up having to butcher it. But, um, so John refers to that version as Exorcist 3. Uh, then there's a version he refers to as Exorcist 4, <laughs> where he has to make even more cuts. And, um, of course, the other problem is that the film had already been released. Um, you know, the film, the film was on general distribution when Warner Brothers decide they're not happy with it. So what they had to do, I think, with what the version he calls Exorcist 3 is that they, they were, they could make changes, but, um, they couldn't recall all the prints. So the changes had to be made using what was already sent to the cinemas. So, you could make cuts, but you couldn't make additions. 
is what happens after the second version. So they could send a memo to all the, the, the cinemas showing the film saying, please cut, you know, this from reel two, this from reel three, that from reel four, etc." Um, but they couldn't actually, they could, you know, they'd have to just edit this is back in the day when most cinemas, I guess, had a, a moviola kicking around at them where you could actually edit a film as you were going along. But they had to sort of make on the hoof edits to it as well. It was, it was messy. And I think Borman feels they, they kind of rushed the film. They, they had a they had a you know a marketing deadline that they wanted to hit. They wanted it released by a certain date. I think he would have much more happily spent another month or two fine tuning it before it was actually released. And of course, you know when you have to re-edit a film that's kind of been put out into general distribution, it just it's not good. You know you can tell that there's a there's a crisis of confidence somewhere in there. And part of the other problem, um, if you watch what Borman calls Exodus Three, the second cut, so not not what I would call the director's cut. Um, Borman, through no fault of his own, actually, kind of kind of painted himself into a an editing corner with certain bits. Um, Exodus Two is one of the first films to involve a lot of Steadicam. Um, Steadicam is a pretty recent introdu- you know, pretty recent invention around there. The guy invented a guy called Garrett Brown, um, who used to because there was only one Steadicam. Literally, he had the only one because he invented it. Um, so for the early early Steadicam films, he was the operator. You know, he had, because he was going to damn well know to use it. Um, so they'd used it on films like uh, How Ashby's Bound for Glory. And, you know, it, it's it's not badly used there in a kind of sort of quasi-documentary way. But John, I think, was the first person, and Garrett Brown kind of echo this, to really use it imaginatively. Um, so he uses it for some of those incredible kind of flying sequences. Um, there's a wonderful shot where you kind of go from, you're basically from the point of view of the demon Pazuzu going through this kind of African village and, you know, the camera's like jumping up and down on, you know, jumping up down these various staircases, jumps through a kind of chicken coop, chickens kind of scatter, um, and it just goes straight into um, sort of James Earl Jones's face. And then there's this very interesting effect shot where you have like a, a leopard jump out of it. It's really quite breathtaking. But when you shoot long, um, kind of continuous master shots like that, they're very difficult to cut into. Um, you know, you, you know, cause, because he was using the steady cam, um, he was able to do things in kind of one meticulously blocked shot and he didn't shoot a lot of coverage. And of course, when you're re-editing a film, the first thing you look for is, oh, where's all the coverage? And there actually wasn't a lot for certain scenes. So you, you watch in the second version, there are some slightly awkward insert shots within some otherwise kind of beautifully choreographed long takes. Um, and that's not how John would usually do things at all. Um, so I think he, you know, Again, he was experimenting. You know, this this was like a twenty million dollar experimental movie, which is probably not the best idea. Um, you know, experiment on your own time, not on the studios, perhaps. But that kind of came back to bite him in the foot as well. So, so not only were there, did they have to make these very public edits? Some of the edits looked a little bit clunky. And, you know, there are, generally speaking, whatever you say about John's films, clunky edits are not usually part and parcel of the package. So I think that happened as well. So the film looked a bit choppy, uh, in places, which, it, you know, it, it, I think it doesn't in the, in his, his original cut. Um, you know, I think the, the choreography and, and the intercutting, when it's supposed to happen, is actually extremely smooth. But also, you know, for a film that's trying so hard to kind of rewrite the rule book of horror cinema and trying to be so positive, um, you know, without, without, it's not a happy ending because people don't really understand yet, but it's, it's a positive ending. It, it argues that, you know, we can, you know, move past this kind of, the, the demonic possession has kind of been, the, 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 this chain has been broken and that we're going to move on to something more positive and, and, you know, through this kind of hypnosis and that this young girl and this priest are going to go off and, and, you know, um, they kind of ride off into the sunset, but it's going to kind of close to that. To have the ending all of a sudden, they try and go for this kind of grand guignol kind of idea where, um, 
you know, uh, Reagan's charge is set on fire, you know, um, Richard Burton's eaten up by the floor and, you know, gets swallowed and sucked into hell and everything else. He's like, this is, you know, it goes against the spirit of the first hour and 40 minutes of the movie. Um, you know, it was, it was this kind of tacked on horror ending that really had no place in a film like Exorcist 2 or what Exorcist 2 had been up to that point. So I think that, that also kind of bit the film in the ass a little bit. Um, you know, you, you set everything up in this very non-horror way and all of a sudden you just, you know, <laughs> you try and pull out all the stops, which I think John was very uncomfortable with. Um, and the film felt very uncomfortable. <laughs> I must say they got it right the first time, but they got it better. It makes money mostly because Warner Brothers kind of forced it onto theaters, but it's not the hit that they were expecting. It's not Exorcist 1 money. How does he go from recovering from this to actually doing what was kind of his dream job, something that he'd been working on for years with Merlin to Excalibur? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you're absolutely right. It's, 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 it's the people who lose money on Exorcist 2 are unfortunately the cinema owners. So in, in what seems like a, a kind of belated instance of, you know, 1940s Hollywood studio block booking, they, it's, it's Exorcist 2. I mean, this is, this is the sequel to the, you know, the biggest, highest grossing American studio film of the 70s, or at least one of the highest grossing studio films of the 70s. Um, this is big stuff. So of course they, they get the cinema chains to pre book the movie and they all think of course well the first film was just such a runaway hit this is going to make us a fortune so they they basically paid the studio <laughs> for the rights to show the movie and then no one came to see the movie <laughs> so the, the people who lost out were the, were the cinema owners really um, which is quite unfortunate and, and that practice doesn't really continue long after Exodus 2 so the studio don't really lose on it no, you're right um, and the film does respectable business but nothing like the business it should um, really where it's problematic for John and for the studio is the reviews, um, which I said are just, you know, <laughs> unbelievable. Um, I think Leonard Moulton gives it a bomb, which is like zero stars. I can't remember what Roger Ebert does to it. Um, I'm pretty sure that Michael Medved puts it in his book, uh, the Golden Turkey's book of the 50 worst films of all times. Um, you know, it's generally perceived to be one of the most colossal failures ever and not on a kind of <sighs> Heaven's Gate scale. I mean, well, you know, I'm, it, Heaven's Gate is one of those films where, you know, it, it, it flops, but there, there were still reviews and places like France that actually say, no, this is a, a very artistic film that just happened to fail. People just say that Exodus 2 kind of fails. Um, so, yeah, it puts John at a very kind of low ebb. But at the same time, I think, you know, the studio could only, you know, he could only make the film that they asked him to make on one level. You know, I mean, it's, it's, he, as always, tries to kind of make the film personal and put a lot of his personal concerns into it. But, you know, it's not like he wrote the script himself. They, they hired him to do it, they handed him to it. So I'm not sure they could entirely hold huge amounts of it against him. And, um, you know, he, I said he, he contracted this mysterious illness. They knew that he tried to make the film for them on budget and on time. So I think that kind of counted in his fate and it counted in his favor. But I mean, really the quirk of getting Excalibur made was going through Orion Pictures. Um, Orion were, they were a studio, yes, um, but they didn't tend to look over a director's shoulders. Um, they didn't have a huge amount of money. So Excalibur is made for well under half of what Exodus 2 costs. Um, I think the whole thing, estimates vary, but John, John said it between 9 and 10 million. So it was not going to be 
it was going to be reasonably lavish, but you know, he had to count the pennies. Um, when he made Excalibur, whereas with, I think, Exodus 2, they had, you know, they had the full resource of a studio behind them. So Exodus 2, big studio film, Excalibur is somewhere in between a studio movie and an independent movie. But in terms of what the studio did with him, it's entirely an independent film. They said to John, this, your, his only stipulation on that film was it couldn't be longer than two and a half hours. Which is, I think, I think they actually said to him 140 minutes, that's the maximum. And the film is exactly 140 minutes. Um, so that was really all they did. Otherwise, John had final cut on that. Obviously, with Exodus 2, it was one of those instances where he had the right to show his version of the film, um, to critics, etc. But then the final cut really resided with the studio. And of course, they just keep trying to, <laughs> keep trying to change it until they, they think they get it right. But, you know, they never really do, which is why there's so many different versions kicking around out. Out there um so excalibur he's you know he's, he's kind of back in charge again which i think is what he kind of is most comfortable doing and like i so said when when you really you are the main producer on a film i think that's when he's most comfortable as well because then he feels that he's responsible for all of this i think on exodus 2 he was one of the producers but he also wasn't this was you know there was always going to be someone higher up than him calling the shots, looking at, you know, looking at the money, balancing the books on Excalibur. It's his job to make sure that he makes the film for the 10 million they've given him. And he turns in the 140 minute cut that they've asked him to turn in. Um, and, you know, and as he says, he's more comfortable when he knows that all the successes and the failures in the film are his own, that he can, you know, say, look, that was, that was my fault. <laughs> or if it succeeded, it was because of me. If it failed, it was because of me. I think with Exodus 2, there's just, it's, you know, it's big studio filmmaking. There's too many cooks, really. Um, but I mean, the one thing I think the films have in common is, um, more, it's more prevalent, I think, in Exodus 2 and Excalibur. The weakest thing in them, apart from the dialogue, which can be a bit dodgy in both, um, is the performances are extremely variable. I said some people come out of Exodus 2 smelling of roses. Um, Ned Beatty's great. James Earl Jones is great. Max von Sydow doesn't have a lot to do, but he's Max von Sydow and he's, you know, reliable as hell. Burton genuinely does his best, actually. I think Burton's quite, he's quite good in it, but I, I take Pauline Kale's point that it's, it's a weird bit of casting. Um, but I, I don't think Linda Blair is very good. <laughs> but to be fair, you know, Linda Blair, people talk about her performance in the first film, but she doesn't have a performance in the first film. I mean, she basically just has to lie in bed and, scream and vomit and and most of the the best line readings are actually Mercedes McCambridge um so I mean it was a kind of an unfair test of her abilities as an actress um I don't think um Louise Fletcher is comfortable at all which is weird because you know she's she's usually very reliable but she's she's quite wooden in this and Kitty Wynn um as as um Sharon, the assistant, is just completely at sea. But like I said, that was a last minute battlefield promotion. You know, it was supposed to be Lee J. Cobb and Lee J. Cobb would have been good. Um so I mean the performances are variable. Same in Excalibur, you know, some of the performances are incredibly kind of OTT, but Borman said that's the problem. He said if you're making a film for you know, if you're making a large scale epic movie, he said the performances are usually the last thing that you pay attention to because the logistics are huge. Um, he said, you, you can spend as much time as you want rehearsing the actors, which is what John likes to do. But then when the cameras roll, you've got to just rely on the actors to, you know, they're, they're kind of on their own in a way because you then have to deal with the horse wranglers and the, you know, and the armorers and every, all the rest of it. And of course, with Exodus 2, the problem was they had weeks and weeks and weeks of rehearsals and then Lee Jacob dies. So the script has to be rewritten. And so the rehearsals, you know, half the scenes are gone. Um, so then you, you know, so you spend all this time rehearsing scenes that you're not even going to shoot now. 
And, you know, I think, I think obviously what they did later, you know, would get George, it might've been better to, to stick in a clunky line of exposition and basically make the people aware that Lee, you know, Lee J. Cobb's character is now played by somebody else. And that might've been the smarter move, but Lee J. Cobb was a name and the first film was so fresh in everyone's mind. But I think it would have been confusing, so they decided to go down a different direction. But it just meant that that rehearsal process, which, you know, John relies on a lot, um, just kind of, you know, came to nothing really. And, you know, Excalibur has that, has that kind of slightly weird quality in the performances. Like I said, some people are brilliant. You know, um, Nicole Williamson is fantastic. Helen Mirren's fantastic. Um, Nigel Terry starts off seemingly awkward, but really grows into the role of, of Arthur. He's absolutely wonderful by the end of the film. Um, but, you know, <laughs> Actors who will become big, like Liam Neeson, seem a little bit uncomfortable, you know, um, and that's probably because they didn't have a lot of time to to go in the ins and the outs of these sort of minor characters, you know, because you were dealing with <laughs> so many other aspects. And of course, once John, once the camera's rolling, John's job is the mise en scène. He's got to, you know, get the shots. And I said, no one, very few directors are as good as that as he is. Um, but you know, the performances sometimes suffer because of it. The smaller films, Pope and Glory, the general where the logistics are far less, you know, he doesn't have to deal with so many extras and everything else. The performances are much more controlled, you know, much more confident, but visually, okay, they may not be quite as eye popping, but you know, visually they're still extraordinary films. They're just smaller scale, I think. Um, and that's the thing with John is that, you know, he, he's ambitious to a fault and that's what makes him so interesting. You know, he's, he's, um, he's only ever made one boring movie. Uh, which was in our country, um, which was, you know, a kind of dull, serviceable, worthy film about the um, Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. And the worst thing I can say about it is that anyone could have directed it. And you can't say that about any other ones of John's movies. I mean, um, the last one before Queen and Country, Tiger's Tale, which was um, torn apart by the press, I actually thought was extraordinarily good um, in places, in a lot of places. But absolutely, you know, this was, this was kind of... Uh, it was awkward, but it was, you know, it was clunky in places, but it was utterly handcrafted, and, and some of it was just beautifully realized. And, you know, that's the thing, you know, he might make a film that, a failure, but it feels like a, an interest, it'll always be interesting, it'll always be kind of personal. And I think that's why, you know, John's so important, really, um, as a filmmaker. You know, he's, he's what, I hate the auteur theory, I hate this idea that a film is, you know, one man's creation and not a team effort. Of course, film is a team effort. It's the most collaborative art form. It's probably why it's the most interesting. So many great artists and minds coming together in one place. But, um, John is one of those people you probably could call an auteur. The films have that stamp. They have, they, they to the point that they, they actually take on John's own eccentricities, which I think is, is very, very interesting. And, you know, I, I talked to Tony Pratt, um, not that long ago, last month, um, lovely man. Tony, Tony, of course, was, um, Borman's production designer since, Tell in the Pacific, um, and has worked on most of John's films um, since then. He said that, to be honest, you know, even even someone like Excalibur, he said, you know, he was in charge of the design. But he said most of the really kind of off the wall successful ideas just came from John, like um, uh, making the armor at the beginning look kind of sort of almost you know, the, the beginning. Of the knights of these kind of monolithic. He said they almost they almost primordial. They're like dinosaurs hunking around this giant armor, and then of course the armor seems to get lighter and brighter and shinier and then it tarnishes he said that was john the idea to um when they were going to build camelot um tony was going to start getting bricks and john said no gold on the outside silver on the inside the idea of making the castle essentially metallic he said that was john and so i mean he you know has these these ideas and then you know kind of brings people around him to help him realize them but he you know he has that kind of 
that vision and the films I think have that kind of unity of vision, you know, um, for better or for worse. Like I said, you know, it's, he's infuriatingly inconsistent as a filmmaker. You know, Exorcist 2 is one of the films I love talking about, but sometimes I, I dread putting the DVD on because <laughs> you have to kind of, you, you know, that in between the moments of brilliance, these visual kind of flights of fancy, there is some clunky stuff in there. But you know, half of it, half of it's great, and actually, it's a, it's kind of interesting. Um, I don't, I know there's a DVD coming out, but um, I've always wanted uh, someone to restore the film with a with a music only track because um, Marconi's score and the sound effects are fascinating, and the dialogue's quite clunky. I would love to watch it as a near silent movie because I think that would actually it would actually be really quite good. <laughs> <laughs> might sort of massively improve it because um, some of those sequences, you know, particularly sort of the flying sequences, are, are just mind blowing. Um, there's nothing really like them. I think in the book I said, you know, I think there's nothing like them since um, F. W. Murnau made his film with Faust in about like 1925, where at the beginning, um, about half an hour in the film, Emil Jannings as uh, Mephistopheles takes Faust on this this kind of magic carpet ride and they build this incredible kind of artificial set at UFA studios in, in Germany. And there's actually a roller coaster made for the camera to track across to give you the impression of flying on this magic carpet with the devil or with the devil's envoy. And Borman does the same thing in Exodus too. He wants to kind of give you the feeling of flying with a demon. He wants you to experience this kind of firsthand from your point of view. And that's, that's, you know, those bits are amazing. Um, that's when the film's absolutely, it just takes off at those points. Um, it's, you know, when you're, and, and things like that, that the use of the mirrors, the two way mirrors that he creates in the, in the extremely bizarre set for the hospital. I mean, it looks nothing like a hospital. Um, but it's, it, you haven't seen anything like it in a movie until you get to Silence of the Lambs, when you get, you know, that, that dungeon where they keep, um, Anthony Hopkins, you think, this isn't a hospital. <laughs> um, yeah, and, but the way he uses those two-way mirrors, again, I've never really seen anything like this in a film, but he's able in one shot through the use of a dimmer switch to move between two time frames. So you see the exorcism from the original film with a stand-in playing, um, uh, playing Reagan, and then you've got um, you know the, what's going on in the present of Exorcist Two, and then so he, by just dimming this light and shooting through this mirror, it's a very complicated setup. He can go past, you know, in the past of the first film, in the present, or at times bleed the two together without cutting. It's you know, and and again, who the hell would think of that? It just you know, it's it's it, and and this is again the thing about John. You know, we talked about this with Zardoz. Um, he's um. He's very good technically. Um, and Tony Brown, when we talk about Excalibur, he said, to be honest, with the exception of like two or three shots, like, um, when the, in Excalibur, where the, um, everything's dead and then he drinks from the grail and everything becomes revived and you've got, you know, Carmina Barana playing and all of a sudden this tree just bursts back into bloom. Um, as far as Tony Pratt remembers, that's kind of the only sort of special effects match shot in the movie. Um, he said pretty much every effect in Excalibur was done in camera. Um, and that's exactly the same with Zardoz. And, um, I think actually for the most part, that's the same with Exorcist 2. So even though he has, you know, the, the power, uh, the, the facilities of a studio behind him, he still prefers to do his effects in the camera, the kind of old fashioned way, like go back to George Melies and German expressionist kind of techniques. And again, I think that gives the films a fascinating kind of look to them. You know, most people would, would not have come up with, let's shoot this whole thing through a two-way mirror using a dimmer switch, and then we can do the whole thing in camera. I just, you know, that's not how most people think. But, you know, John's in, able to do these absolutely incredible things with, 
you know, with concave mirrors and everything else to make it look like they have more of a set than they do. Um, there's a bit in Beyond Rangoon where um, there's a they go see a statue of a reclining Buddha, which is supposed to be something like 200 feet long. And if you watch the movie, you believe it is, but it's actually all they did was create the head and the feet and about a couple of feet of sort of polystyrene between them. And John just did this, uh, something involving a, a mirror that Tony Pratt was trying to explain to me that makes it look like it has this perspective and it doesn't at all. And he just has this ability to know what, what a camera can do and how it can kind of trick the human eye. And again, it's like that thing in point blank with, I'm going to make all this shot green, but your eyes going to tell you that it's not. Um, and you know, there's a lot of that in evidence in Exodus too. I mean, from that, you know, from that technical point of view, it's a film that I think should be studied. Um, you know, and I think that's why Martin Scorsese put it on his list of guilty pleasures. He said, look, on the one hand, this is an interesting metaphysical film. It doesn't quite work, but this is a film about it. He compared it to the book of Job. And so this is a film that asks about how, why is evil attracted to pure good, right? And, and I think the film is really asking those questions. It is quite a searching film. He said, even though the film's by no means perfect, he said, also on a technical level, there's stuff going on here that, it's really fascinating. You said, you know, there's nothing in the first film to compare to it, you know, just on, just technically. John's trying to do something really interesting with the camera, with the kind of visual vocabulary of cinema to put us somewhere we haven't really been before. Let's try and experience evil firsthand. Let's try and, you know, fly firsthand, you know, in, in a way that, that other films just don't. You're not going to see anything like this in Richard Donner's Superman, you know, you're not going to see anything like this in, in Friedkin's Exorcist. So, John's always trying to push those boundaries. What can a movie do? What can a camera do? How can it, you know, transcend the limitations that we think have been set for it? Um, and again, you know, we don't really have enough of that. Um, it is hubris to think that you can make a film that transcends film, but what a great idea to try. <laughs> and there aren't many filmmakers who have, you know, tried that. You know, Kurosawa, maybe, you know, David Lean and Lawrence of Arabia, um, Kubrick, 2001, Barry Lyndon. You know, it's there are very, very rare instances of people trying to push. You know, Peter Greenaway, um, I think, is trying to do the same thing in a in a much more kind of intellectualized way. But you know, what what have we not? What what, we know, what, what potentials for the medium have we not explored? What can we actually do? that film is capable of doing, but no one's really thought of doing. And John, you know, tries to do that all the time. And, you know, weirdly, um, the more money you give him, the more he's going to try. <laughs> Most people would kind of scale it back and go, okay, studio film, you know, uh, I've got some obligations here. He's like, I'm going to try and fulfill my obligations, but at the same time, thanks to the resources, guys, I'm going to use this to the best of my ability to try and push those boundaries. And I still say, you know, if it had been a $2 million art movie that was not part of, they didn't have franchises back then, but it's become one. But if it was a two million dollar art movie that was not attached to The Exorcist, I, you know, if if you know Linda Blair was not, you know, Reagan McNeil or whatever her name is from the first movie, I think people would be much kinder to it. They'd see that he was trying to do something else. But it's because that it's part of this enormous horror franchise that you know people quite rightly, like Mark Commode, you know, try to judge the film by the standards of the first movie, and it's it it both should be and shouldn't be at all because it's. He couldn't be less interested in the original and what the original's trying to do, which is scare the crap out of you, which it does very well. But I don't find it does much else. You know, I've never found much kind of substance or subtext to the first film. There is a lot of substance and subtext to the second film. It doesn't all entirely work, but it's there. You know, there's a lot to kind of read into it. Whereas the first one is a wonderful technical exercise in, you know, horror 
really. Um, but it, you know, the ambition I think is incomparable between the two films. It's probably very unfair on Friedkin, but you know, I've, I've, <laughs> I've always found Friedkin to be a very interesting, if efficient filmmaker. But you know, Borman's fascinating. You know, in, in what, what he tries to do. Brian, what are you up to these days? I'm trying very hard to get my head around writing some stuff on um, some un- unproduced screenplays. Um, we've got the the archive of uh, Alan Sharp. Um, if you know Alan's work, the screenwriter, uh, he did Night Moves for Arthur Penn. He did Ozana's Raid for Robert Aldridge. Um, he wrote Rob Roy in the 90s. That was his kind of comeback. Uh, he did um, Damnation Alley. Um, so, and he's Scottish. He was born quite near Dundee. Uh, we have his archive. So I'm, I'm working on some stuff from, about some unproduced films that he made about Robert Burns and Christopher Marlowe. I'm at some point supposed to be working on some stuff on uh, the film music for Laurence Olivier's three, uh, Shakespeare films with William Walton. Um, I'm also desperately trying, this is really uh, thought in my side, but I will get this finished. I'm trying to finish off my edited collection of interviews with John Borman. That should be interesting. So it's it's going to cover, I think, from about 1967, 68 to the present day and include an interview I did with John uh, at his house. Um, so hopefully that's going to be a kind of career-spanning work and we'll have to talk a bit, hopefully, about his novel and his radio plays and his most recent film at the end as well. So it'll kind of complete what I didn't quite finish with my book. So that's with uh, University of Mississippi Press. Um, and, you know, apart from that, I'm just... Uh, as always, tinkering, tinkering around doing doing other practical stuff. So I'm trying to make a uh, documentary at the moment about um, Dundee during the First World War um, and conscientious objectors. So I'm doing that with some members of the history department here. So, so yeah, that's I mean, you know, keep busy. <laughs> Up next, you're going to hear an interview with our friend Paul Talbot, who wrote The Unmaking of Exorcist to the Heretic for Video Watchdog. Did you see it theatrically? I did not see the heretic theatrically. I was too young. In the 1970s, I grew up in the 1970s when I was in um, elementary school, but I was always fascinated by the original Exorcist because, of course, it was such a huge hit. It played forever, so I used to look at all the uh, the ads in the newspaper, those terrifying compelling ads and then they had terrifying radio spots for the exorcist played over and over again and then when the heretic came out it was the same way i was too young to see it but it was heavily promoted with the uh huge newspaper advertisements the brilliant trailers you know of course there's a theatrical trailer which is brilliant but they also had some really good tv spots that played on tv all the time and then again um 
uh, lots of radio spots that had scary sounds and also, of course, that really fantastic uh, Ennio Morricone song, kind of like that disco theme they play over the end credits. That's when I first was aware of it. I wasn't able to actually see it until it uh, played on television. In 1980, CBS Television bought the rights to The Exorcist and The Heretic. And it was the first time either one of them had played on TV. So they showed the original The Exorcist on one evening. And then the following evening, they showed uh, The Heretic. So they presented it almost like a strange miniseries almost. So that's when I first saw it. And then uh, I was always fascinated by it. Again, uh, The Exorcist, the original Exorcist is actually my favorite movie uh, of all time. And I've always been fascinated with The Heretic, too. So I always so I did a lot of research um about that one, especially since there was uh, different versions of it. And for a long time, the original cut could not be seen. It was it was uh, not available. Yeah, doing my research on The Exorcist 2, I didn't find a whole lot of stuff written about it. So where did you go to unearth what you unearthed? I went, I did a lot of research like I usually do in uh, old issues of Variety. And also the Washington Post, when The Heretic first came out, they did um, a lot of articles on it. So I mostly had to find my material through microfilm of old newspaper articles like that. And then ultimately, uh, John Borman did a, uh, a memoir, which wrote about all his movies, and he had a chapter on The Heretic. And one thing that was especially fascinating, back in the 1970s, this, of course, was before DVDs, when you could see a, a documentary on every movie or YouTube, Back in the 1970s, was a really big trend to have these paperbacks that would be on the making of certain movies. Probably the most famous one was the Jaws Log, which covered the making of Jaws. And there was also lesser-known ones like The Making of the Great Gatsby. And these books, as a young person studying who wanted to learn about filmmaking, you could find these books and read them. And they were really uh, well-detailed and gave a lot of information. And they did one on... Exorcist to the Heretic. There was a making of book on the making of the heretic. In fact, William Peter Blatty, who of course wrote the novel for the Exorcist and then wrote the screenplay for the Exorcist movie, when the heretic was coming out, Warner Brothers offered him uh, a lot of money to put out a heretic novelization. He didn't have to write it, but since he had the he had the book rights still to The Exorcist. He Only he could put out any sequels. And Warner Brothers was going to give him a lot of money just to get the permission to put out a heretic novelization, but he refused to do that. So since The Heretic didn't have a novelization, they put out this really cool making-of book, and that was a really fascinating um, document of the making of that film. I had to do a lot of research, picking little bits and pieces here and there to kind of put the whole story together. Yeah, I know Joseph McBride wrote a long series of articles uh, about the, let's call it the unmaking of the book, because unfortunately, Barbara Pellenberg's book kind of ends where some of the best part of the story, or the most interesting part, because, I mean, there's the, the, the making of the movie was so difficult before they even rolled the cameras, while they were rolling the cameras. But then there's that third chapter, which is after everything stopped and they released it. And that part isn't, unfortunately, covered in her book. And that's what you ended up covering quite a bit of in your article that you wrote for Video Watchdog. The bad thing about those making of movies, of course, they were written while the film was in production. And in order to get them out, 
to coincide a few months before the movie came out, they had to skip the post-production. And as you said, a lot of the interesting stuff is in the post-production because scenes get dropped. And then, of course, the marketing of a movie is always fascinating also, which, of course, that was was not covered in a lot of those making of books. Yeah, sometimes just uh, the story of the trailer or the story of the poster art can be one of the most fascinating aspects of a movie. Sometimes the poster art can be more fascinating than the movie, not necessarily in this case. But yeah, there's that large chunk of what happened after it actually got released to the theaters. And unfortunately, you know, I would have loved to have gotten the behind the scenes aspects of that. Right. And did you want me to um, uh, kind of talk now, give kind of like a, a cliff notes version of what happened after the film was released? Whenever I write something, a book or a magazine article, I always write what I have to write. What that means is sometimes I'll think of a certain movie, a certain actor, and there'll be plenty of books and articles out there gives me the information I need. So I say, well, good, I don't have to do that work. But for the heretic to, to piece that together, what happened, um, I couldn't find a really definitive documentation of that. So I had to kind of piece it together myself through all the, uh, like we talked about before, the different articles and magazine pieces that I was able to put together. One thing a lot of people don't realize, a lot of people talk about, of course, the 1970s was considered a golden era for movies where a lot of these great top directors got total freedom to make their movies. There wasn't a lot of studio interference at any stage of the game. They got to make the movie they want, make it the way they want to. They had final cut and it was released the way they wanted it to be. And everybody talks about what's, what ended that was heaven's gate where Michael Shimino got total control over that film and, you know, it just became this massive, huge movie and he got and it flopped and everybody said, well, no longer are we going to give these filmmakers control like that. We have to have approval over the scripts, approval over the production, approval over how long it is and approval if we want to reshoot some scenes and re-edit it. But before Heaven's Gate, the two movies that really changed things were William Friedkin's Sorcerer and Exorcist to the Heretic, both those movies opened around the same time in the summer of 1977. And they were both examples of critically acclaimed directors who were allowed to spend an incredible amount of money making the films they wanted to make and releasing them in the form they wanted to make. And Sorcerer and Exorcist to the Heretic were both big money losers. And so even before Heaven's Gate, those were the two movies that really kind of like put an end to the the 1970s golden era of these famous directors being given total creative control. What do you think it was about 1977? I mean, this is coming one year after Jaws and one month basically after Star Wars. And it feels like those bigger movies and bigger egos almost seem to, seem to be inflating as the 70s go along. Two great examples. You said Jaws and Star Wars. Those, of course, at the time were the highest grossing movies of all time. And at that point, everybody wanted to imitate that. They wanted to make, instead of making several movies that opened at the same time, each of them making a certain amount of money, they said, let's put all our money into the making and advertising of a blockbuster, a type of movie that will appeal to everybody, a type of movie that everybody wants to go out and spend their money on. And of course, Sorcerer and Access to the Heretic, 
were being made in that era, you know, right when Jaws was being released and they came out within weeks of Star Wars. In fact, I think, um, I think the story goes, uh, Star Wars was playing in a theater and then it had to be removed because Sorcerer was opening and then Sorcerer bombed. So they pulled Sorcerer out and put Star Wars back into that, um, into that same theater. When the heretic was made at first, they were going to make an exorcist sequel but the original Exorcist, of course, at the time it came out, was the highest grossing movie of all time. It was one of those movies that played forever. Of course, nowadays, a hit movie comes out, and a hit movie, the biggest movie of the year, lasts maybe three weeks in a the theater at the most. Back then, a movie like The Exorcist and Towering Inferno, The Godfather, they would open in just major cities and then slowly expand to the rest of the country. So movies like The Exorcist would play for at least a year throughout the country. So you'd have a chance to see it in a big theater, then a smaller theater, and then a drive-in. And then The Exorcist would also be re-released periodically. So that's what got, um, when the uh, when the Heretic was being made, at first they were just going to make a really cheap Exorcist sequel, something just to be done cheaply and quick cash-in, because there'd been a lot of rip-offs already. There was Italian movies like Beyond the Door, and there was a black exploitation version called Abbey. And, but then when The Exorcist was re-released again and made a lot of money, Warner Brothers got the idea. They said, well, let's make a movie just like the first one. Let's put some acclaimed actors in it. Let's get an acclaimed director. Let's get an acclaimed writer. And let's, make, let's try to make a really good movie. And in fact, the screenplay for The Heretic was written by a man named William Goodhart, who was a playwright. And he was also a, a progressive Catholic. The original Exorcist was written by William Peter Blatty, who was a very devout Catholic, and it really followed the Catholic traditions. The Heretic was also originally written that way. The screenwriter was Catholic, and he tried to make it a pro-Catholic movie. Then they decided, well, let's get a big director. John Borman was brought in. John Borman had just made the movie Zadoz, which was a big flop, so he needed a hit. He wanted to make Excalibur. But because he didn't have a hit movie, he took The Heretic because he knew that would be a hit movie and would give him some more box office clout to make the Excalibur movie. So Borman, again, got total creative control over The Heretic, was able to make it the way he wanted to, and got to edit it the way he wanted to. And at the time, it was the most expensive movie in Warner Brothers history. And as you said, it was one of the first... uh movies that was widely released. In fact, let me look. Um, Friday, June 17th, 1977 is when The Heretic opened. And it was booked in 707 theaters nationwide, which was a huge number of theaters for that time. And Warner Brothers actually was, because there was so much anticipation for it, Warner Brothers was actually able to sign the theater owners to a very powerful contract where the studio had to get a certain amount of money up front, plus they got a huge percentage of the ticket sales. And the agreement also claimed, also contained a clause that required the theaters to run the film for a minimum of 12 weeks. So that's three months. The theaters had to run it for three months, which literally is the entire summer. And we're talking about theaters. This is before every single theater was a multiplex before every single theater had multiple screens. This is back when there were huge theaters, which means their entire summer 
was going to be held up by the heretic. And of course, if it was a big hit, that'd be no problem. There'd be three months of lines around the block. So it just shows you how much anybody was anticipating it to take such a huge gamble to basically risk their entire summer on that movie. And this is also the theaters didn't even see the film. You know, normally what um, this is uh, was called something called blind bidding. And what that means is the theater owners booked it without seeing it. What they do now is, you know, the theater owners will watch the movie, get an idea for what it's like. And certainly if the theater owners had seen the heretic beforehand and see just how bizarre it was and how different it was from the original exorcist, they may not have booked it or they certainly wouldn't have booked it for those type of terms. I can't think of any other instances right off the top of my head, at least of a movie that came out and then was almost immediately, they said, let's go ahead and re-edit this other than that uh, dog movie that came out recently where they went in and cut out a joke. Apparently show dogs is getting recut by global road in response to concerns over inappropriate sex abuse message, not against humans, by the way. Oh no, this has nothing to do with humans. All about the doggies, the doggies being sexually abused for a joke. Yeah, I hadn't heard that. But um, what you're saying is right. That was unprecedented for the time. And we're talking, you know, 1977. Nowadays, for many, it, this has been going on for, for many, many years. A theater will have a sneak preview of a movie, see how it plays. Then they'll actually go back and rewrite it, add some scenes, change some scenes, preview it again, see what the response is. So they basically keep chipping at it until they get a movie that will appeal to the audience. And they do that all the time nowadays with the big, big budget movies. Uh, with The Heretic, they didn't do that. You know, John Borman was able to make the film he wanted to and then put it out as one of the biggest releases of all time, even though it was, even though it was this bizarre art film, a very strange, surreal movie. And then when they opened it, for example, Westwood Village Theater in Los Angeles, it, had, it was a 1,400-seat theater. That's incredible. That shows you back then how big you know, these theaters were. And throughout the country, the opening night and the weekend, the theater was jam-packed. There was lines down the block. But at a lot of these theaters, particularly that theater in uh, Los Angeles, the people in the audience started screaming, laughing at it, throwing stuff at the screen. In fact, a lot of people actually walking out of the theater afterwards and then going up to the people in the line who were standing in line and say, don't watch that movie, it's terrible. Yeah, it had a massive, uh, massive walkouts. And so what happened is that following morning, after it opened on a Friday, that following morning, John Borman, who was in Ireland, he got a call from the Warner Brothers people telling him what had happened, what the reaction was. And so Borman himself got the idea to basically cut out the ending. If you've seen the long version, which I'm sure you have, uh, what happens is Linda Blair dances around, Pazuzu gets killed, all the locusts get killed, and then she walks out, Richard Burton walks out, they talk to Louise Fletcher, and they wander off. Borman decided that people were laughing at that ending. So he made the decision to, there's a shot where Linda Blair comes out by herself, to take that shot, cut the film right then from that shot to the closing credits. So cut out like the last, I think it's like three minutes of the film. So he told that theater to do that. So the projectionist actually did that. 
he literally spliced the ending out of the film, which of course gave a nasty sound jump to the film. But Borman felt that that made it better because people wouldn't be laughing at the ending. And then he got the idea to to change that ending for all of the theaters. So what they did was the studio took the negative, made a new ending, meaning they kept the negative at the point where Borman wanted to and sent out a new final reel to every single theater in the country or most of the theaters in the country with this new truncated ending. And then that Tuesday, again, the film opened on a Friday. John Borman got the bad news on that Saturday. He made the decision to cut the film himself and told the projectionist in that one theater in Los Angeles to cut the film. Then Warner Brothers cut the negative and sent out new final reels to all the theaters that were showing the film. And then that Tuesday, Borman flew to Los Angeles, sat in the theater in Los Angeles, and made notations of what the people were laughing at. They were laughing at things like uh, Linda Blair's tap dancing, laughing at Richard Burton's overblown performance, laughing at little things too, like when Linda Blair would roll her eyes and stuff like that. So he made those notes, and then he went back into the editing room and made little tiny changes like that. And he cut the film down. At that point, Like the film originally ran 117 minutes. When he cut the ending out, it ran 114 minutes. Then he went into the editing room and made a special and made another 110 minute cut. And he showed that to the theater in Los Angeles. And that was just that when that was that version was shown in the Los Angeles theater. And then he decided he was going to go in and make yet another cut. This is called uh, he was calling this one Mach Four because this was actually the fourth version of a film he had made. So he so he made that version. That's the um, the short version, the one that you did the uh, commentary track for. And then what's happened over the years, that very short version. So basically, how it was seen in America, the 117 minute version, which is actually now known as the director's cut, that was what played in all the theaters throughout the United States. The version that he cut just for the Los Angeles theater. That only played in that theater. The cut he made that just removed the last three minutes, that was sent out to the 707 theaters in the United States. That version, that's the version that I uh, just had the ending cut. And so, and then the version that he finally cut down, uh, the one that you did the voice um, the commentary for, I guess that one is 110 minutes. So that version didn't play in the United States. He wanted to send it, but by then the theater with the Warner Brothers was like, look, we spent enough money on this. You know, forget that. We're not putting that one out. That version is played in theaters in Europe and Asia. So that version became the the versions. All those cuts that were played in the United States uh, were never seen again for a long time. That short version that was shown over in Europe, that became the standard version. That's the version that was released on 16 millimeter to college campuses. That's the version that played on television when it premiered on television. That's the version that played on HBO. And that's the version that was initially released on uh, VHS and beta tape back when all the Warner Brothers tapes had that clamshell. They had a green clamshell that, that you opened up. So that version became the version of Exodus to the Heretic that everybody knew until 
the early 1990s when Borman's Cut was finally released on um, uh, VHS tape in the United States. And then that version was later released on DVD. Then from that point on, that 117-minute director's cut was the only version that you could find. Now, and uh, so that shorter version was like a collector's item because people used to buy the the old Warner Brothers tapes. Uh, Die-hard fans like me had to find that old Warner Brothers tape if you wanted to have that special cut that Borman made. So now on this new Blu-ray that's coming out from Screen Factory, it's going to have the 117-minute director's cut plus the 110-minute alternate cut. The other cuts are now missing. And when Warner Brothers first sent out the new truncated ending, they told the projectionist to send those original final reels back or to destroy them. But naturally, a lot of those things ended up in private collectors. And then there was also, this is like the lost cut, the cut that he made. First, he cut out just the final reel. Then he made another short version that was just in a few theaters. That version is kind of like lost. I've contacted a lot of collectors, people who collect um, 35 millimeter prints, but I haven't been able to find anybody that has one of those uh, lost cuts of The Heretic, if, they, if, if any of this makes sense. It's kind of convoluted. So what is it about The Exorcist 2, The Heretic? What is it that appeals to you so much? Well, just that it's insane. I knew, like, I knew when I watched it for the first time on television, I knew that it had a bad uh, reputation. But it's certainly one of those ones, like all crazy movies, you sit there with your jaw open the whole time, wondering um, what's going to happen next, wondering how did this happen? Because, of course, the easy way would have been just to make a direct sequel to The Exorcist, where Reagan's now a teenager, she gets possessed again, turns in, you know, has a real demonic face, pukes on a new priest, blows some stuff up and things like that. But it just became a totally something totally different. And like I said, when you watch it, especially the first time, you know, your jaw opens to stuff like flying like a locust and James Earl Jones comes out, growls at the camera dressed like a, a witch doctor or whatever he's supposed to be, just all kinds of uh, crazy, insane stuff. When Borman was making his final cut after the disastrous opening, he was trying to gear it more towards a commercial audience. Not only did he cut out the stuff that audiences were laughing at, but he also um, he tried to add more horror to it. So he added that prologue where we see freeze frames from the first film, so there'd be more images of her in that horrific makeup. And then he also added... At the end, a couple shots, outtake shots of her from the original. The only gore he was able to add from his own, he added that shot of the cab driver at the end when the cab driver crashes and dies. In the long cut, there was not image of the cab driver. But when he put that more commercial version together, there is a shot of the cab driver laying, laying there bloody. So that was the only gore that he was able to add from his own material. It's interesting because last time we talked, we talked a lot about drum and just plagued production with that and just how there was that super much more intense version of that that has never seen the light of day either. And one thing that's interesting, of course, drum was cut to avoid an X rating, whereas interesting, the heretic, the original version of the heretic wasn't cut to remove any gore or something like that. It was almost, it was cut 
to add more gore to it. So yeah, so it wasn't even so it wasn't an example of uh and one fortunate thing about the heretic, unlike you know, the drum, that long cut of drum uh is long lost. You know, that the violent stuff in drum um was cut before the film was finalized. So it wasn't like there was a uncut version of drum that played grindhouses and stuff like that. Whereas the interesting thing about the heretic is the long cut, you know, Borman's cut was still in existence. And also this strange alternate cut is also still in existence. So the good thing about this Blu-ray is we've got nice quality copies of both versions so we can sit there and compare them. And it's fascinating, as you know from watching them, it's fascinating to watch those two cuts because you really have to watch them over and over to see the differences because a lot of the stuff is just so minor. A lot of it's obvious, like the opening tap dance number with Linda Blair that's cut completely. A whole scene's cut out. But then also throughout it, he cut things like when they were filming it, whenever uh, Louise Fletcher and Linda Blair, when they filmed those scenes where they get hypnotized and go under and go on the journeys, Borman actually brought a real hypnotist on the set. So they actually were hypnotized when they shot those images. And of course, if you've ever seen people who were hypnotized, they they roll their eyes, you know. It's they like their eyes go to the top of their head, but in the heretic, audiences are laughing at that. So that's one of the things he cut out. He cut the little brief images of them rolling their eyes and crossing their eyes. The thing that's so fascinating about it is, it's one of those you watch it and you're like, how in the hell did this happen? Because you imagine, because you watch that thing and it's kind of like, how do you, you know, especially you know stuff like that? It would have been so easy to make a, you know, a hit sequel to the exorcist and you know it's come with a strange bizarre type thing it's one of those ones that almost is like a lot of people don't even know there is a uh an exorcist too because i back in the day back in the 80s i used to work at a video store and of course we had exorcist and next year it was exorcist 2 and many many times people would come in of course exorcist would go out frequently but people would say there's an exorcist 2 People didn't even know there was an Exorcist 2. And then, of course, every time somebody did rent it, they would be, you know, baffled, mystified by it. I think it might have done it a better service had they done what Borman wanted to do and just called it The Heretic. In fact, yeah, that was something they actually changed at the last minute. It was actually called The Heretic. And it wasn't until just before it was released that they added The Exorcist 2 to it. Obviously, they did it for security they were like, we've got a bunch of money invested in here. We want to make sure everyone knows that this is the sequel to The Exorcist. These days, it's it's tough sometimes to know where one movie begins and the next one ends as far as you, know, you get into the Die Hard series. And after three, it's live free, die hard, and a good day to right, die right. And You don't even know that these movies are Die Hard movies necessarily. It could have been The Exorcist, The Heretic, and Legion at one point, rather than Exorcist 1, 2, and 3. All of the Exorcist movies you know, have had difficulty with the endings. The Exorcist, as we originally knew it, uh, had one ending. Then of, course, uh, years, and then, of course, years later, Freakin did that, the version you've never seen, which, of course, added a new ending to it. They didn't shoot a new ending, but, of course, they took footage that they had shot and cut out back, back in 1973. And then the same with uh, 
Exorcist 3 Legion. And it's interesting, these movies are interesting because Legion is the same thing as Exorcist 2 The Heretic. Again, it was a, it was trying to make a sequel to The Exorcist, but something totally different. And so when they made Legion, of course, when they finished it, the studio finally looked at it and said, wait a minute, this isn't a sequel to The Exorcist. We need an exorcism in it. So they went back and added all that stuff about the uh, the exorcism and reshot the ending completely. So it's interesting that all three of the excess movies had problems with the editing while they were making it. The the endings had to be changed. Yeah, not even to mention the whole Harlan versus uh, uh, Paul Schrader stuff going on. Okay, you're right. Yeah, that's right. Dominion. That's right. Dominion was another example. Yeah, so in fact, that's not I almost forgot about excess four until you brought that up. Yeah, so that's bizarre too. That that's another example too. Dominion was the same way, trying to be a trying to be a sequel to The Exorcist, but a much classier, uh, not what you were expecting. And then, of course, it came out, it had to be changed completely as well. So it's interesting that The Exorcist series, uh, the all of them have tried to, all the sequels have started off trying to be something more cerebral, something uh, different, instead of just a cheap uh, cash-in. Whereas, and unfortunately, all of them have been failures, maybe, maybe uh, depending, on, not, uh, depending on your viewpoint, not necessarily necessarily artistic failures, but they were all certainly uh, commercial disappointments because of how they were originally conceived and then had to be changed later in an attempt to make them more commercial. So, Paul, you are always working on the most interesting stuff. What are you up to lately? I'm working on two big uh, Charles Bronson Blu-rays. I can't say the titles yet until they're announced, but I'm, not, I'm putting together a lot of good extras for them. So these when these come out, they're going to be... Um, and they're both scheduled to be released early 2019. And these are going to be two of the more extra-filled Bronson titles in physical media history. So I'm uh, working on those right now. And then I'm also just um, got booked to do two more um, commentary tracks for early and mid-2019. Again, I can't say what they are until they're announced, but these are both different movies for me, the type of stuff that I usually don't, uh, write about, so I'm looking forward to uh, doing the commentaries for them. Usually when I choose a commentary, I usually base it on if the research material is available, because whenever I do a commentary track, I you know, try to find out everything. If it was based on a novel, I read the novel, see what the differences are, I try to find as many script drafts as I can, try to find as many interviews as I can. That's what I'm working on now, is doing some commentary tracks.
we are back and we we're talking about Exorcist to the Heretic. So we've made mention of this quite a few times, but we haven't necessarily gone into the detail that we should as far as the two versions of this, because there are, well, at least two versions of this thing. There were interim versions along the way. There, there, there basically, there were two finished versions. There was, there was the American U.S. version, and it would be smart if I had the numbers in front of me, but I don't. I don't remember what the runtime is. It's almost two hours. And then, and then they started recutting the ending one week after release, into release. They, they recut the ending and then Borman started working on it and, and started cutting things. And when he would, you know, they, they went to theater and, and when there was something that people laughed at, they would cut it, which generally, you know, Dana Plato's mother in this movie, Got, I think, almost all of her lines cut. She's talking! It's like, I don't know what you do with that. It's, it's just unfortunate. Anyway, uh, yeah, a lot of stuff got cut. Stupid bitch from Kitty Wynn got cut. Uh, there's a whole thing where, where new dialogue is put over other dialogues so that they're literally saying words that they're not saying. Like, you know. At any rate, by the time it got to Europe, it was an ongoing process. By the time it opened in France, a couple months later, or two or three months later, it was 16 minutes shorter. And that's the version, the only version you could get up until the 90s when Warner Brothers released the original cut. And then since then, that was the only version you could get up until this Shout Factory Blu-ray, which I haven't seen yet. And I am dying to because, oh my God, they have a new transfer on Blu-ray of this. Thank God for these people. Bless you, Shout Factory, Scream Factory. You're amazing. Yeah, because that last transfer, the Blu-ray transfer that was available, that looked oh, like sucked. garbage. Oh my god, that was terrible. And this is one of the most visual movies of, of that era. I mean, really, it was shot by William Fraker, genius cinematographer. He shot, um, I think, Rosemary's Baby. He shot. Um, he went on to shoot stuff like 1941 and Heaven Can Wait. Um, he's an amazing cinematographer. He shot a lot of westerns. And this movie, again, we haven't talked about the color palette. They omitted blue and green and cool colors entirely. Like everything in this movie is red and orange and rust and yellow. And it looks like a stained nicotine thing. But it's really evocative. And the idea was blue and green are the, the colors that um, are, are, are most comforting. And the hot colors, the red and the orange and the brown and all that stuff, they they put people on edge. And that was the whole idea. It was part of Borman's idea to put the audience in a state of light hypnosis, which is what he tried to do. And which I think in some scenes does kind of work. I mean, he, he doesn't think it worked. But I mean, certainly I think in some scenes it absolutely does work. I mean, there, there are hypnotic moments there are hypnotic sections of this movie where I just get lost in it, even though I know, I know the movie really well, but I know like, okay, this is this insanely bad moment is going to come up and I'm going to laugh at it, but I'm still in, I'm still in that dream. That chorus that Morricone uses, that, uh, that is so nice when that comes in and it just is like these kind of demonic kind of angelic voices that are coming in and out it really and that sets you on edge as well i really have a hard time imagining what this film would be like without that score because it just it's such an integral part of the film 
And like at the end, when she starts doing her dance and the Reagan's theme comes up, it's just like, oh, okay, that the music works really well. The dancing, maybe not, but the music works really well. So the shorter version of this we alluded to earlier, they chopped the shit out of the ending of this. After they spent so much time and care working on the end of this, he kind of does a, a Sunset Boulevard here because they added VO and an intro narrated by Richard Burton, and then they killed off Richard Burton at the end of the movie. (laughs) So we have his voiceover at the beginning, but now he's dead at the end of the movie, so he's kind of recorded it from beyond the grave. Yeah, if Wilder can do it, so can Borman. It's okay. And if it can happen in any movie, it's this one. Yeah, why not? The shorter version... There are things that I'm missing, and now I'm so used to the longer version that I kind of, like, how he was, I was quoting from stuff that isn't even in the movie, because I've read all the screenplays and stuff, so it's tough for me now to kind of keep all that stuff straight in my head. It's like, it's like when you watch, you know, you, you, you watch a certain version of a movie so many times, like, you know, I've seen the longer versions now of all the Lord of the Rings movies so many times that when I watch the shorter versions, I kind of don't even notice that the longer stuff is gone because it's almost like it's part of the film, no matter what now, you know, I know that backstory, no matter what it's, it's not quite like when I watch Blade Runner and I hear Harrison Ford's voice in my head, but that happens as well. Oh, I, I have, I don't hear Blade Runner. I don't hear Harrison Ford's VO anymore. I'm, I, and I don't mind not hearing. <laughs> I don't mind Sushi. That's what my ex-wife used to call me. His name is Gaff. I've seen him around. I'm like, what the hell is this shit? He's it's the like, kind of man ta- that used to, yeah. No, I'm not going to say the N word on this podcast. <laughs> no, pl- oh, please don't. Yeah. <laughs> So I don't have this problem at all because I've only seen the shorter version once and it was so jarring. It's inconsistent. It's just inconsistent. It's not a coherent vision. It's like it was made in panic. You mentioned The Shining before. And as I was doing my research on this movie, I kept thinking of The Shining because Garrett Brown, the changing of the ending as it's already in theaters, but it was a lot easier for Kubrick to cut the end because it was only playing in certain theaters. It wasn't playing in 700 theaters. The uh, shorter European version, and then also the whole idea of possession and stuff. I mean, you can say Captain Howdy and Tony, they might be friends someplace. I don't know. There's some interesting parallels between the two films. Ultimately, I think one was received a lot better. (laughs) You think? I think so. It's I, but that's interesting. I mean, I, I, because I love The Shining. It's one of the films that, that profoundly affected me as a kid, um, and made me want to be a filmmaker. And so yeah, that's, that's all of what you said is absolutely correct. There is a shorter European cut that, you know, they did change. He did change the ending after the first week. Unpopular opinion. I prefer Exorcist 2 to The Shining. I, I can't say I prefer. I appreciate, I mean, like Exorcist 2, it's like, I don't, I can't call it one of the best movies ever made. I don't even know if I can call it one of my favorite movies. I think it's a movie that resonates with me profoundly for a lot of reasons, because I think that it's about very, very talented people doing something very, very risky and failing, genuine, generally failing, um, but then coming through it after, because I know 
the story of this movie kind of has a happy end for, for most of the people involved, especially for Borman. And, you know, had he not gone through, and I think one of the reasons that he agreed to talk to me in my, in the documentary, because it was, it was months of talking, trying to talk to him and, and get, get his trust because this was the one movie that he never, ever wanted to talk about. Like you, you look at documentaries about him, like, like the documentary that his daughter did, me and my da, um, you can find it on Amazon and he will literally talk about all of his other movies, but he never mentions the heretic. He says one, he says that one picture I got sick on at one point, which is, that's it. I mean, and, and you look at, you look at bios of him and they will just leave it out. They will, they'll even talk about Zardoz, which is a really like interesting. I don't think it's as interesting as the heretic. I think it's, I mean, I, I'm a fan, but, um, they'll talk about Zardoz. They'll talk about hell in the Pacific. They'll, they'll talk about, you know, where the heart is. They'll talk about, you know, they'll, they'll talk about whatever, but they won't bring up Exorcist to the heretic. It's a movie that I dearly love. I can't call it one of my favorite movies. I certainly can't call it one of the best films ever. I, I can't say I prefer it. I mean, The Shining is, is a movie that changed my life. But I guess Exorcist II, The Heretic, changed my life as well, but for very different reasons. Because as a filmmaker, I look at it and it's like, I see what, what was going on. I see what they were trying to do. And what they were trying to do was noble and amazing and so, so gutsy. And the fact that they failed is, is not even the point. It's the fact that they did it. Like if, if any, if, if filmmakers had that kind of guts and that kind of vision, what, what would, what kind of cinema would we be looking at if more filmmakers could do that or wanted to do that? Borman was given the golden chalice. Golden, you know, he was given the budget to do whatever he wanted and he did this. And it's like, you gotta respect it. So David, how do you go about deciding I'm gonna make a documentary about Exorcist 2? I'd been talking about it for years, but I, you know, I had never made a documentary. I made one narrative film. Uh, it was called Pornography, a Thriller, and it did very well on the LGBT circuit mostly. And, you know, it was on Netflix for a while and it got picked up by Logo in America and Logo ran it and edited it to hell. There's no pornography in the movie Pornography, uh, but it's about an adult film star who disappears and it's all this weird stuff happens and it's very dreamy and David Lynchy and David Cronenbergy and, and it was very funny when you would show it at film festivals, there would be a divide. Like if you were under a certain age, you, you thought it was really interesting and different and, and you'd never seen an LGBT movie like it. And if you were over a certain age and you just paid for it to see the title of the movie pornography, the Q and A, they got really mad at me at the Q and A's because it was like, it was not a sexy movie and it wasn't intended to be. It was about, it was a horror movie really. Um, it was a psychological horror movie. Uh, and they got really mad because I didn't, you know, show enough. I don't know, penis or something. So I did that and it, and it got these polar reactions. And I, you know, I had already been into Exorcist 2, The Heretic. And I was like, yeah, maybe I'll do another movie. Maybe I'll do my documentary on Exorcist 2. And, and it was years and years and I was doing other stuff and, and making my money, you know, living out here in LA, uh, doing this or that and editing. And finally, a documentary filmmaker named Jeffrey Schwartz, who's a friend of mine who did the movies Tab Hunter Confidential. Uh, the fabulous Alan Carr, which is coming out soon. He did I Am Divine. He did Vito, which was on uh, HBO. Really great guy. A good friend of mine for a really long time. He was just like, David, you have to do this movie. No one is going to make this movie but you. And I'm just like, I wouldn't even know how to start. I have no idea. And so I got in touch with a dude named Brian Hoyle who wrote the a book on Borman um, and knew him. And, and basically I wrote him and I said, like, listen, I want to do a documentary on The Heretic. Um, could you forward this to John Borman? And months later, 
uh, and several emails later, uh, John Borman wrote me back and we started talking and it was months and months and months of talking and basically, and, and Skyping and basically convincing him that I am not out to mock him or the film because it's so easy to do. You could, you could mock this film forever. I mean, this is, you know, there are moments in this film that again are, are, are indefensible. Um, and from there, I finally, I, you know, he assented to be shot for an interview and I, I, I raised the little seed money, not much. I got a crew together in Ireland and I went out there and I spent the day with John and his daughter in his house in Ireland, the one he's been in for 40 years. And I interviewed him about the heretic. And after that, I got Rospo Pallenberg, who was the, you know, the rewriter and he sat for me. And after that, I got Linda Blair. We're going to have a Kickstarter up at our site called hereticsmovie.com. It's not a making of Exorcist 2, but it's about the people involved and what they were trying to do and how it affected them. It's about how Exorcist 2 The Heretic was, as, as we talked about before, one of the movies that ended the auteur era of Hollywood. Because it was such a disaster and it was so vilified. But again, Sam, you were talking about this. It's vilified for reasons that it doesn't deserve. It's like it's, you know, people went in expecting one thing. And because it wasn't that one thing, they think it's crap. And it's not. It's it's too interesting and there's too much going on. You know, and if you, if you, if you somehow can delete from your mind the fact that The Exorcist is a movie and you've seen it and you just go into Exorcist 2 or you just call it The Heretic, like John Borman wanted to, and you watch it on its own as its own movie. It really is a quality movie on its own as its own movie. It's just in no way should be related to The Exorcist. Things about it are amazing. Like, it was the biggest budget in Warner Brothers history, the biggest release in history. It was such a disaster they changed the ending while it was running in the theaters. I mean, can you imagine this today? It's crazy. Um, and, and, and it's been called one of the worst movies ever made and all this stuff. But it's like, if it is a bad movie, if it is a bad movie, and I don't even want to say that it is, it's the kind of movie that only a genius can make, only a true visionary can make this kind of an audacious failure. And as such, I think it's like instructive for anybody interested in cinema, anybody interested in movies, certainly movies of the 70s, to check this out and be and, and know the story behind it because nothing this crazy just happens. Like there are lots of reasons and there's lots of people behind it and there are lots of indicators. Um, so that's a very long answer, but you know, it's I'm really passionate about telling the story of this movie because not only is it just about like this movie in this point of time, but it's also about artists taking risks and how as an artist, you have to, it is compulsory and far too few filmmakers, even established great filmmakers are doing that anymore. Only the best ones are. And I don't think any of them, I don't even think De Palma, I don't even think like Verhoeven has ever taken a risk like Borman did with the heretic. So I'm over here laughing because uh, <laughs> no, I'm laughing for a personal reason because I'm like, I remember getting an email so long ago from Jeffrey Schwartz, who's been on the show quite a few times now, asking, do I have contact information for Borman? And then I said, oh, yeah, try this guy. Try Brian Hoyle. That was that was it. That was it. It was through you. I think it was through you. So that was just like, okay, this is weird. And then I I get an email from you out of the blue after I emailed Rospo Pallenberg. And it's just like, hey, I hear you're doing a podcast about this. I was like, who, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> 
See, it all leads back to you, Mike. You're you're kind of like partially responsible for this documentary happening. I'm, I'm your Kokomo. You you are. You're 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 the good locust. <laughs> And depending on depending on which ending we're talking about, I'll either survive or die. I'm not sure which. We'll we'll see. Go to hereticsmovie.com and give me money. There's a Kickstarter up by the time this goes up. Please. You should start some kind of Exorcist Two themed ice bucket challenge where people oh, either God. have to like tap dance or spit tomatoes. Or they, have to pour, <laughs> they have to pour locusts like dead locusts on their head or something. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh jeez. And donate. I'll have to th- have to yeah, do- and donate and donate. Tell your Exorcist 2 story. <laughs> how, did, how did Exorcist 2? <laughs> well, by the, t- by the time this releases, Scream Factor will be out with their, their I'm sure, genius like new transfers of this, which I, I have already pre-ordered like four of them. I talked to Jeff Nelson at uh, Scream Factory, and I was just like, oh, my God, you guys are like from heaven. If things go right, I will also say that on the Scream Factory disc, the shorter version of The Exorcist, the one that we have basically said, don't watch it, I will have audio commentary on there. But we'll see if that actually Oh my happens. god, please do this. That would be so great. I will, I will eat it up with a spoon. I mean, of course I'll eat it up with a spoon, but I will totally eat that up with a spoon. Because you guys know. I mean, you, you guys that I'm talking to and you guys, the general audience, you guys know that I'm fucking nuts, right? So as I was out you know, talking to David about Exorcist 2 stuff because now you know, we started conversation via email and via phone and stuff. And I'm out looking um, uh, like this is right around the time that I'm – uh, finally kind of forced my way into doing an audio commentary and it's like, Oh, okay. Well now I need to find different versions of the script. I want to know the whole history of it through the script because there's, yeah, there's Pallenberg's book by Pallenberg's book, which is fantastic, but I want to go beyond that. And I want to know more of this stuff and I'm Googling, Googling, Googling and I find, Oh, here's, Oh, I didn't know this. John, John Borman's papers. They're down in, Indiana. Oh, okay. Well, I'm only seven hours away from this library. I'm so jealous right now. I cannot even tell you. I can't. I'm. I'm literally going to fly down there if I can before the end of the year to to, to do exactly what you did. But oh my god. Well, take more time than I did because I was only down there. Like I got down there on a Thursday night. Got to the library Friday morning, and they're like, yeah, the papers didn't come over, so it'll be like a couple extra hours. And they're so apologetic. They were super nice there. And they hooked me up with the papers and everything. But I only had the rest of the day Friday until like 5 o'clock, and then Saturday only part of a day because they only are open from like 9 to 1, I think. So I didn't get very much time. So there was one whole box I didn't get to look at. But the stuff I did get to look at was absolutely fascinating, and it was kind of to talk about this for this podcast, then also to do the audio commentary, because I wanted all of that crazy backstory, and just to see how the story, how the the story of the movie changed throughout it is just amazing, because Pallenberg's book picks up at one point and then goes from there, but we don't have even those first few months before that just to see all of these different revisions and stuff so it's it's really uh that was a great great opportunity and i was so glad that they had that stuff down there and now if we ever do an episode about point blank which is also one of my favorite films oh that's such a that is a genius movie that movie is so far ahead of its time oh, fuck yes 
yeah, well, and I'm a huge fan of, you know, Richard Stark and the Parker books and, you know, wrote a big article about uh, the different versions of the payback movie and comparing it against Parker, comparing it versus, or yeah, comparing it against uh, Point Blank and comparing it against uh, The Hunter. So, yeah, I want to go down. And they have a box down there with Lee Marvin's shoes. No, no, the shoes. Oh my God. Okay. You, okay. Somebody needs to take them to LAX and walk. The, seriously. I can, I just, and record the sound because this needs to happen. You're that gonna sound is so good. And steal those shoes from that library. Return them. You have to return them, but steal them for a little like, bit. No, we have to fly these to LAX and we have to walk at like 2 a.m. down in a, 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 a tunnel to a terminal with nothing going on and just like by the way anyone in the audience right now who has not seen point blank you need to see point blank because it is a a absolute classic it is the movie that put john borman on the map it it won him accolades and basically got him his entire career because it is such a stunning absolutely ahead of its time movie and if you've seen the limey soderbergh's the limey he basically rips off what Borman did in this movie. It's, it is so radical and so experimental. You can't, I mean, you talk about guts. You can't even believe how gutsy this movie was. I was so happy because James Seeking shows up at the end of Point Blank and Seeking actually read for one of the roles. I think he, he read for either Tuscan or, uh, Lamont. And I so would have loved to have seen that screen test. You know, it's just, he he was at his prime at this time. He would have been so good in that. But it's neat how, like, looking at Borman's papers, uh, even looking at, like, because it was all done chronologically, and there was one folder amongst the Exorcist papers of just his correspondence with Burt Reynolds. He and Burt Reynolds, like, maintained contact for years after Deliverance. It was kind of neat. That is kind of cool. I had no idea they were pals and then to see ned Beatty show up i mean i i would have liked a ecumenical edwards movie i could have stood that because that character just when he shows up and i didn't even catch this the first few times when ned Beatty shows up in exorcist 2 he is there carrying this big cross and he comes in he's basically like yeah i'm this huckster i know it i sell all of these trinkets to all these people and i make my living you know just by doing this lamont introduces himself as an archaeologist and he gets sized up so quickly by Edwards, and he's just like, nice to know you, Father. And it's like, oh, I didn't even catch that, like, the first three times I watched the movie. That's one of my favorite <laughs> lines. My, one of my favorite, like, quick little lines is he also gives him this great side eye when he says it. <laughs> and then I don't know if it was just happenstance or not, but then we would actually get Ned Beatty and Linda Blair in the cinema classic Repossessed in 1990. Oh, yes. Ned Beatty was in that, wasn't he? Oh, major part. Yeah. Even bigger than Leslie Nielsen, I think. In 1973, an entire world watched as a little girl and a holy exorcist battled and cast out the devil himself. But now... I am the devil. I think Nancy has been... Repossessed. 
This is the only man who could possibly save her. Leslie Nielsen. I couldn't hide my butt with both my hands. Linda Blair. God created man in his own image. This is in America, the ultimate confrontation of good against evil. Repossessed. Coming soon. Linda Blair is is a very funny lady, and when she is when she does comedy, she can be very very funny. I think I I don't think she's ever been given credit for for comedy. I mean, even if like uh, you know, I, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but even if you watch Roller Boogie, she has some great lines in Roller Boogie. It's a very watchable, fun, cute little movie, and she's very funny in it. Yeah, she was pretty darn good in Repossessed. I was amazed when I posted that I was watching Repossessed a few weeks ago. That so many people turned out on Facebook to say, oh, that was a favorite movie of mine. I used to watch that on cable all the time. And it's like, really? <laughs> I had no idea. It was kind of a rough watch. But then I did notice there were I, – I think that this was probably just coincidence. But there's some, you know, some good flashing going on on Linda Blair's face when she becomes possessed again. I was like, oh, it's the synchronizer. I think the one thing that we haven't actually discussed about Exorcist 2 is how all of the sequels and the TV series don't want to admit it ever happened. It's very funny. It's just kind of like, yeah, that whole thing where Reagan like went to Africa and like, or didn't go to Africa. She didn't go to Africa, but like, you know, all the locusts descended and destroyed the house and all that stuff. Yeah, we're not going to talk about that right now. And even when in the TV series, somewhat spoiler alert for season one, Gina Davis plays Reagan McNeil. They reveal that in episode five or something. Uh, and it's the big like, oh, my God. But, you know, whatever. It's it's canceled now. So whatever. Even then, it's just like, so that whole Richard Burton thing. How, how was that, Gina? You know, it's like, nope. It was just the first movie that happened. No other movie happened. And Exorcist 3, we were talking about before, was based on Peter Blatty's, William Peter Blatty's sequel. His only sequel. Because he had nothing to do with Exorcist 2. But he wrote a book sequel called Legion. And Exorcist 3, which he didn't want it called Exorcist 3, he just wanted it called Legion, is the real sequel to The Exorcist, which is why, you know, kind of those questions of what happened are dealt with a little more directly. I think in both cases, it's such a shame that they couldn't just be called Heretic and Legion. Yeah, I think I agree. 3 is another. So I'm a huge Exorcist 3 fan. And it's another it's a movie I, I feel like even more so than Exorcist 2, because like I'll give people a break. It. It's ridiculous. But Exorcist 3, I feel like I've spent the better part of my adult life arguing with people about why they need to rewatch it. And it just, I think it's so unfair because people expect it to be sort of, you know, a blueprint of the first movie. And it's so, like, like this, it's so different. Exorcist 3 has the best jump scare in cinema history. I'll just say that right now. It does. And the single probably so I as much as I love horror movies, I don't really ever get scared by anything. But there are a couple moments, including the jump scare you're talking about, where I was like, I'm actually scared by a movie. Look at that. Yeah. I the Joker head is creeps me out every time it pops up. I wish that I had rewatched Legion when we were talking about the ninth configuration a few months ago. Oh, they're very similar. I mean they're the same director, same writer, but I mean they're very similar in tone and, and execution. 
Oh yeah, and so many of the same people in there. Which I, you know, I'm, the ninth configuration lives and dies by those amazing performances. To see so many of the same actors show up, it's just like, oh yeah, I totally should have talked about this as well. And of course, you know, with the astronaut and. Yeah, so it should have all just been one piece, but so that's my bad. So I guess eventually we'll have to do a Exorcist three episode, and maybe I can get fucking Brad Dorf finally to show up. Who knows? <laughs> Good. I'm actually for this uh, this book that somebody's doing on kind of religious themed horror. I'm doing a chapter on Ninth Configuration and Exorcist three, and so now I'm noticing all these parallels that I had never noticed mm. before. I'm doing a uh, chapter in a book about uh, Christian crazy films. So, Ooh. Do you know what your chapter's on? It's going to be about the Apocalypse series, the one that has uh, Mr. T, Gary Busey, and Howie Mandel in them. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, wait. Is this for Andrew's book? It is for Andrew's book. I'm doing a chapter for Andrew's book, too. Ah, funny. <laughs> Who's what is Andrew? Chapter? What, when do I get to do a chapter on Andrew's book? <laughs> <laughs> I feel left out. This is dumb. Introduce you to Andrew. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know who Andrew is, but obviously, I need to write a chapter in his book. Andrew Leovold is the director of the Search for Wang Wang, of uh, the uh, action star from the Philippines. Who's what three foot seven? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. It's one of those documentaries that mm-hmm. I think introduced a lot of people to movies they had never heard of. Definitely worth watching. But Andrew's also great and is one of those people who's always in the middle of eight million projects well that's awesome yeah yeah you definitely need to check out the search for wang wang i'm i'm uh i'm writing this down right all now. right <laughs> yeah and of course you know me sam i can't just write about these things i actually just interviewed the director of two three and four the other day so that was fun of course you did probably also be doing a podcast about it as well it's a two for one so about the heretic I think my favorite exorcism movie is Angel Above, Devil Below, where the devil possesses the woman's vagina and it talks. What? I've never seen this. Oh, yeah. I've never seen this either, and now I must. Yeah, immediately. Hi, folks. Listen closely now, because I'm going to tell you about Angel Above, the devil below. <clears throat> Unaccustomed to pubic speaking as I am, it's hard to know where to begin. I'm still sore here from what the devil did to me. He even made it talk. In this case, curiosity didn't kill the cat. It possessed the pussy. Oh, God. George, what are you doing here? Thank God. That's very strange. That tickles. Tell me, why do you have your legs up in the air like that? So you'll get a good look at this delightable cut. Your daughter is very sick, Mrs. Malaris. She tried to bite my pecker off. Trusted family doctor to an eminent psychiatrist. No one could help our little angel. Until one day. Oh! Well, how do you do, ma'am? way you appeared at my doorstep, it's almost like a miracle. God works in mysterious ways. A 
sexy satire that has something to please everyone, especially me. <laughs> Hope you'll come see our show. It'll be, oh, 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 oh. Angela Bell, the devil below. I watched that for a piece I wrote about talking genital films, and that was... <gasps> Chatterbox! Yes. Oh, yes. I've always wanted to see Chatterbox. I only know the trailer because I have those, like, 42nd Street Forever DVDs with the trailers on them, which are amazing. But yeah. I've when that trailer came up, too. I'm like, oh, have you not seen it? No, I've seen the trailer, not the movie. Oh, wow. Okay, I'll have to hook you guys up. Yeah, Chatterbox. There's one from France. Actually, there's two from France. Uh, La Parle du Chat or something. It's Pussy Talk is the translation. <laughs> yeah. And there's Pussy Talk 2, which is actually kind of radical compared to Pussy Talk 1. Uh, but yeah, I went through it. I compared how vaginas talk versus how penises talk and the way that, you know, the, there's very coded differences between the films. So me and him definitely has a different tone than a chatterbox or a pussy talk or angel above devil below. This sounds amazing. Where can I read this? I can send you the link. That would be awesome. I don't know how we, we started talking about the heretic and now we're talking about talking genitals, but somehow it does fit. It totally fits. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not objecting to it thematically i think i i'm it felt organic to me well i just had a list of some of my favorite possession films and i do have to now <laughs> i have to check out this one called exorcist italian style which was actually put out bef like well before repossessed um i don't know if ultimately if repossessed is successful or not i don't think that it is in my opinion but exorcist italian styles from 1975 and i've heard it called one of the worst italian movies ever made and that's italians calling it that wow. so wow i don't know that's if that's true or not that's a step beyond right there. Yeah, I mean, I've seen Chicken Park, so I don't know how this is going to be uh, any worse than that one. It still blows my mind that Italians were so obsessed with <laughs> ripping off Hollywood films in, like, the mid-70s to mid-80s. And, like, I a couple of years ago, I went through this really painful period where I watched all of the Italian Jaws ripoffs. Cruel Jaws. I remember that one. Oh, it's, it was bad. Not recommended. Like some of them are really fun, but I don't know why I do these things to myself, but I don't know either. I have to catch, there's so much good TV. I don't know why you would do that. It's like, I have to catch up on the Americans and Homeland. I mean, geez, it's like, you're going to watch Italian Jaws ripoffs. Well, I guess there's a place for that. Did you consider this one a Jaws ripoff, the one with John Houston and what was it, a giant octopus or squid? Each year, 10,000 tourists visit Ocean Beach. This summer, Ocean Beach has attracted something else. American International presents Tentacles. It slept until man disturbed it. Then it woke with a fury no man could control, rising from the ocean floor to bring destruction and death. Tentacles. A 
chilling tale of nature gone wild as two of the sea's deadliest enemies fight to the death. Starring John Huston, Shelley Winters, Bo Hopkins, Claude Akins, and Henry Fonda. Tentacles, the most gripping suspense you will ever experience. It's rough, but it's re- it's really funny. Unlike some of the other ones, which are just really slow, and they have like cast off National Geographic, like third generation National Geographic stock footage, you know. <laughs> but the fact that there were these sort of weird, cheap Italian remakes of The Exorcist is <laughs> oh yeah, and there were many of them too. And we're not even talking like the like the the good stuff, like to the devil a daughter and uh, Lisa. Lisa yeah, right. Like the real stuff. Although, although that cut House of Exorcism is really unfortunate. Have you seen it? No, I've only seen like the <laughs> restored it. one. Yeah, it's so basically <laughs> after Baba finished Lisa and the Devil. Some producer watched it and decided, you know what? This doesn't really have enough of an exorcist vibe. So they shot all this new footage and cut it into the film in places that make no sense. And it's a subplot about how somebody gets an exorcism. It's bad on a level that I I can't even explain right now. (laughs) David, is there anything else you want to say about The Exorcist 2? Well, it's not the. There's no. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. See, we have to get we have to get very precise now. Um, I've talked a lot. I mean, you know, basically, it's I think it's just a one of a kind, unique film. I think it's for anybody who really wants to learn about kind of Hollywood of the seventies. Um, you know, it, you have to see like the basics. You have to see, you know, all the you know Chinatowns and you know all the President's Men and Network and you know all the Rocky even and and uh, and Star Wars and all that stuff. But I think Exorcist to the Heretic and the Exorcist, but Exorcist to the Heretic, it, you know, it is a prime example of whatever it is. I mean, you know, basically a very big budget very visionary director trying something really radical and really different, not succeeding. And, you know, luckily for us all, I mean, the filmmaker had a happy ending and went on to do Excalibur and and continued to make movies. But we all get scared when we make art, you know, we're all intimidated. And to make a movie especially is like so expensive and difficult. and, And there are so many people involved. Um, and you know, even in small decisions, you tend to get you tend to want to be conservative. And this is kind of a call to arms to every filmmaker. I want every filmmaker to watch this be like, look at the risks they took. Look at what they tried to do. Yeah, they didn't succeed, but look what they tried to do. Look at the images they made. Look at the moments they captured. And there's something to this film that you cannot dismiss. It's not just a, a disaster. It's not just a bad film. It's like there's something in it that's really worth watching and savoring. And, you know, it's not, this is not the room. This is not Birdemic. This is not, you know, like, like a, an incompetent movie. This is a very, very intentional movie. Similarly, like to, to Showgirls in a way, which was also an extremely intentional movie that was very intentional. Um, one could say the difference is that, you know, Borman's first language is English. Uh, and I, I do love Showgirls, so don't hey get now. me wrong. No, I know I love Showgirls. Believe me, Nomi Malone forever. Exorcist to the Heretic is an important movie, 
yeah, I want everyone to see it. And hopefully when I make my documentary, you know, this, this kind of enthusiasm and the story behind it can be told. David's response was very thoughtful and passionate. And so I feel like I have to counter that and say that I will dress up as a giant locust and throw tomatoes at anyone who hates this movie. Oh my God. I love you. You need to move to LA and be my roommate and like, we can hang out. It's that's amazing. That's exactly right. I will too. All right. I want to thank my guests on this episode, Sam and David. So Sam, remembering when this comes out, what is in the works for you? Earlier this year, I wrote a book on Fritz Lang's film M, and that should be out later this fall. And other things in the works, but until I'm able to announce any of them, just keep an eye on Diabolic Magazine, and I think that's all I have. And David, I know we talked about your documentary, so I want to ask you to plug that one more time. Yes, please, please, please help us make this movie. Um, her, it, the URL, which we already have now in June, but in September it'll be full on, hereticsmovie.com, heretics with an S, movie.com. And basically, you know, we have some investors, but we're going to need crowdsourcing. We're going to need a Kickstarter or an Indiegogo. I'm not sure which yet, but it will be in motion at this time. So please, please, please just go over there and take a look. We have three interviews in the can right now, and we hope to have many more by September. And yeah, that's it. This is my passion. And I really, really want to get it done and get it out there. I really couldn't tell if that was your passion. I thought maybe <laughs> you're like, I'm, I'm very reserved. I'm, I'm told this a lot. I, yeah. You I'm, seem to be lukewarm. Yeah. Lukewarm is definitely the term. Yeah. Not excitable at all. Yeah. Well, thank you guys for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-boot.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to David's stuff and over to Sam's stuff as well. And by the time this comes out, I will have many more links to promote you guys because you are awesome. And people who give to the show are awesome. And people who give reviews are awesome. We've actually gotten a few more reviews lately on iTunes. So those are always helpful. So you can find links over to that as well at projection-boot.com. And remember, every donation and every rating we get helps me helps Pazuzu, and helps Kokomo take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.